This is Audible. Books on Tape presents A Storm of Swords Book 3 of A Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin Read by Roy Detrice Prologue The day was grey and bitter cold, and the dogs would not take the scent. The big black bitch had taken one sniff at the bear tracks, backed off, and skulked back to the pack with her tail between her legs. The dogs huddled together miserably on the river bank as the wind snapped at them. Chet felt it too, biting through his layers of black wool and boiled leather. It was too bloody cold for man or beast, but here they were. His mouth twisted, and he could almost feel the boils that covered his cheeks and neck growing red and angry. I should be safe back at the wall, tending the bloody ravens and making fires for old Maester Eamon. It was the bastard John Snow who had taken that from him, him and his fat friend Sam Tarley. It was their fault he was here, freezing his bloody balls off with a pack of hounds deep in the haunted forest. Seven elves. He gave the leashes a hard yank to get the dog's attention. Track, you bastards! That's a bear print! You want some meat or no? Find! But the hounds only huddled closer, whining. Chet snapped his short lash above their heads, and the black bitch snarled at him. Dog meat would taste as good as bear, he warned her, his breath frosting with every word. Lark, the sister man, stood with his arms crossed over his chest and his hands tucked up into his armpits. He wore black wool gloves, but he was always complaining how his fingers were frozen. It's too bloody cold, don't, he said. Bugger this bear, is not worth freezing over. We can't go back empty hand, Lark, rumbled Small Paw through the brown whiskers that covered most of his face. The Lord Commander wouldn't like that. There was ice under the big man's squash pug nose where his snot had frozen. A huge hand in a thick fur glove clenched tight around the shaft of a spear. Bugger that old bear, too, said the sister man, a thin man with sharp features and nervous eyes. Mormont will be dead before daybreak, remember? Who cares what he likes? Small Paul blinked his black little eyes. Maybe he had forgotten, Chet thought. He was stupid enough to forget almost anything. Why do we have to kill the old bear? Why don't we just go off and let him be? You think he'd let us be, said Lark. He'll hunt us down. You want to be hunted, you great muttonhead? No, said Small Paul. I don't want that. I don't. So you'll kill him, said Lark. Yes, the huge man stamped the butt of his spear on the frozen riverbank. I will... He shouldn't aunt us. The sister man took his hands from his armpits and turned to Chet. We need to kill all the officers, I see. Chet was sick of hearing it. We've been over this. The old bear dies and blamed from the Shadow Tower. Grubs and Aethon as well. They're ill luck for drawing the watch. Darwin and Bannon for their tracking, and Sir Piggy for the ravens. That's all. We kill them quiet while they sleep. One scream and we're worm food, every one of us. His boils were red with rage. Just do your bit and see that your cousins do theirs. And Paul, 
Try and remember it's third watch, not second. Third watch, the big man said through hair and frozen snot. Me and Softfoot, I remember, chat. The moon would be black tonight, and they had jiggered the watches so as to have eight of their own standing sentry, with two more guarding the horses. It wasn't going to get much riper than that. Besides, the wildlings could be upon them any day now. Chet meant to be well away from here before that happened. He meant to live. Three hundred sworn brothers of the Night's Watch had ridden north, two hundred from Castle Black and another hundred from the Shadow Tower. It was the biggest ranging in living memory, near to a third of the Watch's strength. They meant to find Ben Stark, Sir Waymar Royce, and the other rangers who'd gone missing and discover why the wildlings were leaving their villages. Well, they were no closer to Stark and Royce than when they'd left the wall, but they'd learn where all the wildlings had gone, up into the icy heights of the godforsaken Frostfangs. They could squat up there till the end of time, and it wouldn't prick Chet's boils none. But no, they were coming down, down the milk water. Chet raised his eyes, and there it was. The river's stony banks were bearded by ice, its pale, milky waters flowing endlessly down out of the frost fangs. And now Mans Raider and his wildlings were flowing down the same way. Thorin Smallwood had returned in a ladder three days past. While he was telling the old bear what his scouts had seen, his man, Kedge Whiteye, told the rest of them. They're still well up the foothills, but they're coming, Ked said, warming his hands over the fire. Farmer, the dog's head, has a van, the poxy bitch. Goldie crept up on her camp and saw her playing by the fire. That fool, Dumblejohn, wanted to pick her off with an arrow, but Smallwood had better sense. Chet spat. How many were there, could you tell? Oh, many and more. Twenty, thirty thousand, we didn't stay to count. Armour had five hundred in the van, every one a horse. The men around the fire exchanged uneasy looks. It was a rare thing to find even a dozen mounted wildlings, and five hundred? Smallwood sent Bannon and me wide round the van to catch a peek at the main body, Kedge went on. There was no end of them. They're moving slow as a frozen river, four, five miles a day, but they don't look like they mean to go back to their villages, neither. More than half were women and children, and they were driving their animals before them, goat, sheep, even oryx, dragging sledges. They'd loaded up with bales of fur and sides of meat, cages of chickens, butter churns and spinning wheels, every damn thing they own. The mules and garrons were so heavy laden, you think their backs would break. The women as well. And they follow the milk water? Lark the sister man asked. I said so, didn't I? The milk water would take them past the fist of the first men, the ancient ring fort where the night's watch had made his camp. Any man with a thimble of sense could see that it was time to pull up stakes and fall back on the wall. The old bear had strengthened the fist with spikes and pits and caltrops, but against such a host all that was pointless. If they stayed here, they would be engulfed and overwhelmed. And Thorin Smallwood wanted to attack. 
Sweet Donnell Hill was squire to Sir Malador Locke, and the night before last Smallwood had come to Locke's tent. Sir Malador had been of the same mind as old Sir Otten Withers, urging a retreat on the wall, but Smallwood wanted to convince him otherwise. This king beyond the wall will never look for so far north, sweet Donald reported him saying, and this great host of his is a shambling horde, full of useless mouths who won't know what end of a sword to hold. One blow will take all the fight out of them and send them howling back to their hovels for another fifty years. Three hundred against thirty thousand. Chet called that rank madness. And what was madder still was that Sir Malador had been persuaded, and the two of them together were on the point of persuading the old bear. If we wait too long, this chance may, may be lost, never to come again, Smallwood was saying to anyone who would listen. Against that, Sir Otten Withers said, We are the shield that guards the realms of men. You do not throw away your shield for no good purpose. But to that Thorin Smallwood said, In a sword for fire fight, a man's surest defense is a swift stroke that slays his foe, not cringing behind a shield. Neither Smallwood nor Withers had the commander. Lord Mormont did, and Mormont was waiting for his other scouts, for Jarman Buckwell and the men who had climbed the giant stair, and for Corin Halfhand and John Snow, who'd gone to probe the skirling pass. Buckwell and the half-hand were late in returning, though. Dead, most like. Chet pictured Jon Snow lying blue and frozen on some bleak mountaintop with a wildling spear of his bastard ass. The thought made him smile. I hope they killed his bloody wolf as well. There's no bear here, he decided abruptly. Just an old print, that's all. Back to the fist. The dogs almost yanked him off his feet, as eager to get back as he was. Maybe they thought they were going to get fed. Chet had to laugh. He hadn't fed them for three days now to turn them mean and hungry. Tonight, before slipping off into the dark, he'd turn them loose among the horse lines after sweet Donald Hill and Clubfoot Carl cut the tethers. They'll have snarling hounds and panicked horses all over the fist running through fires, jumping a ring wall, and trampling down tents. With all the confusion, it might be hours before anyone noticed that fourteen brothers were missing. Lark had wanted to bring in twice that number, but what could you expect from some stupid fish-breath sister-man? Whisper a word in the wrong ear, and before you knew it, you'd be short ahead. No, fourteen was a good number, enough to do what needed doing, but not so many that they couldn't keep the secret. Chet had recruited most of them himself. Small Paul was one of his, the strongest man on the wall, even if he was slower than a dead snail. He'd once broken a wildling's back with a hug. They had Dirk as well, named for his favorite weapon, and the little gray man the brothers called Softfoot, who'd raped a hundred women in his youth, and liked to boast how none had never seen nor heard him until he shoved it up inside them. The plan was Chet's. He was the clever one. He'd been steward to old Maester Amon for four good years before that bastard Jon Snow had done him out, so his job could be handed to that fat pig of a friend.
When he killed Sam Tarley tonight, he planned to whisper, Give my love to Lord Snow, right in his ear before he sliced some piggy's throat open to let the blood come bubbling out through all those layers of suet. Chet knew the ravens, so he wouldn't have no trouble there, no more than he would with Tarley. One touch of the knife, and that craven would piss his pens and start blubbering for his life. Let him beg. It won't do him no good. After he'd opened his throat, he'd open the cages and shoo the birds away, so no messages reached the wall. Softfoot and Small Paul would kill the old bear, Dirk would do Blaine, and Lark and his cousins would silence Bannon and old Dywin to keep them from sniffing after their trail. They'd been caching food for a fortnight, and Sweet Donna and Clubfoot Carl would have the horses ready. With Mormont dead, command would pass to Sir Utton Withers, an old Don man, and failing. He'd be running for the war before sundown, and he won't waste no men sending them after us neither. The dogs pulled at him as they made their way through the trees. Chet could see the fist punching its way up through the green. The day was so dark that the old bear had the torches lit, a great circle of them burning all along the ring wall that crowned the top of the steep stony hill. The three of them waded across a brook. The water was icy cold, and patches of ice were spreading across its surface. I'm going to make for the coast, Lark the sister man confided. Me and my cousins will build us a boat, sail back home to the sisters. And at home they'll know you for deserters and lop off your fool heads, thought Chet. There was no leaving the night's watch, once you said your words. Anywhere in the Seven Kingdoms, they'd take you and kill you. Ollo Lophan now. He was talking about sailing back to Tyrosh, where he claimed men didn't lose their heads for a bit of honest thievery, nor get sent off to freeze their life away for being found in bed with some knight's wife. Chet had Wade going with him, but he didn't speak their wet, girly tongue, and what could he do in Tyrosh? He had no trade to speak of, growing up in Hagsmire. His father had spent his life grubbing in other men's fields and collecting leeches. He'd strip down bare but for a thick leather clout and go wading in the murky waters. When he climbed out, he'd be covered from nipple to ankle. Sometimes he made Chet help pull the leeches off. One had attached itself to his palm once, and he'd smashed it against a wall in revulsion. His father beat him bloody for that. The maesters bought the leeches at twelve for a penny. Lark could go home if he liked, and that damned Tyrushy too, but not yet. If he never saw Hagsmire again, it would be too bloody soon. He had liked the look of Craster's keep himself. Craster lived high as a lord there— so why shouldn't he do the same? That would be a laugh. Chet, the leechman's son, a lord with a keep. His banner could be a dozen leeches on a field of pink. But why stop at lord? Maybe he should be a king. Man's raider started out as a crow. I could be a king, same as him, and have me some wives. Craster had nineteen, not even counting the young ones, the daughters he hadn't gotten around to bedding yet. Half them wives were as old and ugly as Craster, but that didn't matter. The old ones Chet could put to work, cooking and cleaning for him, 
pulling carrots and slopping pigs, while the young ones warmed his bed and bore his children. Craster wouldn't object. Not one small paw gave him a hug. The only women Chet had ever known were the whores he'd bought in Molestown. When he'd been younger, the village girls took one look at his face with its boils and its wen, and turned away sickened. The worst was that slattern Besser. She'd spread her legs for every boy in Hagsmire, so he figured, why not him too? He even spent a morning picking wildflowers when he heard she liked them, but she'd just laughed in his face and told him she'd crawl in a bed with his father's leeches before she'd crawl in one with him. She stopped laughing when he put his knife in her. That was sweet, the look on her face. So he pulled the knife out and put it in her again. When they caught him, down near seven streams, old Lord Walder Frey hadn't even bothered to come himself to do the judging. He'd sent one of his bastards, that Walder Rivers, and the next thing Chet had known, he was walking to the wall with that foul-smelling black devil Yoren, to pay for his one sweet moment they took his whole life. But now he meant to take it back, and Craster's women too. That twisted old wilding has a right of it. If you want a woman to wife, you take her, and none of this giving her flowers, so that maybe she don't notice your bloody boils. Chet didn't mean to make that mistake again. It would work, he promised himself for the hundredth time, so long as we get away clean. Sir Aten would strike south for the Shadow Tower, the shortest way to the wall. He won't bother with us, not with us. All he'll want is to get back whole. Thorin Smallwood now. He'd want to press on with the attack, but Sir Aten's caution ran too deep, and he was senior. It won't matter anyhow. Once we're gone, Smallwood can attack anyone he likes. What do we care? If none of them ever returns to the wall, no one will ever come looking for us. They'll think we died with the rest. That was a new thought, and for a moment it tempted him. But they would need to kill Sir Utten and Sir Malador Locke as well, to give Smallwood the command, and both of them were well attended day and night. No, the risk was too great. Chat, said Smallpaw, as they trudged along a stony game trail through sentinels and soldier pines. What about the bird? What bloody bird? The last thing he needed now was some muttonhead going on about a bird. The old bear's raven, Smallpaw said. If we kill him, who's going to feed his bird? Who bloody well cares? Kill a bird too, if you like. I don't want to kill no bird, the big man said. But that's a talking bird. What if it tells what we did? Lark, the sister man, laughed. Small ball, thick as a castle wall, he mopped. You shut up with that, said Small Paul dangerously. Paul, said Chet, before the big man got too angry, when they find the old man lying in a pool of blood with his throat slit, they won't need no bird to tell them someone killed him. Small Paul chewed on that a moment. That's true, he allowed. Can I keep the bird, then? I like that bird. He's yours, said Chet just to shut him up. 
We can always eat him if we get hungry, offered Locke. Smallpaw clouded up again. Best not try and eat my bird, Lark. Best not. Chet could hear voices drifting through the trees. Close your bloody mouths, both of you. We're almost to the fist. They emerged near the west face of the hill and walked around south, where the slope was gentler. Near the edge of the forest, a dozen men were taking archery practice. They had carved outlines on the trunks of trees and were loosing shafts at them. Look, said Lark, a pig with a bow. Sure enough, the nearest bowman was Sir Piggy himself, the fat boy who had stolen his place with Maester Amon. Just the sight of Samuel Tarley filled him with anger. Stewarding for Maester Amon had been as good a life as he'd ever known. The old blind man was undemanding, and Clydus had taken care of most of his wants anyway. Chet's duties were easy. Cleaning the rookery, a few fires to build, a few meals to fetch. And Amon never once hit him. Thinks he can just walk in and shove me out on account of being high-born and knowing how to read. Might be I'll ask him to read my knife before I open his soap with it. You go on, he told the others. I want to watch this. The dogs were pulling, anxious to go with them, to the food they thought would be waiting at the top. Chet kicked the bitch with the toe of his boot, and that settled them down some. He watched from the trees as the fat boy wrestled with a longbow as tall as he was. His red moon face screwed up with concentration. Three arrows stood in the ground before him. Tarly knocked and drew, held the draw a long moment as he tried to aim and let fly. The shaft vanished into the greenery. Chet laughed loudly, a snort of sweet disgust. Cor will never find that one, and I'll be blamed, announced Ed Tollett, the dark, grey-headed squire everyone called Dolorous Ed. Cor, nothing ever goes missing that they don't look at me. Ever since that time, I lost my horse, eh? As if that could be helped. He was white, and it was snowing, eh? What did they expect? The wind took that one, said Gren, another friend of Lord Snow's. Try to hold the bow steady, Sam. That's heavy, the fat boy complained, but he pulled the second arrow all the same. This one went high, sailing through the branches ten feet above the target. I, I believe you knocked a leaf off that tree, said Dolorous Ed. Fall is falling fast enough, eh? There's no need to help it, <laughs> he sighed. And we all know what follows fall, eh? Gods, but I'm cold. Caw, shoot the last arrow, Samuel. I believe my tongue is freezing to the roof of my mouth, eh? So Piggy lowered the bow, and Chet thought he was going to start bawling. That's too hard. Notch, draw, and loose, said Gren. Go on. Dutifully, the fat boy plucked his final arrow from the earth, notched it to his long bow, drew, and released. He did it quickly, without squinting along the shaft, painstakingly, as he had the first two times. The arrow struck the charcoal outline low in the chest and hung quivering. I hit him! Sir Piggy sounded shocked. Gran! Did you see? Ed, look! I hit him! Put it between his ribs, I'd say, said Gren. 
Did I kill him? The fat boy wanted to know. Tullard shrugged. Might have punctured a lung if he had a lung. Most trees don't as a rule, eh? He took the bow from Sam's hand. I've seen worse shots, though. I had made a few. Sir Piggy was beaming. To look at him, you'd think he'd actually done something. But when he saw Chet and the dogs, his smile curled up and died squeaking. You hit a tree, Chet said. Let's see how you shoot when it's Mance Raiders, lads. They won't stand there with their arms out and their leaves rustling. Oh, no, they'll come right at you, screaming in your face, and I bet you'll piss those britches. One of them will plant his axe right between those little pig eyes. The last thing you'll hear will be the thunk it makes when it bites into your skull. The fat boy was shaking. Dolores Ed put a hand on his shoulder. Brother, he said solemnly, just because it happened that way for you doesn't mean Samwell will suffer the same, eh? What are you talking about, Tullet? Call that axe to split your skull, eh? Is it true that half your wits leaked out on the ground and your dogs ate them, eh? The big lout grin laughed, and even Samuel Tarley managed a weak little smile. Chet kicked the nearest dog, yanked on their leashes, and started up the hill. Smile all you want, Sir Piggy. We'll see who laughs tonight. He only wished he had time to kill Tullard as well. Gloomy, horse-faced fool, that's what he is. The climb was steep, even on this side of the fist, which had the gentler slope. Part way up, the dog started barking and pulling at him, figuring that they'd get fed soon. He gave them a taste of his boot instead, and a crack of the whip for the big ugly one that snapped at him. Once they were tied up, he went to report. The prints were there, like giant said, but the dogs wouldn't track, he told Mormont in front of his big black tent. Down by the river like that could be old prince. Here, yeah, Petrie, Lord Commander Mormont had a bald head and a great shaggy grey beard and sounded as tired as he looked. We might all have been better for a bit of fresh meat. The raven on his shoulder bobbed its head and echoed, Meat! 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 We could cook the bloody dogs, Chet thought, but he kept his mouth shut until the old bear sent him on his way. And that's the last time I'll need to bow my head to that one, he thought to himself with satisfaction. It seemed to him that it was growing even colder, which he would have sworn wasn't possible. The dogs huddled together miserably in the hard, frozen mud, and Chet was half tempted to crawl in with them. Instead, he wrapped a black wool scarf around the lower part of his face, leaving a slit for his mouth between the wines. It was warmer if he kept moving, he found, so he made a slow circuit of the perimeter with a wad of sour leaf, sharing a chew or two with the black brothers on guard and hearing what they had to say. None of the men on the day watch were part of his scheme. Even so, he figured it was good to have some sense of what they were thinking. Mostly what they were thinking was that it was bloody cold. The wind was rising as the shadows lengthened. It made a high, thin sound as it shivered through the stones of the ring wall. I hate that sound, little giant said. It sounds like a babe in the brush wailing away for milk. 
When he finished the circuit and returned to the dogs, he found Lark waiting for him. The officers are in the old bear's tent again, talking something fierce. That's what they do, said Chet. They're high-born, all but Blaine. They get drunk on words instead of wine. Lark sidled closer. Cheese for wits. Keeps going on about the bird, he warned, glancing about to make certain no one was close. Now he's asking if we cashed any seed for the damn thing. It's a raven, said Chet. It eats corpses. Lark grinned. Is, might be. Or yours. It seemed to Chet that they needed the big man more than they needed Lark. Stop fretting about small Paul. You do your part, he'll do his. Twilight was creeping through the woods by the time he rid himself of the sister man and sat down to edge his sword. It was bloody hard work, with his gloves on but he wasn't about to take them off. Cold as it was, any fool that touched steel with a bare hand was going to lose a patch of skin. The dogs whimpered when the sun went down. He gave them water and curses. Half a night more, and you can find your own feast. By then he could smell supper. Diwan was holding forth at the cook fire as Chet got his heel of hard bread and a bowl of bean and bacon soup from Hake the cook. The wood's too silent the old forester was saying. No frogs near that river. No owls in the dark. I never heard no deader wood than this. Them teeth of yours sound pretty dead, said Hake. Dywin clacked his wooden teeth. No woods neither. There was before, but no more. Where'd they go, you figure? Some place warm, said Chet. Of the dozen odd brothers who sat by the fire, four were his. He gave each one a hard, squinty look as he ate, to see if any showed signs of breaking. Dirk seemed calm enough, sitting silent and sharpening his blade the way he did every night, and sweet Donnell Hill was all easy japes. He had white teeth and fat red lips and yellow locks that he wore in an artful tumble about his shoulders, and he came to be the bastard of some Lannister. Well, maybe he was at that. Chet had no use for pretty boys, nor for bastards neither, but Swede Donnell seemed like to hold his own. He was less certain about the forester the brothers called Saw Wood, more for his snoring than for anything to do with trees. Just now he looked so restless he might never snore again. And Maslin was worse. Chet could see sweat trickling down his face, despite the frigid wind. The beads of moisture sparkle in the firelight like so many little wet jewels. Maslin wasn't eating neither, only staring at his soup, as if the smell of it was about to make him sick. I need to watch that one, Ched thought. Assemble! The shout came suddenly from a dozen throats, and quickly spread to every part of the hilltop camp. Men of the Night's Watch, assemble at the central fire! Frowning, Chet finished his soup and followed the rest. The old bear stood before the fire with Smallwood, Locke, Withers, and Blaine ranged behind him in a row. Mormont wore a cloak of thick black fur, and his raven perched upon his shoulder, preening its black feathers. This can't be good. Chet squeezed between Brown Banar and some Shadow Tower men. When everyone was gathered, save for the watchers in the woods and the guards on the ring wall, 
Mormon cleared his throat and spat. The spittle was frozen before it hit the ground. Brothers, he said, men of the night's watch. Men, his raven screamed. Men, men. The wildings are on the march, following the course of the milk water down out of the mountains. Thorin believes their van will be upon us ten days hence. Their most seasoned raiders will be with Harmer Dogshead in that van. The rest will likely form a rear guard, or ride in close company with Mance Raider himself. Elsewhere their fighters will be spread thin along the line of march. They have oxen, mules, horses, but few enough. Most will be afoot, and ill-armed and untrained. Such weapons as they carry are more like to be stone and bone than steel. They are burdened with women, children, herds of sheep and goats, and all their worldly goods besides. In short, though they are numerous, they are vulnerable, and they do not know that we are here. Or so we must pray. They know, thought Chet. You bloody old pussbag, they know. Certain as sunrise. Corrin Halfhand hasn't come back, has he? Nor Jarman Buckwell. If any of them got caught, you know damn well the wildlings will have wrung a song or two out of them by now. Smallwood stepped forward. Munch Red eh, means to b b break the wall and, and bring Red w War to the Seven k Kingdoms. Well, that's a game too comparable. On the morrow, we'll bring the war to, 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 to him. We ride at dawn with all our strength, the old bear said, as a murmur went through the assembly. We will ride north and loop around to the west. Harmer's van will be well past the fist by the time we turn. The foothills of the Frostfangs are full of narrow winding valleys made for ambush. Their line of march will stretch for many miles. We shall fall on them in several places at once and make them swear we were three thousand, not three hundred. We'll hit hard and be away b before the horsemen can form up to defer to face us, Thorin Smallwood said. If they p pursue, we'll lead them a merry chase, then wheel and hit again further d d down the column. We'll burn their wagons, scatter their herds, and slay as many as we can. Munch Raider himself, if we find him, if they break and return to their hovels, we've won. If not, we'll hire them all the way to the wall and see to it that they leave a tra 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 trail of corpses to mark their progress. There are thousands, someone called from behind Chet. We'll die! That was Maslin's voice, green with fear. Die! screamed Mormon's raven, flapping its black wings. Die! 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 Many of us, the old bear said, mayhaps even all of us. But as another Lord Commander said, a thousand years ago, that is why they dress us in black. Remember your words, brothers, for we are the swords in the darkness, the watchers on the walls. The fire that burns against the cold, Sir Maldor Luck drew his longsword. The light that brings the dawn, others answered, 
and more swords were pulled from scabbards. Then all of them were drawing, and it was near three hundred upraised swords, and as many voices crying, The horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards the realms of men. Chet had no choice but to join his voice to the others. The air was misty with their breath, and firelight glinted off the steel. He was pleased to see Lark and Softfoot and sweet Donald Hill joining in, as if they were as big fools as the rest. That was good. No sense to draw attention when their R was so close. When the shouting died away, once more he heard the sound of the wind picking at the ring wall. The flames swirled and shivered, as if they too were cold, and in the sudden quiet the old bear's raven cawed loudly and once again said, Die! Clever bird, thought Chet, as the officers dismissed them, warning everyone to get a good meal and a long rest tonight. Chet crawled under his furs near the dogs, his head full of things that could go wrong. What if that bloody oath gave one of his a change of heart? Or small Paul forgot and tried to kill Mormon during the second watch in place of the third? Or Maslin lost his courage, or someone termed informer, or— He found himself listening to the night. The wind did sound like a wailing child, and from time to time he could hear men's voices, a horse's whinny, a log spitting in the fire, but nothing else. So quiet. He could see Bessa's face floating before him. It wasn't a knife. I wanted to put in you. He wanted to tell her. I picked you flowers, wild roses, and tansy, and golden cups. It took me all morning. His heart was thumping like a drum, so loud he feared it might wake the camp. Ice caked his beard all round his mouth. Where did that come from? With Bessa. Whenever he'd thought of her before, it had only been to remember the way she looked, dying. What was wrong with him? He could hardly breathe. Had he gone to sleep? He got to his knees, and something wet and cold touched his nose. Chet looked up. Snow was falling. He could feel tears freezing to his cheeks. It isn't fair, he wanted to scream. Snow would ruin everything he'd worked for, all his careful plans. It was a heavy fall, thick white flakes coming down all about him. How would they find their food caches in the snow, or the game trail they meant to follow east? They won't need Darwin nor Bannon to hunt us down neither. Not if we're tracking through fresh snow. And snow hid the shape of the ground, especially by night. A horse could stumble over a root, break a leg on a stone. We're done, he realized. Done before we began. We're lost. There'd be no lord's life for the leechman's son. No keep to call his own, no wives, no crowns. Only a wildling sword in his belly, and then an unmarked grave. The snow's taken it all from me. A bloody snow. Snow had ruined him once before. Snow and his pet pig. Chet got to his feet. His legs were stiff and the falling snowflakes turned the distant torches to vague orange glows. He felt as though he were being attacked by a cloud of pale, cold bugs. 
They settled on his shoulders, on his head. They flew at his nose and his eyes. Cursing, he brushed them off. Samuel Tarley, he remembered. I can still deal with some picky. He wrapped his scarf around his face, pulled up his hood, and went striding through the camp to where the coward slept. The snow was falling so heavily that he got lost among the tents, but finally he spotted the snug little windbreak the fat boy had made for himself between a rock and the raven cages. Tarly was buried beneath a mound of black wool blankets and shaggy furs. The snow was drifting in to cover him. He looked like some kind of soft round mountain. Steel whispered on leather faint as hope as Chet eased his dagger from his sheath. One of the ravens quarked. Snow, murmured another, peering through the bars with black eyes. The first added a snow of its own. He edged past them, placing each foot carefully. He would clap his left hand down over the fat boy's mouth to muffle his cries, and then, Oh! He stopped mid-step, swallowing his curse, as the sound of the horn shuddered through the camp, faint and far yet unmistakable. Not now! Gods be damned, not now! The old bear had hidden far eyes in the ring of trees around the fist to give warning of any approach. Jarman buckles back from the giant stair, Chet figured, or Corrin Halfhand from the skirling pass. A single blast of the horn meant brothers returning. If it was the half-hand, Jon Snow might be with him, alive. Sam Tarley sat up, puffy-eyed, and stared at the snow in confusion. The ravens were cawing noisily, and Chet could hear his dogs baying. Half the bloody camp's awake. His gloved fingers clenched round the dagger's hilt as he waited for the sound to die away. But no sooner had it gone than it came again, louder and longer. Oh! Gods! he heard Sam Tarly whimper. The fat boy lurched to his knees, his feet tangled in his cloak and blankets. He kicked them away and reached for a chainmail hauberk he'd hung on the rock nearby. As he slipped the huge tent of a garment down over his head and wriggled into it, he spied Chet standing there. Was it two? he asked. I dreamed I heard two blasts. No dream, said Chet. Two blasts to call the watch to arms. Two blasts for foes approaching. There's an axe out there with piggy writ on it, fat boy. Two blasts means wildings. The fear on that big moon face made him want to laugh. Bugger them all to seven hells, bloody armor, bloody man's raider, bloody small wood, he said. They wouldn't be on us for another. Ooh! The sound went on and on and on until it seemed it would never die. The ravens were flapping and screaming, flying about their cages and banging off the bars, and all about the camp the brothers of the Night's Watch were rising, donning their armor, buckling on sword belts, reaching for battle-axes and bows. Samuel Tarley stood shaking, his face the same color as the snow that swirled down all around them. Three, he squeaked to Chet. That was three, I heard three. 
Well, they never blow three, not for hundreds and thousands of years. Three means <laughs> others. Chet made a sound that was half a laugh and half a sub. And suddenly, his small clothes were wet, and he could feel the piss running down his leg, see steam rising off the front of his breeches. Jamie An east wind blew through his tangled hair, as soft and fragrant as Circe's fingers. He could hear birds singing and feel the river moving beneath the boat as the sweep of the oars sent them toward the pale pink dawn. After so long in darkness, the world was so sweet that Jamie Lannister felt dizzy. I am alive and drunk on sunlight. <laughs> a laugh burst from his lips, sudden as a quail flushed from cover. Quiet, the wench grumbled, scowling. Scowl suited her broad, homely face better than a smile. Not that Jamie had ever seen her smiling. He amused himself by picturing her in one of Circe's silken gowns in place of a studded leather jerkin. As well dress a cow in silk as this one. But the cow could row. Beneath her rough-spun brown breeches were calves like cords of wood, and the long muscles of her arms stretched and tightened with each stroke of the oars. Even after rowing half the night, she showed no signs of tiring, which was more than could be said for his cousin, Sir Cleos, laboring on the other oar. A big, strong peasant wench to look at, Yet she speaks like one high-born, and wears long-sword and dagger. Ah, but can she use them? Jamie meant to find out, as soon as he'd rid himself of these fetters. He wore iron manacles on his wrists, and a matching pair about his ankles, joined by a length of heavy chain no more than a foot long. You'd think my word as a Lannister was not good enough, he japed as they bound him. He'd been very drunk by then, thanks to Catelyn Stark. Of their escape from River Run he recalled only bits and pieces. There had been some trouble with the jailer, but the big wench had overcome him. After that they had climbed an endless stair around and around. His legs were weak as grass, and he'd stumbled twice or thrice, until the wench lent him an arm to lean on. At some point he was bundled into a traveller's cloak, and shoved into the bottom of a skiff. He remembered listening to Lady Catelyn command someone to raise the portcullis on the watergate. She was sending Sir Cleos Frey back to King's Landing with new terms for the Queen. She declared in a tone that brooked no argument. He must have drifted off then. The wine had made him sleepy, and it felt good to stretch, a luxury his chains had not permitted him in the cell. Jamie had long ago learned to snatch sleep in the saddle during a march. This was no harder. Tyrion is going to laugh himself sick when he hears how I slept through my own escape. He was awake now, though, and the fetters were irksome. My lady, he called out, if you strike off these chains, I'll spell you at those oars. She scowled again, her face all horse teeth and glowering suspicion. You'll wear your chains, Kingslayer. You figure to row all the way to King's Landing, wench? You will call me Brian, not wench. My name is Sir Jamie, not Kingslayer. Do you deny that you slew a king? 
No. Do you deny your sex? If so, unlace those breeches and show me. He gave her an innocent smile. I'd ask you to open your bodice, but from the look of you, that wouldn't prove much. Sir Cleos fretted. Cousin, remember your courtesies. The Lannister blood ran thin in this one. Cleos was his aunt Jenna's son by that dullard Eamon Frey, who had lived in terror of Lord Tywin Lannister since the day he wed his sister. When Lord Walder Frey had brought the twins into the war on the side of River Run, Sir Eamon had chosen his wife's allegiance over his father's. Castly Rock got the worst of that bargain, Jamie reflected. Sir Cleos looked like a weasel, fought like a goose, and had the courage of an especially brave you. Lady Stark had promised him release if he delivered her message to Tyrion, and Sir Cleos had solemnly vowed to do so. They'd all done a deal of vowing back in that cell, Jamie most of all. That was Lady Catelyn's price for loosing him. She had laid the point of the big wench's sword against his heart and said, Swear that you will never again take up arms against Stark nor Tully. Swear that you will compel your brother to honour his pledge to return my daughter safe and unharmed. Swear on your honour as a knight, on your honour as a Lannister, on your honour as a sworn brother of the King's God. Swear it by your sister's life and your father's and your son's, by the old gods and the new, and I'll send you back to your sister. Refuse, and I will have your blood. He remembered the prick of the steel through his rags as she twisted the point of the sword. I wonder what the High Septon would have to say about the sanctity of oaths, sworn while dead drunk, chained to a wall with a sword pressed to your chest. Not that Jamie was truly concerned about that fat fraud, or the gods he claimed to serve. He remembered the pale Lady Catelyn had kicked over in his cell. A strange woman, to trust her girls to a man with shit for honour, though she was trusting him as little as she dared. She is putting her hope in Tyrion, not in me. Perhaps she is not so stupid after all, he said aloud. His captor took it wrong. I am not stupid, nor deaf. He was gentle with her. Mocking this one would be so easy there would be no sport in it. I was speaking to myself, and not to you. It's an easy habit to slip into, in a cell. She frowned at him, pushing the oars forward, pulling them back, pushing them forward, saying nothing. As glib of tongue as she is fair of face. By your speech I judge you nobly born. My father is Selwyn of Tarth. By the grace of the gods, Lord of Evenfall. Even that was given grudgingly. Tarth, Jamie said, a ghastly large rock in the narrow sea, as I recall. And Evenfall is sworn to storm's end. How is it that you serve Rob of Winterfell? It is Lady Catelyn I serve. She commanded me to deliver you safe to your brother Tyrion at King's Landing, not to bandy words with you. Be silent. I've had a belly full of silence, woman. Talk with Sir Cleos, then. I have no words for monsters. Jamie hooted. Oh, are there monsters hereabouts, hiding beneath the water, perhaps, in that thick of willows? And me, without my sword? 
a man who would violate his own sister, murder his king, and fling an innocent child to his death deserves no other name. Innocent? The wretched boy was spying on us. All Jamie had wanted was an hour alone with Circe. The journey north had been one long torment, seeing her every day unable to touch her, knowing that Robert stumbled drunkenly into her bed every night in that great creaking wheelhouse. Tyrion had done his best to keep him in a good humour, but it had not been enough. You will be courteous as concerns Sir Seer Wench, he warned her. My name is Brian, not Wench. What do you care what a monster calls you? My name is Brian, she repeated, dogged as a hound. Lady Brian. She looked so uncomfortable that Jamie sensed a weakness. Or would Sir Brain be more to your taste? <laughs> he laughed. No, I fear not. You can trick out a milk cow in Cropper, Crinet, and Chamfron, and barter all in silk. But that doesn't mean you can ride her into battle. Cousin Jamie, please, you ought not to speak so roughly. Under his cloak, Sir Cleos wore a surcoat quartered with the twin towers of House Frey and the golden line of Lannister. We have far to go. We should not quarrel among ourselves. When I quarrel, I do it with a sword, cos. I was speaking to the lady. Tell me, wench, are all the women on Tarth as, um, homely as you? <laughs> I pity the men, if so. Perhaps they do not know what real women look like, huh? living on a dreary mountain in the sea. Tarth is beautiful, the wench grunted between strokes. The sapphire oil, it's called. Be quiet, monster, unless you mean to make me gag you. She's rude as well, isn't she, cuz? Jamie asked Sir Cleos. Though she has steel in her spine, I'll grant you. Not many men dare name me monster to my face. Though behind my back they speak freely enough, I have no doubt. Sir Cleos coughed nervously. Lady Brain had those lies from Catelyn Stark, no doubt. The Starks cannot hope to defeat you with swords, sir, so now they make war with poisoned words. They did defeat me with swords, you chinless cretin. Jamie smiled knowingly. Men will read all sorts of things into a knowing smile if you let them. Has Cousin Cleos truly swallowed this kettle of dung, or is he striving to ingratiate himself? What do we have here, an honest mutton head, or a lick spittle? Sir Cleos prattled on blithely. Any man who believed that a sworn brother of the king's god would harm a child does not know the meaning of honor. Lickspittle. If truth be told, Jamie had come to rue heaving Brandon Stark out of that window. Cersei had given him no end of grief afterwards when the boy refused to die. He was seven, Jamie, she berated him. Even if he understood what he saw, we should have been able to frighten him into silence. Well, I didn't think you'd want. You'll never think. If the boy should wake and tell his father what he saw. If, if, if. He had pulled her into his lap. If he wakes, we'll say he was dreaming. We'll call him a liar. And should worse come to worse, I'll kill Ned Stark. And then 
What do you imagine Robert will do? Let Robert do as he pleases. I'll go to war with him if I must. The war for Circe's cunt, the singers will call it. Jamie, let go of me, she raged, struggling to rise. Instead, he had kissed her. For a moment she resisted, but then her mouth opened under his. He remembered the taste of wine and cloves on her tongue. She gave a shudder. His hand went to her bodice and yanked, tearing the silk so her breast spilled free, and for a time the Stark boy had been forgotten. Had Cersei remembered him afterward, and hired this man, Lady Catelyn spoke of, to make sure the boy never woke? If she wanted him dead, she would have sent me. It's not like her to choose a cat's paw who would make such a royal butch of the killing. Downriver, the rising sun shimmered against the wind-whipped surface of the river. The south shore was red clay, smooth as any road. Smaller streams fed into the greater, and the rotting trunks of drowned trees clung to the banks. The north shore was wilder. High, rocky bluffs rose twenty feet above them, crowned by stands of beech, oak, and chestnut. Jamie spied a watchtower on the heights ahead, growing taller with every stroke of the oars. Long before they were upon it, he knew it stood abandoned, its weathered stones overgrown with climbing roses. When the wind shifted, Sir Cleos helped the big wench run up the sail, a stiff triangle of striped red and blue canvas. Tully collars, sure to cause them grief if they encountered any Lannister forces on the river, but it was the only sail they had. Brian took the rudder, Jamie threw out the leeboard, his chains rattling as he moved. After that they made better speed, with wind and current both favoring their flight. We could save a deal of traveling if you deliver me to my father instead of my brother, he pointed out. Lady Catelyn's daughters are in King's Landing. I will return with the girls or not at all. Jamie turned to the clears. Uh, cousin, lend me your knife. No, the woman tensed. I will not have you armed. Her voice was as unyielding as stone. She fears me, even in irons. Cleos, it seems I must ask you to shave me. Leave the beard, but take the hair off my head. You'd be shaved bald? asked Cleos Frey. The realm knows Jamie Lannister as a beardless knight with long golden hair. A bald man with a filthy yellow beard may pass unnoticed. I'd sooner not be recognized while I'm in irons. The dagger was not as sharp as it might have been. Cleos hacked away manfully, sawing and ripping his way through the mats and tossing the hair over the side. The golden curls floated on the surface of the water, gradually falling astern. As the tangles vanished, a louse went crawling down his neck. Jamie caught it and crushed it against his thumbnail. Sir Cleos picked others from his scalp and flicked them into the water. Jamie doused his head and made Sir Cleos wet the blade before he let him scrape away the last inch of yellow stubble. When that was done, they trimmed back his beard as well. The reflection in the water was a man he did not know. Not only was he bald, but he looked as though he had aged five years in that dungeon. His face was thinner, with hollows under his eyes, and lines he did not remember. I don't look as much like Circe this way. She'll hate that. 
By midday, Sir Cleus had fallen asleep. His snores sounded like ducks mating. Jamie stretched out to watch the world flow past. After the dark cell, every rock and tree was a wonder. A few one-room shacks came and went, perched on tall poles that made them look like cranes. Of the folk who lived there, they saw no sign. Birds flew overhead, or cried out from the trees along the shore, and Jamie glimpsed silvery fish knifing through the water. Tully Trout, there's a bad omen, he thought, until he saw worse. One of the floating logs that passed turned out to be a dead man, bloodless and swollen. His cloak was tangled in the roots of a fallen tree, its color unmistakably Lannister crimson. He wondered if the corpse had been someone he knew. The forks of the Trident were the easiest way to move goods or men across the riverlands. In times of peace, they would have encountered fisherfolk in their skiffs, grain barges being poled downstream, merchants selling needles and bolts of cloth from floating shops, perhaps even a gaily painted mummer's boat with quilted sails of half a hundred colors, making its way upriver from village to village and castle to castle. But the war had taken its toll. They sailed past villages, but saw no villagers. An empty net, slashed and torn, and hanging from some trees, was the only sign of fisher folk. A young girl, watering a horse, rode off as soon as she glimpsed their sail. Later they passed a dozen peasants digging in a field beneath the shell of a burnt tower house. The men gazed at them with dull eyes and went back to their labors once they decided the skiff was no threat. The Red Fork was wide and slow, a meandering river of loops and bends dotted with tiny wooded islets and frequently choked by sandbars and snags that lurked just below the water's surface. Brian seemed to have a keen eye for the dangers, though, and always seemed to find the channel. When Jamie complimented her on her knowledge of the river, she looked at him suspiciously and said, "'I do not know the river. Tarth is an island. I learned to manage oars and sail before I ever sat a horse.' Sir Cleo sat up and rubbed at his eyes. "'Gods, my arms are sore. I hope the wind lasts.' He sniffed at it. I smell rain. Jamie would welcome a good rain. The dungeons of River Run were not the cleanest place in the Seven Kingdoms. By now he must smell like an overripe cheese. Cleos squinted down river. Smoke! A thin grey finger crooked them on. It was rising from the south bank several miles on, twisting and curling. Below, Jamie made out the smouldering remains of a large building— and a live oak full of dead women. The crows had scarcely started on their corpses. The thin ropes cut deep into the soft flesh of their throats, and when the wind blew, they twisted and swayed. This was not chivalrously done, said Brian, when they were close enough to see it clearly. No true knight would condone such wanton butchery. True knights see worse every time they ride to war, wench, said Jamie. And do worse, yes. Brian turned the rudder towards the shore. I'll leave no innocence to be food for crows. A heartless wench. Crows need to eat as well. Stay to the river and leave the dead alone, woman. 
They landed upstream of where the great oak leaned out over the water. As Brian lowered the sail, Jamie climbed out clumsy in his chains. The red fork filled his boots and soaked through the ragged breeches. Laughing, he dropped to his knees, plunged his head under the water, and came up drenched and dripping. His hands were caked with dirt, and when he rubbed them clean in the current, they seemed thinner and paler than he remembered. His legs were stiff as well, and unsteady when he put his weight upon them. I was too bloody long in Hosta Tully's dungeon. Brian and Cleos dragged the skiff onto the bank. The corpses hung above their heads, ripening in death like foul fruit. One of us will need to cut them down, the wench said. I'll climb, Jamie waded ashore, clanking. Just get these chains off. The wench was staring up at one of the dead women. Jamie shuffled closer with small stutter steps, the only kind the footlong chain permitted. When he saw the crude sign hung about the neck of the highest corpse, he smiled. They lay with lions, he read. Oh, yes, woman, this was most unchivalrously done. But by your side, not mine. I wonder who they were, these women. Tavern wenches, said Sir Cleos Frey. This was an inn, I remember it now. Some men of my escort spent the night here when we last returned to River Run. Nothing remained of the building but the stone foundation and a tangle of collapsed beams, charred black. Smoke still rose from the ashes. And Jamie left brothels and whores to his brother Tyrion. Cersei was the only woman he had ever wanted. The girls pleasured some of my Lord Father's soldiers, it would seem. Perhaps serve them food and drink. That's how they earn their traitors' collars, with a kiss and a cup of ale. He glanced up and down the river to make certain they were quite alone. This is Brackenland. Lord Jonas might have ordered them killed. My father burned his castle. I fear he loves us not. It might be Mark Piper's work, said Sir Cleos, or that wisp of the wood, Beric Dondarrion, though I'd heard he kills only soldiers, perhaps a band of Roos Bolton's Northmen. Bolton was defeated by my father on the Green Fork. But not broken, said Sir Cleos. He came south again when Lord Tywin marched against the Fords. The word at Riveron was that he'd taken Harrenhal from Sir Amory Lorch. Jamie liked the sound of that not at all. Brian, he said, granting her the courtesy of the name in the hopes that she might listen. If Lord Bolton holds Harrenhal, both the Trident and the King's Road are likely watched. He thought he saw a touch of uncertainty in her big blue eyes. You are under my protection. They need to kill me. I shouldn't think that would trouble them. I am as good a fighter as you, she said defensively. I was one of King Renly's chosen seven. With his own hands he cloaked me with the striped silk of the Rainbow Guard. The Rainbow Guard? Oh, you and six other girls, was it? A singer once said that all maids are fair in silk. But he never met you, did he? The woman turned red. We have graves to dig. She went to climb the tree. 
The lower limbs of the oak were big enough for her to stand upon once she had gotten up the trunk. She walked among the leaves, dagger in hand, cutting down the corpses. Flies swarmed around the bodies as they fell, and the stench grew worse with each one she dropped. This is a deal of trouble to take for whores, Sir Cleos complained. What are we supposed to dig with? We have no spades, and I will not use my sword. I... Brian gave a shout. She jumped down rather than climbing. To the boat! Be quick! There's a sail! They made what haste they could, though Jamie could hardly run, and had to be pulled back into the skiff by his cousin. Brian shoved off with an oar and raised sail hurriedly. Sir Cleos, I'll need you to row as well. He did as she bid. The skiff began to cut the water a bit faster. Current, wind, and oars all worked for them. Jamie sat chained, peering upriver. Only the top of the other sail was visible. With the way the red fork looped, it looked to be across the fields moving north behind a screen of trees while they moved south, but he knew that was deceptive. He lifted both hands to shade his eyes. Mud red and watery blue, he announced. Brian's big mouth worked soundlessly, giving her the look of a cow chewing its cud. Faster, sir. The inn soon vanished behind them, and they lost sight of the top of the sail as well, but that meant nothing. Once the pursuers swung around the loop, they would become visible again. We can hope the noble Tullys will stop to bury the dead whores, I suppose. The prospect of returning to his cell did not appeal to Jamie. Tyrion could think of something clever now, but all that occurs to me is to go at them with a sword. For the good part of an hour they played peek and seek with the pursuers, sweeping around bends and between small wooded aisles. Just when they were starting to hope that somehow they might have left behind the pursuit, the distant sail became visible again. Sir Cleos paused in his stroke. The others take them. He wiped the sweat from his brow. Row, Brian said. That is a river galley coming after us, Jamie announced after he'd watched for a while. With every stroke, it seemed to grow a little larger. Nine oars on each side, which means eighteen men. More if they're crowded on fighters as well as rowers, and larger sails than ours. We cannot outrun her. Sir Cleos froze at his oars. Eighteen, you said? Six for each of us. I'd want eight, but these bracelets hinder me somewhat. Jamie held up his wrists. Unless the Lady Brian would be so kind as to unshackle me. She ignored him, putting all her efforts into her stroke. We had half a night's start on them, Jamie said. They've been rowing since dawn, resting two oars at a time. They'll be exhausted. Just now the sight of our sail has given them a burst of strength, but that will not last. We ought to be able to kill a good many of them. Sir Cleos gaped. But there are eighteen, at the least. More like twenty or twenty-five. His cousin groaned. We can't hope to defeat eighteen. Did I say we could? The best we can hope for is to die with swords in our hands. He was perfectly sincere. Jamie Lannister had never been afraid of death. 
Brian broke off rowing. Sweat had stuck strands of her flax-colored hair to her forehead, and her grimace made her look homelier than ever. You are under my protection, she said, her voice so thick with anger that it was almost a growl. He had to laugh at such fierceness. She's the hound with tits, he thought, or would be, if she had any tits to speak of. Then protect me, wench, or free me to protect myself. The galley was skimming down river, a great wooden dragonfly. The water around her was churned white by the furious action of her oars. She was gaining visibly, the men on her deck crowding forward as she came on. Metal glinted in their hands, and Jamie could see bows as well. Archers. He hated archers. At the prow of the onrushing galley stood a stocky man with a bald head, bushy grey eyebrows, and brawny arms. Over his mail he wore a soiled white surcoat with a weeping willow embroidered in pale green, but his cloak was fastened with a silver trout. River runs captain of guards. In his day, Sir Robin Ryger had been a notably tenacious fighter, but his day was done. He was of an age with Hoster Tully, and had grown old with his lord. When the boats were fifty yards apart, Jamie cupped his hands around his mouth and shouted back over the water, Come to wish me Godspeed, Sir Robin. Come to take you back, Kingslayer, Sir Robin Ryger bellowed. How is it that you've lost your golden hair? I hope to blind my enemies with the sheen of my head. It's worked well enough for you. Sir Robin was unamused. The distance between skiff and galley had shrunk to forty yards. Throw your oars and your weapons into the river and no one need be harmed. Sir Cleos twisted around. Jamie, tell him we were freed by Lady Catelyn, an exchange of captives, lawful. Jamie told him, for all the good it did, Catelyn Stark does not rule in River Run. Sir Robin shouted back. Four archers crowded into position on either side of him, two standing and two kneeling. Cast your swords into the water. I have no sword he returned, but if I did, I'd stick it through your belly and hack the balls off those four cravens. A flight of arrows answered him. One thudded into the mast, two pierced the sail, and the fourth missed Jamie by a foot. Another of the red forks' broad loops loomed before them. Brian angled the skiff across the bend. The yards swung as they turned, their sail cracking as it filled with wind. Ahead, a large island sat in midstream. The main channel flowed right. To the left, a cut-off ran between the island and the high bluffs of the north shore. Brian moved the tiller, and the skiff sheered left, sail rippling. Jamie watched her eyes. Pretty eyes, he thought, and calm. He knew how to read a man's eyes. He knew what fear looked like. She is determined not desperate. Thirty yards behind, the galley was entering the bend. Sir Cleos, take the tiller, the wench commanded. Kingslayer, take an oar, and keep us off the rocks. As my lady commands. An oar was not a sword, but the blade could break a man's face if well swung, and the shaft could be used to parry. 
Sir Cleos shoved the oar into Jamie's hand and scrambled aft. They crossed the head of the island and turned sharply down the cut-off, sending a wash of water against the face of the bluff as the boat tilted. The island was densely wooded, a tangle of willows, oaks, and tall pines that cast deep shadows across the rushing waters, hiding snags and the rutting trunks of drowned trees. To their left, the bluff rose sheer and rocky, and at its foot, the river foamed whitely around broken boulders and tumbles of rock fallen from the cliff face. They passed from sunlight into shadow, hidden from the galley's view between the green wall of the trees and the stony grey-brown bluff. A few moments respite from the arrows, Jamie thought, pushing them off a half-submerged boulder. The skiff rocked. He heard a soft splash, and when he glanced around, Brian was gone. A moment later he spied her again, pulling herself from the water at the base of the bluff. She waded through a shallow pool, scrambled over some rocks, and began to climb. Sir Cleos goggled, mouth open. Fool, thought Jamie. Ignore the wench, he snapped at his cousin. Steer! They could see the sail moving behind the trees. The river galley came into full view at the top of the cut-off, twenty-five yards behind. Her bow swung hard as she came around, and a half-dozen arrows took flight, but all went well wide. The motion of the two boats was giving the archers difficulty, but Jamie knew they'd soon learn to compensate. Brian was halfway up the cliff face, pulling herself from handhold to handhold. Riger ought to see her, and once he does, he'll have those bowmen bring her down. Jamie decided to see if the old man's pride would make him stupid. "'Sir Robin!' he shouted. "'Hear me for a moment!' Sir Robin raised a hand, and his archers lowered their bows. "'Say what you will, Kingslayer, but say it quickly!' The skiff swung through a litter of broken stones as Jamie called out, "'I know a better way to settle this. Single combat. You and I.' <laughs> I was not born this morning, Lannister. No, but you'll like to die this afternoon. Jamie raised his hand so the other could see the manacles. I'll fight you in chains. What could you fear? Not you, sir. If the choice were mine, I'd like nothing better. But I am commanded to bring you back alive, if possible. Bowman, he signaled them on. Notch, draw, loo. The range was less than twenty yards. The archers could scarcely have missed, but as they pulled on their longbows, a rain of pebbles cascaded down around them. Small stones rattled on their deck, bounced off their helms, and made splashes on both sides of the bow. Those who had the wits enough to understand raised their eyes just as a boulder the size of a cow detached itself from the top of the bluff. Sir Robin shouted in dismay. The stone tumbled through the air, struck the face of the cliff, cracked in two, and smashed down on them. The larger piece snapped the mast, tore through the sail, sent two of the archers flying into the river, and crushed the leg of a rower as he bent over his oar. The rapidity with which the galley began to fill with water suggested that the smaller fragment had punched right through her hull.
The oarsman's screams echoed off the bluff while the archers flailed wildly in the current. From the way they were splashing, neither man could swim. Jamie laughed. By the time they emerged from the cutoff, the galley was foundering amongst pools, eddies, and snags, and Jamie Lannister had decided that the guards were good. Sir Robin and his thrice-damned archers would have a long, wet walk back to River Run, and he was rid of the big, homely wench as well. I could not have planned it better myself, once I am free of these irons. Sir Cleos raised a shout. When Jamie looked up, Brian was lumbering across the cliff-top well ahead of them, having cut across a finger of land while they were following the bend in the river. She threw herself off the rock and looked almost graceful as she folded into a dive. It would have been ungracious to hope that she would smash her head on a stone. Sir Cleos turned the skiff toward her. Thankfully, Jamie still had his oar. One good swing, and when she comes paddling up, and I'll be free of her. Instead, he found himself stretching the oar out over the water. Brian grabbed hold, and Jamie pulled her in. As he helped her into the skiff, water ran from her hair and dripped from her sudden clothing to a pool on the deck. She is even uglier, wet. Who would have thought it possible? You're a bloody stupid wench, he told her. We could have sailed on without you. I suppose you expect me to thank you. I want none of your thanks, Kingslayer. I swore an oath to bring you safe to King's Landing. And you actually mean to keep it? Jamie gave her his brightest smile. Now, there's a wonder. Catelyn Sir Desmond Grail had served House Tully all his life. He'd been a squire when Catelyn was born, a knight when she learned to walk and ride and swim, master at arms by the day she was wed. He had seen Lord Huster's little cat become a young woman, a great lord's lady, mother to a king. And now he has seen me become a traitor as well. Her brother Edmure had named Sir Desmond Castellan of River Run when he rode off to battle, so it fell to him to deal with her crime. To ease his discomfort, he brought her father's steward with him, Dor Authorized Wayne. The two men stood and looked at her. Sir Desmond, stout, red-faced, embarrassed, Arthur rides, grave, gaunt, melancholy. Each waited for the other to speak. They have given their lives to my father's service, and I have repaid them with disgrace, Catelyn thought wearily. Are your sons, Sir Desmond said at last. Maester Vyman told us, the poor lads, terrible, terrible, but— We share your grief, my lady— said authorized Wayne. All Riveron mourns with you, but— The news must have driven you mad, Sir Desmond broke in. A madness of grief, a mother's madness. Men will understand. You did not know. I did, Catelyn said firmly. I understood what I was doing, and I knew it was treasonous. If you fail to punish me, men will believe that we connive together to free Jamie Lannister. It was mine own act, and mine alone, and I alone must answer for it. Put me in the Kingslayer's empty irons, and I will wear them proudly, 
if that is how it must be. Fetters! The very words seemed to shock poor Sir Desmond. For the king's mother, my lord's own daughter, oh, impossible. Mayhaps, said the steward, authorized Wayne, my lady would consent to be confined to her chambers until Sir Edmure returns, a time alone to pray for her murdered sons. Confined, I, Sir Desmond said, confined to a tower cell that would serve. If I am to be confined, let it be in my father's chambers, so I might comfort him in his last days. Sir Desmond considered for a moment. Very well. You shall lack no comfort nor courtesy, but freedom of the castle is denied you. Visit the sept as you need, but elsewise remain in Lord Huster's chambers until Lord Edmure returns. As you wish. Her brother was no lord while their father lived, but Catelyn did not correct him. Set a guard on me, if you must, but I give you my pledge that I shall attempt no escape. Sir Desmond nodded, plainly glad to be done with his distasteful task, but sad-eyed authorized Wayne lingered a moment after the Castellan took his leave. It was a great thing you did, my lady, but for naught. Sir Desmond has sent Sir Robin Riger after them to bring back the Kingslayer, or failing that, his head. Catelyn had expected no less. May the warrior give strength to your sword arm, Brian, she prayed. She had done all she could. Nothing remained but to hope. Her things were moved into her father's bedchamber, dominated by the great canopy bed she had been born in, its pillars carved in the shapes of leaping trout. Her father himself had been moved half a turn down the stair. His sickbed placed to face the triangular balcony that opened off his solar, from whence he could see the rivers that he had always loved so well. Lord Huster was sleeping when Catelyn entered. She went out to the balcony and stood with one hand on the rough stone balustrade. Beyond the point of the castle, the swift tumblestone joined the placid red fork, and she could see a long way down river. If a striped sail comes from the east, it will be Sir Robin returning. For a moment the surface of the water was empty. She thanked the gods for that, and went back inside to sit with her father. Catelyn could not say if Lord Huster knew she was there, or if her presence brought him any comfort, but it gave her solace to be with him. What would you say if you knew my crime, father? She wondered. Would you have done as I did, if it were Lysa and me in the hands of our enemies? Or would you condemn me too, and call it mother's madness? There was a smell of death about that room, a heavy smell, sweet and foul, clinging. It reminded her of the son she had lost, a sweet bran and a little Rickon, slain at the hand of Theon Greyjoy, who had been Ned's ward. She still grieved for Ned. She would always grieve for Ned, but to have her babies taken as well. It is a monstrous, cruel thing to lose a child. She whispered softly, more to herself than to her father. Lord Huster's eyes opened. Kenzie, he husked in a voice thick with pain. He does not know me. Catelyn had grown accustomed to him, taking her for her mother or her sister Lysa, but Tansy was a name strange to her.
It's Catelyn, she said. It's Cat, father. Forgive me the blood. Oh, please, Tansy. Could there have been another woman in her father's life, some village maiden he had wronged when he was young, perhaps? Could he have found comfort in some serving wench's arms after mother died? It was a queer thought, unsettling. Suddenly she felt as though she had not known her father at all. Who is Tansy, my lord? Do you want me to send for her father? Where would I find the woman? Does she still live? Lord Hoster groaned. Dead. His hand groped for hers. You will have others, sweet babes, and true-born. Others? Catelyn thought. Has he forgotten that Ned is gone? Is he still talking to Tansy? Or is it me now, or Lysa, or Mother? When he coughed, the sputum came up bloody. He clutched her fingers. Be a good wife, and the gods will bless you. Sons, true-born sons. <laughs> a sudden spasm of pain made Lord Huster's hand tighten. His nails dug into her hand, and he gave a muffled scream. Maester Vyman came quickly to mix another dose of milk of the puppy, and help his lord swallow it down. Soon enough, Lord Huster Tully had fallen back into a heavy sleep. He was asking after a woman, said Cat. Tansy. Tansy? The maester looked at her blankly. You know no one by that name? A serving girl? A woman from some nearby village? Perhaps someone from years past? Catelyn had been gone from River Run for a very long time. No, my lady, I can make inquiries if you like. Authorized Wayne would surely know if any such person ever served at River Run. Tansy, did you say? The small folk often name their daughters after flowers and herbs. The maester looked thoughtful. There was a widow, I recall. She used to come to the castle looking for old shoes in need of new soles. Her name was Tansy, now that I think on it. Or was it Pansy? Some such. But she has not come for many years. Her name was Violet, said Catelyn, who remembered the old woman very well. Was it? The maester looked apologetic. My pardons, Lady Catelyn, but I may not stay. Sir Desmond has decreed that we are to speak to you only so far as our duties require. Then you must do as he commands. Catelyn could not blame Sir Desmond. She had given him small reason to trust her, and no doubt he feared that she might use the loyalty that many of the folk of River Run would still feel towards their lord's daughter to work some further mischief. I am free of the ward, at least, she told herself, if only for a little while. After the maester had gone, she donned a woolen cloak and stepped out onto the balcony once more. Sunlight shimmered on the rivers, gilding the surface of the waters as they rolled past the castle. Catelyn shaded her eyes against the glare, searching for a distant sail, dreading the sight of one. But there was nothing, and nothing meant that her hopes were still alive. All that day she watched and well into the night, until her legs ached from the standing. 
A raven came to the castle in late afternoon, flapping down on great black wings to the rookery. Dark wings, dark words, she thought, remembering the last bird that had come and the hurry it had brought. Maester Vyman returned at evenfall to minister to Lord Tully and bring Catelyn a modest supper of bread, cheese, and boiled beef with horseradish. I, I spoke to Usserise Wayne, my lady, is quite certain that no woman by the name of Dunsey has ever been at River Run during his service. There was a raven today, I saw. Has Jamie been taken again? Or slain? Gods forbid. No, my lady, we've had no word of the Kingsley yet. Is it another battle, then? Is Edmure in difficulty? Or Rob? Please be kind. Put my fears at rest. My lady, I should not... Uh... Vyman glanced about, as if to make certain no one else was in the room. Lord Tywin has left the Riverlands. All's quiet on the fords. Whence came the raven, then? From the west, he answered, busying himself with Lord Huster's bedclothes and avoiding her eyes. Was it news of Rob? He hesitated. Yes, my lady. Something is wrong. She knew it from his manner. He was hiding something from her. Tell me, is it Rob? Is he hurt? Not dead. Gods be good. Please do not tell me that he is dead. His grace took a wound, storming the crag, Maester Vyman said, still evasive, but writes that it is no cause for concern and that he hopes to return soon. A wound? What sort of wound? How serious? No cause for concern, he writes. All wounds concern me. Is he being cared for? I'm certain of it. The maester at the crag will tend him, I have no doubt. Where was he wounded? My lady, I'm commanded not to speak with you. I am sorry. Gathering up his potions, Vyman made a hurried exit, and once again Catelyn was left alone with her father. The milk of the poppy had done its work, and Lord Huster was sunk in deep sleep. A thin line of spittle ran down from one corner of his open mouth to dampen his pillow. Catelyn took a square of linen and wiped it away gently. When she touched him, Lord Huster moaned, "'Forgive me,' he said so softly she could scarcely hear the words. Tensy, blood, the blood, gods be kind. His words disturbed her more than she could say, though she could make no sense of them. Blood, she thought. Must it all come back to blood? Father, who was this woman? And what did you do to her that needs so much forgiveness? That night... Catelyn slept fitfully, haunted by formless dreams of her children, the lost and the dead. Well before the break of day, she woke with her father's words echoing in her ears, sweet babes and trueborn. Why would he say that, unless... Could he have fathered a bastard on this woman, Tansy? She could not believe it. Her brother, Edmure, yes... It would not have surprised her to learn that Edmure had a dozen natural children. But not her father, not Lord Huster Tully, never. Could Tansy be some pet name he called Lysa, the way he called me Cat? 
Lord Huster had mistaken her for her sister before. You'll have others, he said, sweet babes and true-born. Lysa had miscarried five times, twice in the Airy, thrice at King's Landing, but never at River Run, where Lord Huster would have been at hand to comfort her. Never, unless... unless she was with child that first time. She and her sister had been married on the same day, and left in their father's care when their new husbands had ridden off to rejoin Robert's rebellion. Afterward, when their moonblood did not come at the accustomed time, Lysa had gushed happily of the son she was certain they carried. Your son will be heir to Winterfell and mine to the Airy. Oh, they'll be the best of friends like your Ned and Lord Robert. There'll be more brothers and cousins, truly, I just know it. She was so happy. But Lysa's blood had come not long after, and all the joy had gone out of her. Catelyn had always thought that Lysa had simply been a little late. But if she had been with child. She remembered the first time she gave her sister Rob to hold, small, red-faced and squalling, but strong even then, full of life. No sooner had Catelyn placed the babe in her sister's arms than Lysa's face dissolved into tears. Hurriedly, she had thrust the baby back at Catelyn and fled. If she had lost a child before, that might explain father's words, and much else besides. Lysa's match with Lord Aaron had been hastily arranged, and John was an old man even then, older than their father. An old man without an heir. His first two wives had left him childless. His brother's son had been murdered with Brandon Stark in King's Landing. His gallant cousin had died in the Battle of the Bells. He needed a young wife, if House Aaron was to continue. A young wife, known to be fertile. Catelyn rose, threw on a robe, and descended the steps to the darkened solar to stand over her father. A sense of helpless dread filled her. Father, she said. Father, I know what you did. She was no longer an innocent bride with a head full of dreams. She was a widow, a traitor, a grieving mother, and wise, wise in the ways of the world. You made him take her, she whispered. Lysa was the price John Aaron had to pay for the swords and spears of House Tully. Small wonder her sister's marriage had been so loveless. The Aarons were proud and prickly of their honour. Lord John might wed Lysa to bind the Tullys to the cause of the rebellion and in the hopes of a son, but it would have been hard for him to love a woman who came to his bed soiled and unwilling. He would have been kind, no doubt, dutiful, yes, but Lysa needed warmth. The next day, as she broke her fast, Catelyn asked for quill and paper, and began a letter to her sister in the Vale of Aaron. She told Lysa of Bran and Rickon, struggling with the words, but mostly she wrote of their father. His thoughts are all of the wrong he did you, now that his time grows short. Maester Vimer says he dare not make the milk of the puppy any stronger. It is time for father to lay down his sword and shield. It is time for him to rest. Yet he fights on grimly, will not yield. 
It is for your sake, I think. He needs your forgiveness. The war has made the road from the Airy to River Run dangerous to travel, I know, but surely a strong force of knights could see you safely through the mountains of the moon? A hundred men or a thousand? And if you cannot come, will you not write him, at least, a few words of love, so he might die in peace? Write what you will, and I shall read it to him, and ease his way. Even as she set the quill aside and asked for sealing wax, Catelyn sensed that the letter was like to be too little and too late. Mr. Vyman did not believe Lord Huster would linger long enough for a raven to reach the airy and return, though he has said much the same before. Tullyman did not surrender easily, no matter the odds. After she entrusted the parchment to the maester's care, Catelyn went to the sept and lit a candle to the father above for her own father's sake, a second to the crone who had let the first raven into the world when she appeared through the door of death, and a third to the mother for Lysa and all the children they had both lost. Later that day, as she sat at Lord Huster's bedside with a book, reading the same passage over and over, she heard the sound of loud voices and a trumpet's blare. Sir Robin, she thought at once, flinching. She went to the balcony. There was nothing to be seen out on the rivers, but she could hear the voices more clearly from outside, the sound of many horses, the clink of armor, and here and there a cheer. Catelyn made her way up the winding stairs to the roof of the keep. Sir Desmond did not forbid me the roof, she told herself as she climbed. The sounds were coming from the far side of the castle, by the main gate. A knot of men stood before the portcullis as it rose in jerks and starts, and in the field beyond, outside the castle, were several hundred riders. When the wind blew, it lifted their banners, and she trembled in relief at the sight of the leaping trout of River Run. Edmure. It was two hours before he saw fit to come to her. By then the castle rang to the sound of noisy reunions, as men embraced the women and children they had left behind. Three ravens had risen from the rookery, black wings beating at the air as they took flight. Catelyn watched them from her father's balcony. She had washed her hair, changed her clothes, and prepared herself for her brother's reproaches, but even so, the waiting was hard. When at last she heard sounds outside her door, she sat and folded her hands in her lap. Dried red mud spattered Edmure's boots, greaves, and surcoat. To look at him, you would never know he had won his battle. He was thin and drawn, with pale cheeks, unkempt beard, and two bright eyes. Edmure, Catelyn said, worried, you look unwell. Has something happened? Have the Lannisters crossed the river? I threw them back. Lord Tywin, Gregor Clegane, Adam Marbrand, I turned them away. Stannis, though, he grimaced. Stannis? What of Stannis? He lost the battle at King's Landing, Edmure said unhappily. His fleet was burned, his army routed. A Lannister victory was ill tidings, but Catelyn could not share her brother's obvious dismay. She still had nightmares about the shadow she had seen slide across Renly's tent 
and the way the blood had come flowing out through the steel of his gorget. Stannis was no more a friend than Lord Tywin. He do not understand. Haygarden has declared for Joffrey, Doran as well, all the south. His mouth tightened. And you see fit to loose the Kingslayer? You had no right. I had a mother's right. The voice was calm, though the news about Highgarden was a savage blow to Rob's hopes. She could not think about that now, though. No right, Edmure repeated. He was Rob's captive, yet King's captive, and Rob charged me to keep him safe. Brian will keep him safe. She swore it on her sword. Ach, that woman! She will deliver Jamie to King's Landing and bring Arya and Sansa back to us safely. Cersei will never give them up. Not Cersei, Tyrion. He swore it in open court, and the Kingslayer swore it as well. Jamie's word is worthless. As for the imp, it said he took an axe in the head during the battle. He'll be dead before your brain reaches King's Landing, if she ever does. Dead? Could the gods truly be so merciless? She had made Jamie swear a hundred oaths, but it was his brother's promise she had pinned her hopes on. Edmure was blind to her distress. Jamie was my charge, and I mean to have him back. I've sent ravens. Ravens? To whom? How many? Three, he answered. So the message will be certain to reach Lord Bolton. By river or road, the way from River Run to King's Landing must needs take them close by Harrenhal. Harrenhal? The very words seemed to darken the room. Horror thickened her voice as she said, Edmure, do you know what you have done? Have no fear. I left your part out. I wrote that Jamie had escaped, and offered a thousand dragons for his recapture. Worse and worse, Catelyn thought, in despair. My brother's a fool. Unbidden, unwanted, tears filled her eyes. If this was an escape, she said softly, and not an exchange of hostages, why should the Lannisters give my daughters to Brian? It will never come to that. The Kingslayer will be returned to us. I have made certain of it. All you have made certain is that I shall never see my daughters again. Brian might have gotten him to King's Landing safely, so long as no one was hunting for them. But now... Catelyn could not go on. Leave me, Edmure. She had no right to command him, here in the castle that would soon be his, yet her tone would brook no argument. Leave me to father and my grief. I have no more to say to you. Go! Go! All she wanted was to lie down, to close her eyes, and sleep, and pray no dreams would come. Aria. The sky was as black as the walls of Harrenhal behind them, and the rain fell soft and steady, muffling the sound of their horses' hooves and running down their faces. They rode north, away from the lake, following a rutted farm road across the torn fields and into the woods and streams. Arya took the lead, kicking her stolen horse to a brisk, heedless trot until the trees closed in around her. Hot Pie and Gendry followed as best they could. 
Wolves howled in the distance, and she could hear Hot Pie's heavy breathing. No one spoke. From time to time, Aria glanced over her shoulder to make sure the two boys had not fallen too far behind, and to see if they were being pursued. They would be, she knew. She had stolen three horses from the stables and a map and a dagger from Roose Bolton's own solar, and killed a guard on the postern gate, slitting his throat when he knelt to pick up the worn iron coin that Jake and Hagar had given her. Someone would find him lying dead in his own blood, and then the hue and cry would go up. They would wake Lord Bolton and search Haddon Hell from Crenel to Cellar, and when they did they would find the map and the dagger missing, along with some swords from the armory, bread and cheese from the kitchens, a baker boy, a prentice smith, and a cup-bearer called Nan, or Weasel, or Arry, depending on who you asked. The Lord of the Dreadfort would not come after them himself. Roos Bolton would stay abed, his pasty flesh dotted with leeches, giving commands in his whispery, soft voice. His man Walton might lead the hunt, the one they call Steelshanks, for the greaves he always wore on his long legs. Or perhaps it would be slobbery Vargo Holt and his sellswords, who named themselves the Brave Companions. Others called them Bloody Mummers, though never to their faces, and sometimes the Footmen, for Lord Vargo's habit of cutting off the hands and feet of men who displeased him. If they catch us, he'll cut off our hands and feet, Aria thought, and then Roose Bolton will peel the skin off us. She was still dressed in her page's garb, and on the breast over her heart was sewn Lord Bolton's sigil, the flayed man of the Dreadfort. Every time she looked back, she half expected to see a blaze of torches pouring out of the distant gates of Harrenhal, or rushing along the tops of its huge high walls. But there was nothing. Harrenhal slept on, until it was lost in darkness and hidden behind the trees. When they crossed the first stream, Arya turned her horse aside and led them off the road, following the twisting course of the water for a quarter mile, before finally scrambling out and up a stony bank. If the hunters brought dogs, that might throw them off the scent, she hoped. They could not stay on the road. There is death on the road, she told herself. Death on all the roads. Gendry and Hot Pie did not question her choice. She had the map, after all, and Hot Pie seemed almost as terrified of her as of the men who might be coming after them. He had seen the guard she'd killed. It's better if he's scared of me, she told herself. That way he'll do like I say instead of something stupid. She should be more frightened herself, she knew. She was only ten, a skinny girl on a stolen horse with a dark forest ahead of her, and men behind who had gladly cut off her feet. Yet somehow she felt calmer than she ever had in Harrenhal. The rain had washed the guard's blood off her fingers. She wore a sword across her back. Wolves were prowling through the dark, like lean grey shadows, and Arya Stark was unafraid. Fear cuts deeper than swords, she whispered under her breath, the words that Sirio Pharrell had taught her, and Jakin's words too, Velar Morgullus. The rain stopped and started again, and stopped once more, and started, but they had good cloaks to keep the water off. Arya kept them moving, 
at a slow, steady pace. It was too black beneath the trees to ride any faster. The boys were no horsemen, neither one, and the soft broken ground was treacherous with half-buried roots and hidden stones. They crossed another road, its deep ruts filled with runoff, but Arya shunned it. Up and down the rolling hill she took them, through brambles and briars and tangles of underbrush, along the bottoms of narrow gullies where branches heavy with wet leaves slapped at their faces as they passed. Gendry's mare lost her footing in the mud once, going down hard on her hindquarters and spilling him from the saddle, but neither horse nor rider was hurt, and Gendry got that stubborn look on his face and mounted right up again. Not long after, they came upon three wolves devouring the corpse of a fawn. When Hot Pie's horse caught the scent, he shied and bolted. Two of the wolves fled as well, but the third raised his head and bared his teeth prepared to defend his kill. Back off, Arya told Gendry. Slow, so you don't spook him. They edged their mounts away until the wolf and his feast were no longer in sight. Only then did she swing about to ride after Hot Pie, who was clinging desperately to the saddle as he crashed through the trees. Later they passed through a burned village, threading their way carefully between the shells of blackened hobbles and past the bones of a dozen dead men hanging from a row of apple trees. When Hot Pie saw them, he began to pray, a thin, whispered plea for the mother's mercy, repeated over and over. Arya looked up at the fleshless dead in their wet, rotting clothes and said her own prayer. Sir Gregor, it went, Dunson, Polliver, Raph the Sweetling, the Tickler and the Hound, Sir Ilian, Sir Merrin, King Joffrey, Queen Cersei. She ended it with Velar Morgullus, touched Jacob's coin where it nestled under her belt, and then reached up and plucked an apple from among the dead men as she rode beneath them. It was mushy and overripe, but she ate it, worms and all. That was the day without a dawn. Slowly the sky lightened around them, but they never saw the sun. Black turned to grey, and colours crept timidly back into the world. The soldier pines were dressed in sombre greens, the broad leaves in russets and faded golds, already beginning to brown. They stopped long enough to water the horses and eat a cold, quick breakfast, ripping apart a loaf of bread that Hot Pie had stolen from the kitchens and passing chunks of hard yellow cheese from hand to hand. "'Do you know where we're going?' Gendry asked her. "'North,' said Arya. Hot Pie peered around uncertainly. "'Which way is north?' She used her cheese to point. That way. But there's no sun. How do you know? From the moss. See how it grows mostly on one side of the trees? That's south. What do we want in the north? Gendry wanted to know. The trident. Arya unrolled the stolen map to show them. See, once we reach the trident, all we need to do is follow it upstream till we come to River Run. Here. Her finger traced the path. It's a long way, but we can't get lost so long as we keep to the river. Hot Pie blinked at the map. Which one is River Run? River Run was painted as a castle tower 
in the fork between the flowing blue lines of two rivers, the Tumblestone and the Red Fork. There, she touched it. River Run, it reads. You can read writing, he said to her, wonderingly, as if she said she could walk on water. She nodded. We'll be safe once we reach River Run. We will? Why? Because River Run is my grandfather's castle and my brother Rub will be there, she wanted to say. She bit her lip and rolled up the map. We just will, but only if we get there. She was the first one back in the saddle. It made her feel bad to hide the truth from Hot Pie, but she did not trust him with her secret. Gendry knew, but that was different. Gendry had his own secret, though even he didn't seem to know what it was. That day Arya quickened their pace, keeping the horses to a trot as long as she dared, and sometimes spurring to a gallop when she spied a flat stretch of field before them. That was seldom enough, though. The ground was growing hillier as they went. The hills were not high nor especially steep, but there seemed to be no end of them, and they soon grew tired of climbing up one and down the other and found themselves following the lay of the land along stream beds, and through a maze of shallow wooded valleys where the trees made a solid canopy overhead. From time to time she sent Hot Pie and Gentry on while she doubled back to try to confuse their trail, listening all the while for the first sign of pursuit. Too slow, she thought to herself, chewing her lip. We're going too slow. They'll catch us for certain. Once from the crest of a ridge, she spied dark shapes crossing a stream in the valley behind them, and for half a heartbeat she feared that Roos Bolton's riders were on them. But when she looked again, she realized they were only a pack of wolves. She cupped her hands around her mouth and howled down at them. Oh-ho! Oh-ho! When the loudest of the wolves lifted its head and howled back, the sound made Arya shiver. By midday, Hot Pie had begun to complain. His ass was sore, he told them, and the saddle was rubbing him raw inside his legs, and besides, he had to get some sleep. I'm so tired, I'm going to fall off the horse. Ari looked at Gentry. If he falls off, who do you think will find him first, the wolves or the mummers? Oh, the wolves, said Gentry. Better noses. Hot Pie opened his mouth and closed it. He did not fall off his horse. The rain began a short time later. They still had not seen so much as a glimpse of the sun. It was growing colder, and pale white mists were threading between the pines and blowing across the bare, burned fields. Gendry was having almost as bad a time of it as Hot Pie, although he was too stubborn to complain. He sat awkwardly in the saddle, a determined look on his face beneath his shaggy black hair, but Arya could tell he was no horseman. I should have remembered, she thought to herself. She had been riding as long as she could remember, ponies when she was little, and later horses. But Gendry and Hot Pie were city-born, and in the city small folk walked. Yoren had given them mounts when he took them from King's Landing, but sitting on a donkey and plodding up the King's Road behind a wagon was one thing. Guiding a hunting horse through wild woods and burn fields was something else. She would make much better time on her own, Arya knew, but she could not leave them.
They were her pack, her friends, the only living friends that remained to her, and if not for her, they would still be safe at Harrenhal. Gendry, sweating at his forge and hot pie in his kitchens. If the mummers catch us, I'll tell them that I'm Ned Stark's daughter and sister to the king in the north. I'll command them to take me to my brother and to do no harm to hot pie and Gendry. They might not believe her, though, and even if they did, Lord Bolton was her brother's bannerman, but he frightened her all the same. I won't let them take us, she vowed silently, reaching back over her shoulder to touch the hilt of the sword that Gentry had stolen for her. I won't. Late that afternoon, they emerged from beneath the trees and found themselves on the banks of a river. Hot Pie gave a whoop of delight. The trident! Now all we have to do is go upstream like you said. We're almost there. Arya chewed her lip. I don't think this is the trident. The river was swollen by the rain, but even so, it couldn't be much more than thirty feet across. She remembered the trident as being much wider. It's too little to be the trident, she told them, and we didn't come far enough. Yes, we did, Hot Pie insisted. We rode all day and hardly stopped at all. We must have come a long way. Let's have a look at that map again, said Gendry. Arya dismounted, took out the map, unrolled it. The rain pattered against the sheepskin and ran off in rivulets. We're some place here, I think, she said, pointing as the boys peered over her shoulders. But, said Hot Pie, that's hardly any ways at all. See, Aaron Hall's there by your finger. You're almost touching it. And we rode all day. There's miles and miles before we reach the Trident, she said. We won't be there for days. This must be some different river. One of these, see? She showed them some of the thinner blue lines the map maker had painted in, each with a name painted in fine script beneath it. The Derry, the Green Apple, the Maiden, here, this one, the Little Willow, it might be that. Hot Pie looked from the line to the river. It doesn't look so little to me. Gendry was frowning as well. The one you're pointing at runs into that other one, see? The Big Willow, she read. The Big Willow, then, see? And the Big Willow runs into the Trident, so we could follow the one to the other. But we need to go downstream, not up. Only if this river isn't the Little Willow, if it's this other one here. Ripple down rill. Aria read. See, it loops around and flows down toward the lake, back to Harrenhal. He traced the line with a finger. Hot Pie's eyes grew wide. No, they'll kill us for sure. We have to know which river this is, declared Gendry in his stubbornest voice. We have to know. Well, we don't. The map might have names written beside the blue lines, but no one had written a name on the riverbank. We won't go up or downstream, she decided, rolling up the map. We'll cross and keep going north, like we were. Can horses swim? asked Hot Pie. It looks deep, Harry. What if there are snakes? Are you sure we're going north? asked Gendry. All these hills, if we got turned around, the moss on the trees. 
He pointed to a nearby tree. That tree's got moss on three sides, and the next one has no moss at all. We could be lost just riding around in a circle. We could be, said Arya, but I'm going to cross the river anyway. Now you can come, or you can stay here. She climbed back into the saddle, ignoring the both of them. If they didn't want to follow, they could find River on on their own, though more likely the mummers would just find them. She had to ride a good half-mile along the bank before she finally found a place where it looked as though it might be safe to cross, and even then her mare was reluctant to enter the water. The river, whatever its name, was running brown and fast, and the deep part in the middle came up past the horse's belly. Water filled her boots, but she pressed her heels in all the same and climbed out on the far bank. From behind she heard splashing and a mare's nervous whinny. They followed then. Good. She turned to watch as the boy struggled across and emerged dripping beside her. It wasn't a trident, she told them. It wasn't. The next river was shallower and easier to ford. That one wasn't the trident either, and no one argued with her when she told them they would cross it. Dusk was settling as they stopped to rest the horses once more and share another meal of bread and cheese. I'm cold and wet, Hot Pie complained. We're a long way from Harrenhal now, for sure. We could have us a fire. No, Arya and Gendry both said at the exact same instant. Hot Pie quailed a little. Arya gave Gendry a sideways look. He said it with me like John used to do, back in Winterfell. She missed Jon Snow, the most of all her brothers. Could we sleep, at least? Hot Pie asked. I'm so tired, Harry, and my arse is sore. I think I've got blisters. You'll have more than that if you're caught, she said. We've got to keep going, we've got to. But it's almost dark, and you can't even see the moon. Get back on your horse. Plodding along at a slow walking pace as the light faded around them, Arya found her own exhaustion weighing heavy on her. She needed sleep as much as hot pie, but they dare not. If they slept, they might open their eyes to find Vargo Hote standing over them, with Shagwell the Fool, and Faithful Erswick, and Rorg, and Biter, and Septon Ut, and all his other monsters. Yet after a while, the motion of her horse became as soothing as the rocking of a cradle, and Arya found her eyes growing heavy. She let them close just for an instant, then snapped them wide again. I can't go to sleep, she screamed at herself silently. I can't, I can't. She knuckled at her eye and rubbed it hard to keep it open, clutching the reins tightly and kicking her mount to a canter. But neither she nor the horse could sustain the pace, and it was only a few moments before they fell back to a walk again, and a few more until her eyes closed a second time. This time they did not open quite so quickly. When they did, she found that a horse had come to a stop and was nibbling at a tuft of grass, while Gentry was shaking her arm. You fell asleep, he told her. I was just resting my eyes. You were resting them a long while, then. Your horse was wandering in a circle— and it wasn't till he stopped that I realized you were sleeping. 
Up pie's just as bad. He rode into a tree limb and got knocked off. You should have heard him yell. Even that didn't wake you up. You need to stop and sleep. I can keep going as long as you can, she yawned. Liar, he said. You keep going if you want to be stupid, but I'm stopping. I'll take the first watch. You sleep. What about hot pie? Jendry pointed. Hot pie was already on the ground, curled up beneath his cloak, on a bed of damp leaves and snoring softly. He had a big wedge of cheese in one fist, but it looked as though he had fallen asleep between bites. It was no good arguing, Arya realized. Gendry had the right of it. The mummers will need to sleep too, she told herself, hoping it was true. She was so weary it was a struggle even to get down from the saddle, but she remembered to hobble a horse before finding a place beneath a beech tree. The ground was hard and damp. She wondered how long it would be before she slept in a bed again with hot food and a fire to warm her. The last thing she did before closing her eyes was unsheathe her sword and lay it down beside her. Sir Gregor, she whispered, yawning, Dunson, Poliver, Raffa Sweetling, the Tickler, the Tickler, the Hound. Her dreams were red and savage. The mummers were in them, four at least, a pale Lyseni and a dark, brutal axeman from Ib, the scarred Dothraki horse lord called Igo, and a Dornishman whose name she never knew. On and on they came, riding through the rain, in rusting mail and wet leather, swords and axe clanking against their saddles. They thought they were hunting her. She knew with all the strange, sharp certainty of dreams, but they were wrong. She was hunting them. She was no little girl in her dream. She was a wolf, huge and powerful, and when she emerged from beneath the trees in front of them and bared her teeth in a low, rumbling growl, she could smell the rank stench of fear from horse and man alike. The Lysenes mount reared and screamed in terror, and the others shouted at one another in man-talk, but before they could act, the other wolves came hurtling from the darkness and the rain, a great pack of them, gaunt and wet and silent. The fight was short but bloody. The hairy man went down as he unslung his axe. The dark one died, stringing an arrow, and the pale man from Lice tried to bolt. Her brothers and sisters ran him down, turning him again and again, coming at him from all sides, snapping at the legs of his horse, and tearing the throat from the rider when he came crashing to the earth. Only the belled man stood his ground. His horse kicked in the head of one of her sisters, and he cut another almost in half with his curved, silvery claw as his hair tinkled softly. Filled with rage, she leapt onto his back, knocking him head first from his saddle. Her jaws locked on his arm as they fell, her teeth sinking through the leather and wool and soft flesh. When they landed, she gave a savage jerk with her head and ripped the limb loose from his shoulder. Exulting! She shook it back and forth in her mouth, scattering the warm red droplets amidst the cold black rain. Tyrion He woke to the creak of old iron hinges. Oh! he croaked, 
At least he had his voice back, raw and hoarse though it was. The fever was still on him, and Tyrion had no notion of the hour. How long had he slept this time? He was so weak, so damnably weak. Who? He called again, more loudly. Torchlight spilled through the open door, but within the chamber the only light came from the stub of a candle beside his bed. When he saw a shape moving toward him, Tyrion shivered. Here in Magor's Holdfast, every servant was in the Queen's pay. So any visitor might be another of Cersei's cat's paws, sent to finish the work Sir Mandon had begun. Then the man stepped into the candlelight, got a good look at the dwarf's pale face, and chortled. <laughs> Cut yourself shaving, did ye? Tyrion's fingers went to the great gash that ran from above one eye down to his jaw, across what remained of his nose. The proud flesh was still raw and warm to the touch. With a fearful big razor, yes. Bronze coal-black hair was freshly washed, and brushed straight back from the hard lines of his face. He was dressed in high boots of soft tool leather, a wide belt studded with nuggets of silver, and a cloak of pale green silk. Across the dark grey wool of his doublet, a burning chain was embroidered diagonally in bright green thread. "'Where have you been?' Tyrion demanded of him. "'I sent for you. It must have been a fortnight ago.' Four days ago, more like.' the sellsword said, and I've been here twice, and found you dead to the world. Not dead, though my sweet sister did try. Perhaps he should not have said that aloud, but Tyrion was past caring. Cersei was behind Sir Manda's attempt to kill him. He knew that in his gut. What's that ugly thing on your chest? Bronn grinned. My knightly sigil. A flaming chain, green, on a smoke-gray field. By your lord father's command, I'm Sir Bronn of the Blackwater now, imp. See you don't forget it. Tyrion put his hands on the feather bed and squirmed back a few inches against the pillars. I was the one who promised you knighthood, remember? He'd like that by your lord father's command, not at all. Lord Tywin had wasted little time. Moving his son from the tower of the hand to claim it for himself was a message anyone could read, and this was another. I lose half my nose, and you gain a knighthood. The gods have a deal to answer for. His voice was sour. Did my father dub you himself? No. Them of us as survived the fight at the Winch Towers got ourselves dabbed by the High Septon and dubbed by the King's Guard. Took half the bloody day with only three of the white swords left to do the honours. I knew Sir Mandan died in the battle, shoved into the river by Pud, half a heartbeat before the treacherous bastard could drive his sword through my heart. Who else was lost? The hound, said Bronn, not dead, only gone. The gold cloak say he turned craven, and you led a sortie in his place. Not one of my better notions, Tyrion could feel the scar tissue pull tight when he frowned. He waved Bronn toward a chair. My sister's mistaken me for a mushroom. She keeps me in the dark and feeds me shit. Pud's a good lad, but the nut in his tongue is the size of Castle Rock, and I don't trust half of what he tells me. I sent him to bring Sir Jocelyn, 
and he came back and told me he's dead. Him and thousands more, Bronze said. How? Tyrion demanded, feeling that much sicker. During the battle, your sister sent the Kettleblacks to fetch the king back to the Red Keep, the way I hear it. When the gold cloaks saw him leaving, half of them decided they'd leave with him. Iron Hand put himself in their path and tried to order them back to the walls. They say Bywater was blistering them good and almost had them ready to turn when someone put an arrow through his neck. He didn't seem so fearsome then, so they dragged him off his horse and killed him. Another de Tullets has his door. My nephew, he said, Joffrey, was he in any danger? No more than some, and less than most. Had he suffered any harm, taken a wound, mussed his hair, stubbed his toe, cracked a nail? Not as I heard. I warned Cersei what would happen. Who commands the gold cloaks now? Your lord father's given them to one of his westermen, some knight named Adam Marbrand. In most cases, the gold cloaks would have resented having an outsider placed over them. But Sir Adam Marbrand was a shrewd choice. Like Jamie, he was the sort of man other men liked to follow. I have lost the city watch. I sent Pod looking for Shagar, but he's had no luck. The stone crows are still in the king's wood. Shagger seems to have taken a fancy to the place. Timmet led the burn men home with all the plunder they took from Stannis's camp after the fighting. Chella turned up with a dozen black ears at the river gate one morning, but your father's red cloaks chased them off, while the king's landers threw dung and cheered. Ingrates, the black ears died for them. Whilst Tyrion lay drugged and dreaming, his own blood had pulled his claws out one by one. I want you to go to my sister. Her precious son made it through the battle unscathed. So Cersei has no more need of a hostage. She swore to free Alayaya once. She did. Eight, nine days ago. After the whipping. Tyrion shoved himself up higher, ignoring the sudden stab of pain through his shoulder. Whipping? They tied her to a post in the yard and scourged her then shoved her out of the gate, naked and bloody. She was learning to read, Tyrion thought absurdly. Across his face the scar stretched tight, and for a moment it felt as though his head would burst with rage. Alayaya was a whore, true enough, but a sweeter, braver, more innocent girl he had seldom met. Tyrion had never touched her. She had been no more than a veil to hide Shay. In his carelessness, he had never thought what that role might cost her. I promised my sister I would treat Tommen as she treated Alayaya, he remembered aloud. He felt as though he might retch. How can I scourge an eight-year-old boy? But if I don't, Cersei wins. You don't have Tommen, Bronn said bluntly. Once she learned the Iron Hand was dead... The Queen sent the Kettleblacks after him, and no one at Rosby had the balls to say them nay. Another blow. Yet a relief as well, he must admit it. He was fond of Tommen. The Kettleblacks were supposed to be ours, he reminded Bronn, with more than a touch of irritation. They were, so long as I could give them two of your pennies for every one they had from the Queen. 
but now she's raised the stakes. Osney and Offrey were made knights after the battle, same as me. Gods know what for. No one saw them do any fighting. My hirelings betray me. My friends are scourged and shamed, and I lie here, rutting, Tyrion thought. I thought I won the bloody battle. Is this what triumph is like? Is it true that Stannis was put to rout by Renly's ghost? Bronn smiled thinly. From the winch towers, all we saw was banners in the mud and men throwing down their spears to run. But there's hundreds in the pot shops and brothels who'll tell you as how they saw Lord Renly kill this one or that one. Most of Stannis's host had been Renly's to start, and they went right back over at the sight of him in that shiny green armour. After all his planning, after the sortie and the bridge of ships, after getting his face slashed in two, Tyrion had been eclipsed by a dead man. If indeed Renly is dead, something else he would need to look into. How did Stannis escape? His Lyosennes kept their galleys out in the bay beyond your chain. When the battle turned bad, they put in along the bay shore and took off as many as they could. Men were killing each other to get aboard. Toward the end... What of Rob Stark? What has he been doing? There's some of his wolves burning their way down toward Duskendale. Your father's sending this Lord Tarly to sort them out. I'd have a mind to join him. It's said he's a good soldier and open-handed with a plunder. The thought of losing Bronn was the final straw. No, your place is here. You're the captain of the Hand's Guard. You're not the Hand. Bronn reminded him sharply. Your father is, and he's got his own bloody guard. What happened to all the men you hired for me? Some died at the winch towers. That uncle of yours, said Kevin, he paid the rest of us and tossed us out. How good of him, Tyrion said acidly. Does that mean you've lost your taste for gold? Not bloody likely. Good, said Tyrion, because as it happens, I still have need of you. What do you know of Sir Mandon Moore? Bronn laughed. I know he's bloody well drowned. I owe him a great debt, but how to pay it? He touched his face, feeling the scar. I know precious little of the man, if truth be told. He had eyes like a fish, and he wore a white cloak. What else do you need to know? Everything, said Tyrion, for a start. What he wanted was proof that Sir Mandon had been Cersei's but he dare not say so aloud. In the Red Keep, a man did best to hold his tongue. There were rats in the walls and little birds who talked too much, and spiders. Help me up, he said, struggling with the bedclothes. It's time I paid a call on my father, and past time I let myself be seen again. Such a pretty sight, mocked Bronn. What's half a nose on a face like mine? But speaking of pretty... Is Marjorie Tyrell in King's Landing yet? No, she's coming, though, and the city's mad with love for her. The Tyrells have been carting food up from High Garden and giving it away in her name. Hundreds of wains every day. There's thousands of Tyrell men swaggering about with little golden roses sewn on their doublets, and not a one is buying his own wine. 
wife, widow, or whore, the women are all giving up their virtue to every peach fuzz boy with a gold rose in his tit. They spit on me and buy drinks for the Tyrells. Tyrion slid from the bed to the floor. His legs turned wobbly beneath him. The room spun, and he had to grasp Bronn's arm to keep from pitching headlong into the rushes. Pod, he shouted. Podrick Payne, where in seven hells are you? Payne gnawed at him like a toothless dog. Tyrion hated weakness, especially his own. It shamed him, and shame made him angry. Pod, get in here! The boy came running. When he saw Tyrion standing and clutching Bronn's arm, he gaped at him. My lord, you, you stood, is that, do you, do you need wine, dream wine? Shall I get the maester? He said you must stay abed, I mean. I have stayed abed too long. Bring me some clean garb. Garb? How the boy could be so clear-headed and resourceful in battle, and so confused at all other times, Tyrion could never comprehend. Clothing, he repeated, tunic, doublet, breeches, hose, for me to dress in, so I can leave this bloody cell. It took all three of them to clothe him. Hideous though his face might be, the worst of his wounds was the one at the juncture of shoulder and arm, where his own mail had been driven back into his armpit by an arrow. Pus and blood still seeped from the discoloured flesh whenever Maester Franken changed his dressing, and any movement sent a stab of agony through him. In the end, Tyrion settled for a pair of breeches and an oversized bedrobe that hung loosely about his shoulders. Bran yanked his boots onto his feet, while Pard went in search of a stick for him to lean on. He drank a cup of dream wine to fortify himself. The wine was sweetened with honey, with just enough of the puppy to make his wounds bearable for a time. Even so, he was dizzy by the time he turned the latch, and the descent down the twisting stone steps made his legs tremble. He walked with a stick in one hand and the other on Pod's shoulder. A serving girl was coming up as they were going down. She stared at them with wide, white eyes, as though she were looking at a ghost. The dwarf has risen from the dead, Tyrion thought. And look, he's uglier than ever. Run, tell your friends. Megar's Holdfast was the strongest place in the Red Keep, a castle within the castle, surrounded by a deep, dry moat lined with spikes. The drawbridge was up for the night when they reached the door. Sir Meryn Trant stood before it in his pale armour and white cloak. "'Lower the bridge,' Tyrion commanded him. "'The Queen's orders are to raise the bridge at night.' Sir Meryn had always been Cersei's creature. "'The Queen's asleep, and I have business with my father.' There was magic in the name of Lord Tywin Lannister. Grumlin, Sir Meryn Trant, gave the command, and the drawbridge was lowered. A second Kingsguard knight stood sentry across the moat. Sir Osmond Kettleblack managed to smile when he saw Tyrion waddling towards him. Feeling stronger, my lord? Much. When's the next battle? I can scarcely wait. When Pod and he reached the Serpentine Steps, however, Tyrion could only gape at them in dismay. I will never claim those by myself, he confessed to himself. Swallowing his dignity, he asked Bronn to carry him. 
hoping against hope that at this hour there would be no one to see and smile, no one to tell the tale of the dwarf being carried up the steps like a babe in arms. The outer ward was crowded with tents and pavilions, dozens of them. Tyrell men, Podrick Payne explained as they threaded their way through a maze of silk and canvas. Lord Rowan's too, and Lord Redwine's. There wasn't room enough for all. In the castle, I mean, some took rooms, rooms in the city, in inns and all. They're here for the wedding, the king's wedding, King Joffrey's. Will you be strong enough to attend, my lord? Ravening weasers could not keep me away. There was this to be said for weddings over battles, at least. It was less likely that someone would cut off your nose. Lights still burned dimly behind shuttered windows in the Tower of the Hand. The men on the door wore the crimson cloaks and lion-crested helms of his father's household guard. Tyrion knew them both, and they admitted him on sight, though neither could bear to look long at his face, he noted. Within they came upon Sir Adam Marbrand, descending the turnpike stair in the ornate black breastplate and cloth of gold cloak of an officer in the city watch. Oh, my lord, he said, ha, how good to see you on your feet. I heard rumors of a small grave being dug. Me too. Under the circumstances, it seemed best to get up. I hear your commander of the city watch. Shall I offer congratulations or condolences? Both, I fear, Sir Adam smiled. Death and desertion have left me with some forty-four hundred. Only the guards and Littlefinger know how we're going to go on paying wages for so many. But your sister forbids me to dismiss any. Still anxious, says he. The battle's done. The gold cloaks won't help you now. Do you come from my father? he asked. I, I fear I did not leave him in the best of moods. Lord Tywin feels forty-four hundred guardsmen more than sufficient to find one lost squire. But your cousin Tyrek remains missing. Tyrek was the son of his late uncle Tyget, a boy of thirteen. He had vanished in the riot, not long after wedding the Lady Ermacende a suckling babe who happened to be the last surviving heir of House Hayford, and likely the first bride in the history of the Seven Kingdoms to be widowed before she was weaned. I couldn't find him either, confessed Tyrion. He's feeding worms, said Bronn, with his usual tact. Arnhan looked for him, and the eunuch rattled a nice fat purse. They had no more luck than we did. Give it up, sir. Sir Adam gazed at the sail-sword with distaste. Lord Tywin is stubborn where his blood is concerned. He will have the lad alive or dead, and I mean to oblige him. He looked back to Tyrion. You will find your father in his solar. My solar, thought Tyrion. I believe I know the way. The way was up more steps, but this time he climbed under his own power with one hand on Pud's shoulder. Bran opened the door for him. Lord Tywin Lannister was seated beneath the window, writing by the glow of an oil lamp. He raised his eyes at the sound of the latch. Tyrion. Calmly, he laid his quill aside. 
I'm pleased you remember me, my lord. Tyrion released his grip on Pod, leaned his weight on the stick, and waddled closer. Something is wrong, he knew at once. Sir Bronn, Lord Tywin said, Podrick, perhaps you'd better wait without until we are done. The look Bronn gave the hand was little less than insolent. Nonetheless, he bowed and withdrew, with Pod on his heels. The heavy door swung shut behind them, and Tyrion Lannister was alone with his father. Even with the windows of the solar shuttered against the night, the chill in the room was palpable. What sort of lies has Cersei been telling him? The Lord of Castle Rock was as lean as a man twenty years younger, even handsome in his austere way. Stiff blonde whiskers covered his cheeks, framing a stern face, a bald head, a hard mouth. About his throat he wore a chain of golden hands, the fingers of each clasping the wrist of the next. That's handsome chain, Tyrion said, though it looked better on me. Lord Tywin ignored the sally. You had best be seated. Is it wise for you to be out of your sick bed? I am sick of my sick bed. Tyrion knew how much his father despised weakness. He claimed the nearest chair. Such pleasant chambers you have. Would you believe it? While I was dying, someone moved me to a dark little cell in Magor's. The red cape is overcrowded with wedding guests. Once they depart, we will find you more suitable accommodations. I rather like these accommodations. Have you set a date for this great wedding? Geoffrey and Marjorie shall marry on the first day of the new year, which, as it happens, is also the first day of the new century. The ceremony will herald the dawn of a new era. A new Lannister era, thought Tyrion. Oh, bother, I fear I made other plans for that day. Did you come here just to complain of your bedchamber and make your lame japes? I have important letters to finish. Important letters, to be sure. Some battles are won with swords and spears, others with quills and ravens. Spare me these coy reproaches, Tyrion. I visited your sickbed as often as Maester Balabar would allow it, when you seem like to die. He steepled his fingers under his chin. Why did you dismiss Balabar? Tyrion shrugged. Mr. Franken is not so determined to keep me insensate. Balabar came to the city in Lord Redwine's retinue. A gifted healer, it said. It was kind of Cersei to ask him to look after you. She feared for your life. Feared that I may keep it, you mean? Doubtless that's why she's never once left my bedside. Don't be in Pertinent. Cersei has a royal wedding to plan. I'm waging a war, and you have been out of danger for at least a fortnight. Lord Tywin studied his son's disfigured face, his pale green eyes unflinching. Though the wound is ghastly enough, I'll grant you. What madness possessed you? The foe was at the gates with a battering ram. If Jamie had led the sortie, you'd call it valour. Jamie would never be so foolish as to remove his helm in battle.
I trust you killed the man who caught you. Oh, the wretch is dead enough. Though it had been Podrick Payne who killed Sir Mandon, shoving him into the river to drown beneath the weight of his armor. A dead enemy is a joy forever, Tyrion said blithely, though Sir Mandon was not his true enemy. The man had no reason to want him dead. He was only a cat's paw, and I believe I know the cat. She told him to make certain I did not survive the battle. But without proof, Lord Tywin would never listen to such a charge. Why are you here in the city, father? he asked. Shouldn't you be off fighting Lord Stannis or Rob Stark or someone? And the sooner the better. Until Lord Redwine brings his fleet up, we lack the ships to assail Dragonstone. It makes no matter. Stannis Baratheon's son set on the Blackwater. As for Stark, the boy is still in the west, but a large force of Northmen under Helmand Tallheart and Robert Glover are descending towards Duskendale. I sent Lord Tarley to meet them, while Sir Gregor drives up the King's Road to cut off their retreat. Tallheart and Glover will be caught between them with a third of Stark's strength. Duskendale. There was nothing at Duskendale worth such a risk. Had the young wolf finally blundered? It's nothing you need trouble yourself with. Your face is pale as death, and there's blood seeping through your dressings. Say what you want, and take yourself back to bed. What I want, his throat felt raw and tight. What did he want? More than you can ever give me, father. Pod tells me that Littlefinger's been made Lord of Harrenhal. An empty title, so long as Roose Bolton holds the castle for Rob Stark. Yet Lord Baelish was desirous of the honour. He did his good service in the matter of the Tyrell marriage. Lannister pays his debts. The Tyrell marriage had been Tyrion's notion, in point of fact, but it would seem churlish to try to claim that now. That title may not be as empty as you think, he warned. Littlefinger does nothing without good reason. But be that as it may, you said something about paying debts, I believe. And you want your own reward, is that it? Very well. What is it you would have of me? Lands? Castle? Some office? A little bloody gratitude would make a nice start. Lord Tywin stared at him, unblinking. Bummers and monkeys require applause. So did Ares, for that matter. You did as you were commanded, and I'm sure it was to the best of your ability. No one denies the part you played. The part I played? What nostrils Tyrion had left must surely have flared. I saved your bloody city, it seems to me. Most people seem to feel that it was my attack on Lord Stannis's flank that turned the tide of battle. Lords Tyrell, Rowan, Redwine, and Tarly fought nobly as well, and I'm told it was your sister Cersei who set the pyromancers to making the wildfire that destroyed the Baratheon fleet. While all I did was to get my nose hairs trimmed, is that it? Tyrion could not keep the bitterness out of his voice. 
Your chain was a clever stroke and crucial to our victory. Is that what you wanted to hear? I'm told we have you to thank for our Dornish alliance as well. You may be pleased to learn that Marcella has arrived safely at Sonspear. Sayeris Oakart writes that she has taken a great liking to Princess Ariane, and that Prince Christine is enchanted with her. I must like giving House Martel a hostage, but I suppose that could not be helped. We'll have our own hostage, Tyrion said. A council seat was also part of the bargain. Unless Prince Doran brings an army when he comes to claim it, he'll be putting himself in our power. Would that a council seat were all Martel came to claim, Lord Tywin said. You promised him vengeance as well. I promised him justice. Call it what you will, it still comes down to blood. Not an item in short supply, surely. I splashed through lakes of it during the battle. Tyrion saw no reason not to cut to the heart of the matter. Or have you grown so fond of Sir Gregor Clegane that you cannot bear to part with him? Sir Gregor has his uses, as did his brother. Every lord has need of a beast from time to time. A lesson you seem to have learned, judging from Sir Bronn and those clansmen of yours. Tyrion thought of Timot's burned eye, Shagger with his axe, Cello with a necklace of dried ears, and Bronn. Bronn, most of all. The woods are full of beasts, he reminded his father. The alleyways as well. True. Perhaps other dogs would hunt as well. I shall think on it. If there's nothing else, you have important letters, yes. Tyrion rose on unsteady legs, closed his eyes for an instant as a wave of dizziness washed over him, and took a shaky step toward the door. Later he would reflect that he should have taken a second, and then a third. Instead, he turned. What do I want? you ask. I'll tell you what I want. I want what is mine by rights. I want castly rock. His father's mouth grew hard. Your brother's birthright. The knights of the king's guard are forbidden to marry, to father children, and to hold land. You know that as well as I. The day Jamie put on that white cloak, he gave up his claim to Castle Rock, but never once have you acknowledged it. It's past time. I want you to stand up before the realm and proclaim that I am your son and your lawful heir. Lord Tywin's eyes were a pale green flecked with gold, as luminous as they were merciless. Castle Rock, he declared, in a flat, cold, dead tone, and then, Never! The word hung between them, huge, sharp, poisoned. I knew the answer before I asked, Tyrion thought. Eighteen years since Jamie joined the King's Guard, and I never once raised the issue. I must have known. I must always have known. Why? he made himself ask though he knew he would rue the question. You ask that? You who killed your mother to come into the world? 
You are an ill-made, devious, disobedient, spiteful little creature full of envy, lust, and low cunning. Men's laws give you the right to bear my name and display my colors, since I cannot prove that you're not mine. To teach me humility, the gods have condemned me to watch you waddle about wearing that proud lion that was my father's sigil and his father's before him. But neither gods nor men shall ever compel me to let you turn castly rock into your whorehouse. My whorehouse? The dawn broke. Tyrion understood all at once where this bile had come from. He ground his teeth together and said, Cersei told you about Alayaya. Is that her name? I confess I cannot remember the names of all your whores. Who was the one you married as a boy? Taisha, he spat out the answer defiant. And that camp follower on the green fork. Why do you care? he asked, unwilling even to speak Shay's name in his presence. I don't, no more than I care if they live or die. It was you who had Yaya whipped. It was not a question. Your sister told me of your threats against my grandsons. Lord Tywin's voice was colder than ice. Did she lie? Tyrion would not deny it. I made threats, yes, to keep Alayaya safe, so the Kettle Blacks would not misuse her. To save a whore's virtue, you threatened your own house, your own kin. Is that the way of it? You were the one who taught me that a good threat is often more telling than a blow. Not that Joffrey hasn't tempted me sore a few hundred times. If you're so anxious to whip people, start with him. But Tommen? Why would I arm Tommen? He's a good lad, and my own blood, as was your mother. Lord Tywin rose abruptly to tar over his dwarf son. Go back to your bed, Tyrion, and speak to me no more of your rights to Castle Rock. You shall have your reward, but it shall be one I deem appropriate to your service and station, and make no mistake. This was the last time I will suffer you to bring shame unto House Lannister. You are done with whores. The next one I find in your bed, I'll hang. Davis He watched the sail grow for a long time, trying to decide whether he would sooner live or die. Dying would be easier, he knew. All he had to do was crawl inside his cave and let the ship pass by, and death would find him. For days now the fever had been burning through him, turning his bowels to brown water and making him shiver in his restless sleep. Each morning found him weaker. It will not be much longer, he had taken to telling himself. If the fever did not kill him, thirst surely would. He had no fresh water here, but for the occasional rainfall that pooled in hollows on the rock. Only three days passed, or had it been four? On his rock it was hard to tell the days apart. His pools had been dry as old bone, and the sight of the bay rippling green and grey all around him had been almost more than he could bear. 
Once he began to drink seawater, the end would come swiftly, he knew. But all the same, he had almost taken that first swallow, so parched was his throat. A sudden squall had saved him. He had grown so feeble by then that it was all he could do to lie in the rain with his eyes closed and his mouth open, and let the water splash down on his cracked lips and swollen tongue. But afterward he felt a little stronger, and the island's pools and cracks and crevices once more had brim with life. But that had been three days ago, or maybe four, and most of the water was gone now. Some had evaporated, and he had sucked up the rest. By the morrow he would be tasting the mud again, and licking the damp cold stones at the bottom of the depressions. And if not thirst or fever, starvation would kill him. His island was no more than a barren spire, jutting up out of the immensity of Blackwater Bay. When the tide was low, he could sometimes find tiny crabs along the stony strand, where he had washed ashore after the battle. They nipped his fingers painfully before he smashed them apart on the rocks to suck the meat from their claws and the guts from their shells. But the strand vanished whenever the tide came rushing in, and Davis had to scramble up the rock to keep from being swept out into the bay once more. The point of the spire was fifteen feet above the water at high tide, but when the bay grew rough the spray went even higher, so there was no way to keep dry, even in his cave which was really no more than a hollow in the rock beneath an overhang. Nothing grew on the rock but lichen, and even the seabirds shunned the place. Now and again some gulls would land atop the spire, and Davis would try to catch one, but they were too quick for him to get close. He took to flinging stones at them, but he was too weak to throw with much force. So even when his stones hit, the gulls would only scream at him in annoyance and then take to the air. There were other rocks visible from his refuge, distant stony spires taller than his own. The nearest stood a good forty feet above the water, he guessed, though it was hard to be sure at this distance. A cloud of gulls swirled about it constantly, and often Davis thought of crossing over to raid their nests. But the water was cold here, the current strong and treacherous, and he knew he did not have the strength for such a swim. That would kill him as sure as drinking sea water. Autumn in the narrow sea could often be wet and rainy, he remembered from years past. The days were not bad so long as the sun was shining, but the nights were growing colder, and sometimes a wind would come gusting across the bay, driving a line of white caps before it, and before long Davis would be soaked and shivering. Fever and chills assaulted him in turn and of late he had developed a persistent racking cough. His cave was all the shelter he had, and that was little enough. Driftwood and bits of charred debris would wash up on the strand during low tide, but he had no way to strike a spark or start a fire. Once in desperation he had tried rubbing two pieces of driftwood against each other, but the wood was rotted, and his efforts earned him only blisters. His clothes were sodden as well, and he had lost one of his boots somewhere in the bay before he washed up here. Thirst, hunger, exposure. They were his companions, 
with him every hour of every day, and in time he had come to think of them as his friends. Soon enough one or other of his friends would take pity on him and free him from this endless misery. Or perhaps he would simply walk into the water one day and strike out for the shore that he knew lay somewhere to the north beyond his sight. It was too far to swim, as weak as he was, but that did not matter. Davis had always been a sailor. He was meant to die at sea. The gods beneath the waters have been waiting for me, he told himself. It's past time I went to them. But now there was a sail, only a speck on the horizon, but growing larger. A ship where no ship should be. He knew where his rock lay, more or less. It was one of a series of sea months that rose from the floor of Blackwater Bay. The tallest of them jutted a hundred feet above the tide, and a dozen lesser months stood thirty to sixty feet high. Sailors called them Spears of the Merlin King, and he knew that for every one that broke the surface, a dozen lurked treacherously just below it. Any captain with any sense kept his course well away from them. Davis watched the sail swell through pale, red-rimmed eyes and tried to hear the sound of the wind caught in the canvas. She's coming this way. Unless she changed course soon, she would pass within hailing distance of his meager refuge. It might mean life, if he wanted it. He was not sure he did. Why should I live? he thought as tears blurred his vision. God be good, why? My sons are dead. Dale and Allard and Merrick and Mathis, perhaps Devon as well. How can a father outlive so many strong young sons? How would I go on? I'm hollow shell. The crab's dead. There's nothing left inside. Don't they know that? They had sailed up the Blackwater Rush, flying the fiery heart of the Lord of Light. Davis and Black Betha had been in the second line of battle, between Dale's Wraith and Allard and Lady Mariah. Merrick, his third-born, was oarmaster on fury at the centre of the first line, while Mathis served as his father's second. Beneath the walls of the Red Keep, Stannis Baratheon's galleys had joined in battle with the boy king Joffrey's smaller fleet, and for a few moments the river had rung to the thrum of bowstrings and the crash of iron rams shattering oars and hulls alike. And then some vast beast had let out a roar, and green flames were all around them. Wildfire, pyromancer's piss, the jade demon. Mathis had been standing at his elbow on the deck of Black Betha when the ship seemed to lift from the water. Davis found himself in the river, flailing as the current took him and spun him around and around. Upstream, the flames had ripped at the sky fifty feet high. He had seen Black Betha afire and fury and a dozen other ships, had seen burning men leaping into the water to drown. Wraith and Lady Mariah were gone, sunk or shattered, or vanished behind a veil of wildfire, and there was no time to look for them, because the mouth of the river was almost upon him, and across the mouth of the river the Lannisters had raised a great iron chain. 
From bank to bank there was nothing but burning ships and wildfire. The sight of it seemed to stop his heart for a moment, and he could still remember the sound of it, the crackle of flames, the hiss of steam, the shrieks of dying men, and the beat of that terrible heat against his face as the current swept him down toward hell. All he needed to do was nothing. A few moments more, and he would be with his sons now, resting in the cool green mud on the bottom of the bay, with fish nibbling at his face. Instead, he sucked in a great gulp of air and dove, kicking for the bottom of the river. His only hope was to pass under the chain and the burning ships and the wildfire that floated on the surface of the water to swim hard for the safety of the bay beyond. Davis had always been a strong swimmer, and he'd worn no steel that day, but for the helm he'd lost when he lost Black Betha. As he knifed through the green murk, he saw other men struggling beneath the water, pulled down to drown beneath the weight of plate and mail. Davis swam past them, kicking with all the strength left in his legs, giving himself up to the current, the water filling his eyes. Deeper he went, and deeper and deeper still. With every stroke it grew harder to hold his breath. He remembered seeing the bottom soft and dim as a stream of bubbles burst from his lips. Something touched his leg. A snag, or a fish, or a drowning man, he could not tell. He needed air by then, but he was afraid. Was he past the chain yet? Was he out in the bay? If he came up under a ship, he would drown, and if he surfaced amidst the floating patches of wild fire, his first breath would sear his lungs to ash. He twisted in the water to look up, but there was nothing to see but green darkness, and then he spun too far, and suddenly he could no longer tell up from down. Panic took hold of him. His hands flailed against the bottom of the river and sent up a cloud of mud that blinded him. His chest was growing tighter by the instant. He clawed at the water, kicking, pushing himself, turning, his lungs screaming for air, kicking, kicking, lost now in the river murk, kicking, kicking, kicking until he could kick no longer. When he opened his mouth to scream, the water came rushing in, tasting of salt, and Davis Seaworth knew that he was drowning. The next he knew, the sun was up, and he lay on a stony strand beneath a spar of naked stone, with the empty bay all around him, and a broken mast, a burned sail, and a swollen corpse beside him. The mast, the sail, and the dead man vanished with the next high tide, leaving Davis alone on his rock amidst the spears of the Merlin king. His long years as a smuggler had made the waters around King's Landing more familiar to him than any home he'd ever had, and he knew his refuge was no more than a speck on the charts, in a place that honest sailors steered away from, not toward. Though Davis himself had come by it once or twice in his smuggling days, the better to stay on scene. When they find me dead here, if ever they do, perhaps they will name the rock for me, he thought. Onion Rock, they'll call it. It will be my tombstone and my legacy. He deserved no more. The father protects his children, the Septons taught. But Davis had led his boys into the fire. Dale would never give his wife the child they had prayed for, 
and Allard, with his girl in Old Town, and his girl in King's Landing, and his girl in Bravos, they would all be weeping soon. Mathis would never captain his own ship as he dreamed. Marek would never have his knighthood. How can I live when they are dead? So many brave knights and mighty lords have died, better men than me, and I born. Crawl inside your cave, Davis. Crawl inside and shrink up small, and the ship will go away, and no one will trouble you ever again. Sleep on your stone pillow, and let the gulls peck out your eyes while the crabs feast on your flesh. You feasted on enough of them. You owe them. Hide, smuggler, hide, and be quiet and die. The sail was almost on him. A few moments more, and the ship would be safely passed, and he could die in peace. His hand reached for his throat, fumbling for the small leather pouch he always wore about his neck. Inside he kept the bones of the four fingers his king had shortened for him. On the day he made Davis a knight. My luck. His shortened fingers patted at his chest, groping, finding nothing. The pouch was gone, and the finger bones with them. Stannis could never understand why he'd kept the bones. To remind me of my king's justice, he whispered through cracked lips. But now they were gone. The fire took my luck as well as my son's. In his dreams the river was still aflame, and demons danced upon the waters with fiery whips in their hands, while man blackened and burned beneath the lash. Mother, have mercy, Davis prayed. Save me, gentle mother. Save us all. My luck is gone. And my sons. He was weeping freely now, salt tears streaming down his cheeks. The fire took it all. The fire. Perhaps it was only wind blowing against the rock or the sound of the sea on the shore. But for an instant, Davis Seaworth heard her answer. You call the fire, she whispered, her voice as faint as the sound of waves in the seashell, sad and soft. You burned us. Burn us, burn us. It was her, Davis cried. Mother, don't forsake us. It was her who burned you, the red woman, Melisande, her. He could see her, her heart-shaped face, the red eyes, the long, coppery hair, the red gowns moving like flames as she walked, a swirl of silk and satin. She had come from Ashai in the east. She had come to Dragonstone and won Selyse and her queen's men for her alien god. And then the king, Stannis Baratheon himself. He had gone so far as to put the fiery heart on his banners, the fiery heart of R'hllor, lord of light, and god of flame and shadow. At Melisande's urging, he had dragged the seven from their sept at Dragonstone, and burned them before the castle gates, and later had burned the godswood at Storm's End as well, even the heart-tree, a huge white weirwood with a solemn face. It was her work, Davis said again, more weakly.
Her work and yours on your night. You rode her into Storm's End in the black of night, so she might loose her shadow child. You are not guiltless, no. You rode beneath her banner and flew it from your mast. <laughs> you watched the seven burn at Dragonstone and did nothing. She gave the father's justice to the fire and the mother's mercy and the wisdom of the crone, smith and stranger, maid and warrior. She burned them all to the glory of her cruel god. And you stood and held your tongue. Even when she killed old Maester Cresson, even then you did nothing. The sail was a hundred yards away and moving fast across the bay. In a few more moments it would be past him and dwindling. Sir Davis Seaworth began to climb his rock. He pulled himself up with trembling hands, his head swimming with fever. Twice his maimed fingers slipped on the damp stone and he almost fell, but somehow he managed to cling to his perch. If he fell, he was dead, and he had to live. For a little while more, at least, there was something he had to do. The top of the rock was too small to stand on safely, as weak as he was, so he crouched and waved his fleshless arms. Ship! he screamed into the wind. Ship here! Here! From up here he could see her more clearly, the lean, striped hull, the bronze figurehead, the billowing sail. There was a name painted on her hull, but Davis had never learned to read. Ship! he called again. Help me! Help me! A crewman on a forecastle saw him and pointed. He watched as other sailors moved to the gunwale to gape at him. A short while later, the galley's sail came down. Her oar slid out, and she swept around towards his refuge. She was too big to approach the rock closely, but thirty yards away she launched a small boat. Davis clung to his rock and watched it creep toward him. Four men were rowing, while a fifth sat in the prow. You! The fifth man called out, when they were only a few feet from his island. You! Up on the rock! Who are you? A smuggler who rose above himself, thought Davis. A fool who loved his king too much and forgot his guards. I... <coughs> his throat was parched, and he had forgotten how to talk. The words felt strange on his tongue and sounded stranger in his ears. I was in the battle. I was a captain, a, a knight. I was a knight. I, sir, the man said, and serving which king? The galley might be Joffrey's, he realized suddenly. If he spoke the wrong name now, she would abandon him to his fate. But no, her hull was striped. She was Lysine. She was Salador Sans. The mother sent her here. The mother in her mercy. She had a task for him. Stannis lives, he knew then. I have a king still, and sons. I have other sons, and a wife loyal and loving. How could he have forgotten? The mother was merciful indeed. 
Stannis! he shouted back at the Lyseni. Gods be good! I serve King Stannis! Oi, said the man in the boat, and so do we. Sansa The invitation seemed innocent enough, but every time Sansa read it, her tummy tightened into a knot. She's to be queen now. She's beautiful and rich, and everyone loves her. Why would she want to sup with a traitor's daughter? It could be curiosity, she supposed. Perhaps Margie Tyrell wanted to get the measure of the rival she'd displaced. Does she resent me, I wonder? Does she think I bear her ill will? Sansa had watched from the castle walls as Margie Tyrell and her escort made their way up Aegon's high hill. Joffrey had met his new bride-to-be at the King's Gate to welcome her to the city, and they rode side by side through cheering crowds. Joff glittering in gilded armor, and the Tyrell girl splendid in green with a cloak of autumn flowers blowing from her shoulders. She was sixteen, brown-haired and brown-eyed, slender and beautiful. The people called out her name as she passed, held up their children for her blessing, and scattered flowers under the hooves of her horse. Her mother and grandmother followed close behind, riding in a tall wheelhouse whose sides were carved in the shape of a hundred twining roses, every one gilded and shining. The small folk cheered them as well. The same small folk who pulled me from my horse and would have killed me if not for the hound. Sansa had done nothing to make the commons hate her, no more than Marjorie Tyrell had done to win their love. Does she want me to love her, too? She studied the invitation, which looked to be written in Marjorie's own hand. Does she want my blessing? Sansa wondered if Joffrey knew of this supper. For all she knew, it might be his doing. That thought made her fearful. If Joff was behind the invitation, he would have some cruel jape planned to shame her in the older girl's eyes. Would he command his king's guard to strip her naked once again? The last time he had done that, his uncle Tyrion had stopped him, but the imp could not save her now. No one can save me but my Florian. Sedontus had promised he would help her escape, but not until the night of Joffrey's wedding. The plans had been well laid, her dear devoted knight turned fool, assured her, there was nothing to do until then but endure and count the days. And sup with my replacement. Perhaps she was doing Marjorie Tyrell an injustice. Perhaps the invitation was no more than a simple kindness, an act of courtesy. It might be just a supper. But this was the Red Keep. This was King's Landing. This was the court of King Joffrey Baratheon, the first of his name, and if there was one thing that Sansa Stark had learned here, it was mistrust. Even so, she must accept. She was nothing now, the discarded daughter of a traitor and disgraced sister of a rebel lord. She could scarcely refuse Joffrey's queen-to-be. I wish the hound were here. The night of the battle, Sandor Clegane had come to her chambers to take her from the city, but Sansa had refused. Sometimes she lay awake at night, wondering if she'd been wise. 
She had his stained white cloak hidden in a cedar chest beneath her summer silks. She could not say why she'd kept it. The hound had turned craven, she'd heard it said, at the height of the battle. He got so drunk, the imp had to take his men. But Sansa understood. She knew the secret of his burned face. It was only the fire, he feared. That night, the wildfire had set the river itself ablaze, and filled the very air with green flame. Even in the castle, Sansa had been afraid. Outside, she could scarcely imagine it. Sighing, she got out her quill and ink, and wrote Marjorie Tyrell a gracious note of acceptance. When the appointed night arrived, another of the king's guard came for her. A man as different from Sandor Clegane as, well, as a flower from a dog. The sight of Sir Loras Tyrell standing on her threshold made Sansa's heart beat a little faster. This was the first time she had been so close to him since he had returned to King's Landing, leading the vanguard of his father's host. For a moment she did not know what to say. Sir Loras, she finally managed, you... You look so lovely. He gave her a puzzled smile. My lady is too kind, and beautiful besides. My sister awaits you eagerly. I so look forward to our supper, as has Marjorie, and my lady grandmother as well. He took her arm and led her toward the steps. Your grandmother? Sansa was finding it hard to walk and talk and think all at the same time, with Sir Loras touching her arm. She could feel the warmth of his hand through the silk. Lady Olena, she is to sup with you as well. Oh, said Sansa. I'm talking to him, and he's touching me. He's holding my arm and, and touching me. The Queen of Thorns, she's called, isn't that right? It is, <laughs> Sir Loras laughed. He has the warmest laugh, she thought as he went on. You'd best not um, use that name in her presence, though or you'll like to get pricked. Sansa reddened. Any fool would have realized that no woman could be happy about being called the Queen of Thorns. Maybe I truly am as stupid as Cersei Lannister says. Desperately, she tried to think of something clever and charming to say to him, but her wits had deserted her. She almost told him how beautiful he was, until she remembered she'd already done that. He was beautiful, though. He seemed taller than he had been when she first met him, but still so lithe and graceful, and Sansa had never seen another boy with such wonderful eyes. He's no boy, though. He's a man grown, a knight of the King's Guard. She thought he looked even finer in white than in the green and golds of House Tyrell. The only spot of colour in him now was the brooch that clasped his cloak. The rose of Highgarden, wrought in soft yellow gold, nestled in a bed of delicate green jade leaves. Sir Balan Swan held the door of Magors for them to pass. He was all in white as well, though he did not wear it half so well as Sir Loras. Beyond the spiked moat, two dozen men were taking their practice with sword and shield. With the castle so crowded, the outer ward had been given over to guests to raise their tents and pavilions, leaving only the smaller inner yards for training. One of the red wine twins was being driven backward by Sir Talad, 
with the eyes on his shield. Chunkier Sekenis of Case, who chuffed and puffed every time he raised his longsword, seemed to be holding his own against Osni Kettleblack. But Osni's brother, Sir Osfrid, was savagely punishing the frog-faced squire, Morris Slint. Blunted swords or no, Slint would have a rich crop of bruises by the morrow. It made Sansa wince just to watch. They have scarcely finished burying the dead from the last battle, and already they are practicing for the next one. On the edge of the yard, a lone knight with a pair of golden roses on his shield was holding off three foes. Even as they watched, he caught one of them alongside the head, knocking him senseless. "'Is that your brother?' Sansa asked. "'It is, my lady,' said Sir Loras. "'Garden often trains against three men, or even four. In battle it is seldom one against one,' he says, so he likes to be prepared. "'He must be very brave.' He is a great knight, Sir Loras replied. A better sword than me, in truth, though I'm the better lance. I remember, said Sansa. You ride wonderfully, sir. My lady is gracious to say so. When has she seen me ride? At the hands tawny. Don't you remember? You rode a white courser, and your armor was a hundred different kinds of flowers. You gave me a rose, a red rose. You threw white roses to the other girls that day. It made her flush to speak of it. You said no victory was half as beautiful as me. Solaris gave her a modest smile. I spoke only a simple truth, that any man with eyes could see. He doesn't remember, Sansa realized, startled. He's only being kind to me. He doesn't remember me, or the rose, or any of it. She had been so certain that it meant something that it meant everything. A red rose, not a white. It was after you unhorsed Sir Robar Royce, she said desperately. He took his hand from her arm. I slew Robar at Storm's End, my lady. It was not a boast. He sounded sad. Him and another of King Rindy's rainbow guard as well, yes. Sansa had heard the women talking of it around the well but for a moment she'd forgotten. That was when Lord Rendy was killed, wasn't it? How terrible for your poor sister. For Marjorie, his voice was tight. To be sure, she was at Bitterbridge, though. She did not see. Even so, when she heard, Sir Loras brushed the hilt of his sword lightly with his hand. Its grip was white leather, its pommel a rose in alabaster. Rendy is dead, Robar as well. What use to speak of them? The sharpness in his tone took her aback. I, my lord, I, I, I did not mean to give offence, sir. Nor could you, Lady Sansa, Sir Loras replied, but all the warmth had gone from his voice. Nor did he take her arm again. They ascended the serpentine steps in a deepening silence. Why did I have to mention Sir Robar? Sansa thought. I've ruined everything. He is angry with me now. She tried to think of something she might say to make amends, but all the words that came to her were lame and weak. Be quiet, or you'll only make it worse, she told herself. Lord Mace Tyrell and his entourage had been housed behind the royal sept in the long, slate-roofed keep that had been called the Maiden Vault, since King Baylor the Blessed had confined his sisters therein. 
so the sight of them might not tempt him into carnal thoughts. Outside its tall carved doors stood two guards in gilded half-helms and green cloaks edged in gold satin, the golden rose of high garden sewn on their breasts. Both were seven-footers, wide of shoulder and narrow of waist, magnificently muscled. When Sansa got close enough to see their faces, she could not tell one from the other. They had the same strong jaws, the same deep blue eyes, the same thick red moustaches. Who are they? she asked Sir Loras, her discomfort forgotten for a moment. My grandmother's personal guard, he told her. Their mother named them Eric and Arik, but grandmother can't tell them apart, so she calls them left and right. Left and right open the doors, and Marjorie Tyrell herself emerged and swept down the short flight of steps to greet them. Lady Sansa, she called. I'm so pleased you came. Be welcome. Sansa knelt at the feet of her future queen. You do me great honor, your grace. Won't you call me Marjorie? Please rise. Loras, help the Lady Sansa to her feet. Might I call you, Sansa? If it please you. Sir Loras helped her up. Marjorie dismissed him with a sisterly kiss and took Sansa by the hand. Come, my grandmother awaits, and she is not the most patient of ladies. A fire was crackling in the hearth, and sweet-smelling rushes had been scattered on the floor. Around the long trestle table a dozen women were seated. Sansa recognized only Lord Tyrell's tall, dignified wife, Lady Aleri, whose long silvery braid was bound with jeweled rings. Marjorie performed the other introductions. There were three Tyrell cousins, Mega and Alla and Eleanor, all close to Sansa's age. Buxom Lady Janna was Lord Tyrell's sister, and wed to one of the Greenapple Fossaways. Dainty, bright-eyed Lady Leonette was a Fossaway as well, and wed to Sir Garland. Scepter Nysterica had a homely, puck-scarred face, but seemed jolly. Pale, elegant Lady Graceford was with child, and Lady Bulwer was a child, no more than eight. And Mary was what she was to call boisterous, plump Meredith Crane, but most definitely not Lady Merriweather, a sultry, black-eyed, Moorish beauty. Last of all, Marjorie brought her before the wizened, white-haired doll of a woman at the head of the table. I am honored to present my grandmother, the Lady Alina, widow to the late Luther Tyrell, Lord of Highgarden, whose memory is a comfort to us all. The old woman smelled of rose water. Why, she's just the littlest bit of a thing. There was nothing the least bit thorny about her. A kiss me, child. Lady Alina said, tugging at Sansa's wrist with a soft-spotted hand. It's so kind of you to sup with me and my foolish flock of hens. Dutifully, Sansa kissed the old woman on the cheek. It is kind of you to have me, my lady. I knew your grandfather, Lord Rickard, though not well. He died before I was born. I am aware of that, child. It's said that your Tully grandfather is dying too, Lord Huster. Surely they told you? An old man, though not so old as me. Still, night falls for all of us in the end, and uh, too soon for some. 
You would know that more than most, poor child. You've had your share of grief, I know. We are sorry for your losses. Sansa glanced at Marjorie. I was saddened when I heard of Lord Renly's death, Your Grace. He was very gallant. You are kind to say so, answered Marjorie. Her grandmother snorted. Ha! Gallant, yes, and charming, and very clean. He knew how to dress, and he knew how to smile, and he knew how to bathe, and somehow he got the notion that this made him fit to be king. The Baratheons have always had some queer notions, to be sure, and it comes from their Targaryen blood, I should think. She sniffed. They uh, tried to marry me to a Targaryen once, but I soon put an end to that. Renly was brave and gentle, Grandmother, said Marjorie. Father liked him as well, and so did Loras. Loras is young, Lady Orlina said crisply, and very good at knocking men off horses with a stick. That does not make him wise. As to your father, would that I had been born a peasant woman with a big wooden spoon. I might have been able to beat some sense into his fat head. Mother, Lady O'Leary scolded. Hush, O'Leary, and don't take that tone with me. And don't call me mother. If I'd given birth to you, I'm sure I'd remember. I'm only to blame for your husband, the Lord Oaf of High Garden. Grandmother, Marjorie urged, mind your words, or what will Sansa think of us? She might think we have some wits about us. One of us, at any rate. The old woman turned back to Sansa. It's treason. I warn them. Robert has two sons, and Renly has an older brother. How can he possibly have any claim to that ugly iron chair? Tut, tut, says my son. Don't you want your sweetling to be queen? You Starks were kings once, the Aarons and the Lannisters as well, and even the Baratheons through the female line, but the Tyrells were no more than Stuarts, until Aegon the Dragon came along and cooked the rightful king of the Reach on the field of fire. If truth be told, even our claim to Highgarden is a bit dodgy, just as those dreadful Florence are always whining. What does it matter, you ask? Well, of course it doesn't except to oaths like my son. The thought that one day he may see his grandson with his ass on the Iron Throne makes Mace puff up like—now, what, what do you call it? Marjorie, you're clever. Be a dear, and tell your poor old half-daft grandmother the name of that queer fish uh, from the Summer Isles, hmm? that puffs up to ten times its own size when you poke it. They call them puffish, Grandmother. Of course they do. Summer islanders have no imagination. My son ought to take the puffish for his sigil. If truth be told, he could put a crown on it, the way the Baratheons do their stag. Mayhap that would make him happy. We should have stayed well out of all this bloody foolishness, if you ask me. But once the cow's been milked, there's no squirting the cream back up her udder. After Lord Puffish put that crown on Renly's head, we were into the pudding up to our knees. So here we are to see things through. And what do you say to that, Sansa? Sansa's mouth opened and closed. She felt very like a Puffish herself. The Tyrells can trace their descent back to Garth Greenhand, was the best she could manage at short notice. The Queen of Thorns snorted. Tch! 
so can the Florence, the Rowans, the Oakarts, and half the other noble houses of the South. Garth liked to plant his seed in fertile ground, they say. I shouldn't wonder that more than his hands were green. Sansa, Lady Alera broke in, you must be very hungry. Shall we have a bite of boar together and some lemon cakes? Lemon cakes are my favourite, Sansa admitted. So we have been told, declared Lady Alina, who obviously had no intention of being hushed. That Varys creature seemed to think we should be grateful for the information. I've never been quite sure what the point of a eunuch is, if truth be told. It seems to me they're only men, with the useful bits cut off. Elary, will you have them bring the food, or do you mean to starve me to death? Here, Sansa, sit here, next to me. I'm much less boring than these others. I hope that you're fond of fools. Sansa smoothed down her skirts and sat. I think fools, my lady. You mean the sort in Motley? Feathers, in this case. What do you imagine I was speaking of? My son? Or these lovely ladies? No, don't blush. With your hair, it makes you look like a pomegranate. All men are fools, if truth be told, but the ones in Motley are more amusing than ones with crowns. Marjorie, child, summon Butterbumps. Let us see if we can't make Lady Sansa smile. The rest of you, be seated. Do I have to tell you everything? Sansa must think that my granddaughter is attended by a flock of sheep. Butterbumps arrived before the food, dressed in a jester suit of green and yellow feathers with a floppy coxcomb. An immense round fat man, as big as three moon boys, he came cartwheeling into the hall, vaulted onto the table, and laid a gigantic egg right in front of Sansa. Break it, my lady, he commanded. When she did, a dozen yellow chicks escaped and began running in all directions. Catch them, Butterbumps exclaimed. Little Lady Bulwer snagged one and handed it to him, whereby he tilted back his head, popped it into his huge rubbery mouth, and seemed to swallow it whole. When he belched, tiny yellow feathers flew out of his nose. Lady Bulwer began to wail in distress, but her tears turned into a sudden squeal of delight when the chick came squirming out of the sleeve of her gown and ran down her arm. As the servants brought forth a broth of leeks and mushroom, Butterbumps began to juggle, and Lady Alina pushed herself forward to rest her elbows on the table. Do you know my son, Sansa, Lord Pufffish of Highgarden? A great lord, Sansa answered politely. A great oaf, said the Queen of Thorns. His father was an oaf as well. My husband, the late Lord Luther. Oh, I loved him well enough, don't mistake me. A kind man and not unskilled in the bedchamber, but an appalling oaf all the same. He managed to ride off a cliff whilst hawking. They say he was looking up at the sky and paying no mind to where his horse was taking him. And now my oaf son is doing the same, only he's riding a lion instead of a palfrey. It's easier to mount a lion, and not so easy to get off, I warn him. But he only chuckles. <laughs> Should you ever have a son, Sansa, beat him frequently so he learns to mind you. 
I only had the one boy, and I hardly beat him at all, so now he pays more heed to butterbumps than he does to me. A lion is not a lap cat, I told him, and he gives me a tut-tut, mother. <laughs> there is entirely too much tut-tutting in this realm, if you ask me. All these kings would do a great deal better if they put down their swords and listened to their mothers. Sansa realized that her mouth was open again. She filled it with a spoon of broth, while Lady Larry and the other women were giggling at the spectacle of Butterbumps bouncing oranges off his head, his elbows, and his ample rump. "'I want you to tell me the truth about this royal boy,' said Lady Alina abruptly. "'This Joffrey.' Sansa's fingers tightened around her spoon. The truth. I can't. Don't ask it, please. I I can't. I... 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 You, yes. Who would know better? The dad seems kingly enough. I'll grant you. A bit full of himself, but that would be his Lannister blood. We've heard some troubling tales, however. Is there any truth to them? Has this boy mistreated you? Sansa glanced about nervously. Butterbumps popped a whole orange into his mouth, chewed and swallowed, slapped his cheek, and blew seeds out of his nose. The women giggled and laughed. Servants were coming and going, and the maiden vault echoed to the clatter of spoons and plates. One of the chicks hopped back onto the table and ran through Lady Grace Ford's broth. No one seemed to be paying them any mind, but even so... She was frightened. Lady Olina was growing impatient. Why are you gaping at butterbumps? I asked a question. I expect an answer. Have the Lannisters stolen your tongue, child? Sir Dantas had warned her to speak freely only in the godswood. Joff, King Joffrey, he's... His grace is very fair and handsome and... and as brave as a lion. Yes, all the Lannisters are lions, and when a Tyrell breaks wind, it smells just like a rose, the old woman snapped. But how kind is he? How clever? Has he a good heart, a gentle hand? Is he chivalrous as befits a king? Will he cherish Marjorie and treat her tenderly, protect her honor as he would his own? He will, Sansa lied. He is very, very comely. You said that. You know, child, some say that you are as big a fool as Butterbumps here. And I am starting to believe them. Comely? I've taught my Marjorie what comely is worth, I hope. Somewhat less than a mummer's fart. Arian Brightfire was comely enough, but a monster all the same. The question is, what is Joffrey? She reached to snag a passing servant. I am not fond of leeks. Take this broth away and bring me some cheese. The cheese will be served after the cakes, my lady. The cheese will be served when I want it served, and I want it served now. The old woman turned back to Sansa. Are you frightened, child? No need for that. We're only women here. Tell me the truth. No harm will come to you. My father always told the truth. Sansa spoke quietly, but even so it was hard to get the words out. Lord Eddard, yes, he had that reputation, but they named him Traitor, and took his head off even so. The old woman's eyes bore into her, sharp and bright as the points of swords. 
Joffrey, Sansa said. Joffrey did that. He promised me he would be merciful and cut off my father's head. He said that was mercy, and he took me up on the walls and made me look at it. The head. He wanted me to weep, but— She stopped abruptly and covered her mouth. I've said too much. Oh, gods be good, they'll know, they'll hear. Someone will tell on me. Go on. It was Marjorie who urged. Joffrey's own queen-to-be. Sansa did not know how much she had heard. I can't. What if she tells him? What if she tells? He'll kill me for certain, then. Or give me to Sir Ilian. I never meant. My father was a traitor. My brother as well. I have the traitor's blood. Please, don't make me say any more. Calm yourself, child, the Queen of Thorns commanded. She's terrified, grandmother. Just look at her. The old woman called to Butterbums. Fool! Give us a song. A long one, I should think. Uh, the bear and the maiden fair will do nicely. It will, the huge jester replied. It will do nicely indeed. Shall I sing it standing on my head, my lady? Will that make it sound better? No. Stand on your feet, then. We wouldn't want your hat to fall off. As I recall, you never wash your hair. As my lady commands, Butterbumps Bardlow let loose of enormous belch, then straightened, threw out his belly, and bellowed. A bear there was, a bear, a bear, all black and brown and covered with hair. Lady Olena squirmed forward. Even when I was a girl younger than you, it was well known that in the Red Keep the very walls have ears. Well, they will be the better for a song, and meanwhile we girls shall speak freely. But, Sansa said, Varys, he knows, he always— Sing louder, the Queen of Thorns shouted at Butterbumps. These old ears are almost deaf, you know. Are you whispering at me, you fat fool? I don't pay you for whispers. Sing. The bear, thundered Butterbumps, his great deep voice echoing off the rafters. Oh, come, he said, oh, come to the fair. The fair, said he, but I'm a bear, all black and brown and covered with air. The wrinkled old lady smiled. At High Garden we have many spiders amongst the flowers. So long as they keep to themselves, we let them spin their little webs. But if they get underfoot, we step on them. She patted Sansa on the back of the hand. Now, child, the truth. What sort of man is this Joffrey, who calls himself Baratheon, but looks so very Lannister? And down the road from here to there, from here to there, three boys, a goat, and a dancing bear. Sansa felt as though her heart had lodged in her throat. The Queen of Thorns was so close she could smell the old woman's sour breath. Her gaunt, thin fingers were pinching her wrist. To her other side, Marjorie was listening as well. A shiver went through her. A monster! she whispered, so tremulously she could scarcely hear her own voice. Joffrey is a monster. He lied about the butcher's boy and made father kill my wolf. When I displease him, he has the king's guard beat me. He's evil and cruel, my lady. It's so. 
and the Queen as well. Lady Olina Tyrell and her granddaughter exchanged a look. Ah, said the old woman, that's a pity. Oh, gods, thought Sansa, horrified. If Marjorie won't marry him, Joff will know that I'm to blame. Please, she blurted, don't stop the wedding. Have no fear. Lord Puffish is determined that Marjorie shall be queen, and the word of a Tyrell is worth more than all the gold in Casterly Rock. At least it was in my day. Even so, we thank you for the truth, child. Danced and spun all the way to the fair, the fair, the fair. Butterbumps hopped and roared and stumped his feet. Sansa, would you like to visit High Garden? When Marjorie Tyrell smiled, she looked very like her brother Loras. All the autumn flowers are in bloom just now, and there are groves and fountains, shady courtyards, marble colonnades. My lord father always keeps singers at court, sweeter ones than butters here, and pipers and fiddlers and harpers as well. We have the best horses and pleasure boats to sail along the Manda. Do you hawk, Sansa? A little, she admitted. Oh, sweet she was, and pure and fair, the maid with honey in her hair. You will love High Garden, as I do, I know it. Marjorie brushed back a loose strand of Sansa's hair. Once you see it, you'll never want to leave, and perhaps you won't have to. Her hair, her hair, the maid with honey in her hair. Shush, child, the Queen of Thorns said sharply. Santa hasn't even told us that she would like to come for a visit. Oh, but I would, Sansa said. High Garden sounded like the place she'd always dreamed of, like the beautiful magical court she had once hoped to find at King's Landing. Smell the scent on the summer air, the bear, the bear, all black and brown and covered with air. But the queen, Sansa went on, she won't let me go. She will. Without High Garden, the Lannisters have no hope of keeping Joffrey on his throne. If my son, the Lord of Oath, asks, she will have no choice but to grant his request. Will he? asked Sansa. Will he ask? Lady Orlina frowned. I see no need to give him a choice. Of course he has no hint of our true purpose. He smelled the scent on the summer air. Sansa wrinkled her brow. Our true purpose, milady? He sniffed and roared and smelt it there, honey on the summer air. To see you safely wed, child, the old woman said, as Butterbumps bellowed out the old, old song, to my grandson. Wed to Sir Loris? Oh! Sansa's breath caught in her throat. She remembered Sir Loras in his sparkling sapphire armor, tossing her a rose. Sir Loras in white silk, so pure, innocent, beautiful, the dimples at the corner of his mouth when he smiled, the sweetness of his laugh, the warmth of his hand. She could only imagine what it would be like to pull up his tunic and caress the smooth skin underneath, to stand on her toes and kiss him, to run her fingers through those thick brown curls— and drown in his deep brown eyes. A flush crept up her neck. Oh, I'm a maid, and I'm pure and fair. I'll never dance with a hairy bear. A bear, a bear. I'll never dance with a hairy bear.
Would you like that, Sansa? asked Marjorie. I've never had a sister, only brothers. Oh, please say yes. Please say that you will consent to marry my brother. The words came tumbling out of her. Yes, I will. I would like that more than anything, to wed Sir Loras, to love him. Loras! Lady Olena sounded annoyed. Don't be foolish, child. King's guard never wed. Didn't they teach you anything in Winterfell? We were speaking of my grandson, Willis. He's a bit old for you, to be sure, but a, a dear boy for all that. Not the least bit oafish, an heir to High Garden besides. Sansa felt dizzy. One instant her head was full of dreams of Loras, and the next they had all been snatched away. Willis! Willis! Why, she said stupidly, courtesy is a lady's armour. You must not offend them. Be careful what you say. I, I do not know, Sir Willis. I've never had the pleasure, my lady. Is he, is he as great a knight as his brothers? Lifted her eye into the air, the bear, the bear. No, Marjorie said. He has never taken vows. Her grandmother frowned. Tell the girl the truth. The poor lad is crippled, and that's the way of it. He was hurt as a squire, riding in his first tourney, Marjorie confided. His horse fell and crushed his leg. That snake of a Dornishman was to blame, that Oberon Martell, and his maester as well. I call for a knight, but you're a bear, a bear, a bear, all black and brown, and covered with air. Willis has a bad leg, but a good heart, said Marjorie. He used to read to me when I was a little girl and draw me pictures of the stars. You will love him as much as we do, Sansa. She kicked and wailed the maid so fair, but he licked the honey from her hair, her hair, her hair, he licked the honey from her hair. When might I meet him? asked Sansa, hesitantly. Soon, promised Marjorie, when you come to Highgarden, after Joffrey and I are wed, my grandmother will take you. I will, said the old woman, patting Sansa's hand and smiling a soft, wrinkly smile. I will indeed. Then she sighed and squealed and kicked the air. My bear, she sang, my bear so fair. And off they went from here to there. The bear, the bear, and the maiden fair. Butterbumps roared the last line, leapt into the air, and came down on both feet with a crash that shook the wine cups on the table. The women laughed and clapped. I thought that dreadful song would never end, said the Queen of Thorns. Ah, oh, but look, here comes my cheese. John The world was grey darkness, smelling of pine and moss and cold. Pale mists rose from the black earth as the riders threaded their way through the scatter of stones and scraggly trees down toward the welcoming fire strewn like jewels across the floor of the river valley below. There were more fires than Jon Snow could count, hundreds of fires, thousands. A second river of flickery lights along the banks of the icy white milk water. The fingers of his sword hand opened and closed. They descended the ridge without banners or trumpets, the quiet broken only by the distant murmur of the river, the clop of hooves, 
and the clacking of Rattleshirt's bone armor. Somewhere above, an eagle soared on great blue-gray wings, while below came men and dogs and horses and one white direwolf. A stone bounced down the slope, disturbed by a passing hoof, and John saw a ghost turn his head at the sudden sound. He had followed the riders at a distance all day, as was his custom, but when the moon rose over the soldier pines, he'd come bounding up, red eyes aglow. Rattleshirt's dogs greeted him with a chorus of snarls and growls and wild barking as ever, but the dire wolf paid them no mind. Six days ago, the largest hound had attacked him from behind as the wildlings camped for the night, but Ghost had turned and lunged, sending the dog fleeing with a bloody haunch. The rest of the pack maintained a healthy distance after that. John Snow's garron wickered softly, but a touch and a soft word soon quieted the animal. Would that his own fears could be calmed so easily. He was all in black, the black of the night's watch, but the enemy rode before and behind. Wildlings, and I am with them. Egret wore the cloak of Corin Halfhand. Lenel had his hauberk, the big spare wife, Ragwill, his gloves, one of the bowmen, his boots. Corrin's helm had been worn by the short, homely man called Longspear Rick, but it fit poorly on his narrow head, so he'd given that to Igret as well. And Rattleshirt had Corrin's bones in his bag, along with the bloody head of Eben, who set out with John to scout the Skirling Pass. Dead. All dead but me. And I am dead to the world. Egret rode just behind him. In front was Longspear Rick. The Lord of Bones had made the two of them his guards. If the crow flies, I'll boil your bones as well, he warned them when they had set out, smiling through the crooked teeth of the giant skull he wore for a helm. Egret hooted at him. You want to guard him. If you want us to do it, leave us be, and we'll do it. These are free folk indeed, John saw. Rattleshirt might lead them, but none of them were shy in talking back to him. The wildling leader fixed him with an unfriendly stare. Might be you fool these others, Crow, but don't think you'll be fooling Mance. He'll take one look at you and know your force, and when he does, I'll make a cloak of your wolf there, and open your soft boy's belly, and sew a weasel up inside. John's sword hand opened and closed, flexing the burned fingers beneath the glove. But Longspear Rick only laughed. And where would you find a weasel in the snow? That first night, after a long day of horse, they made camp in a shallow stone bowl atop a nameless mountain, huddling close to the fire while the snow began to fall. John watched the flakes melt as they drifted over the flames. Despite his layers of wool and fur and leather, he felt cold to the bone. Egret sat beside him after she'd eaten, her hood pulled up and her hands tucked into her sleeves for warmth. When Mance hears how you did for half-hand, it take you quick enough, she told him. Take me for what? The girl laughed scornfully. <laughs> for, for one of us, do you think you're the first crow ever flew down off the wall? In your hearts, you all want to fly free. 
And when I'm free, he said slowly, will I be free to go? Sure you will. She had a warm smile, despite her crooked teeth. And we'll be free to kill you. It's dangerous being free, but most come to like the taste of it. She put her gloved hand on his leg, just above the knee. You'll see. I will, thought John. I will see, and hear, and learn. And when I have, I will carry the word back to the wall. The wildlings had taken him for an oath-breaker, but in his heart he was still a man of the night's watch, doing the last duty that Corrin Halfhand had laid on him, before I killed him. At the bottom of the slope they came upon a little stream flowing down from the foothills to join the milk water. It looked all stones and glass, though they could hear the sound of water running beneath the frozen surface. Rattleshirt led them across, shattering the thin crust of ice. Mance Raiders' outriders closed in as they emerged. John took their measure with a glance, eight riders, men and women both, clad in fur and boiled leather, with here and there a helm or bit of mail. They were armed with spears and fire-hardened lances, all but their leader, a fleshy blond man with watery eyes who bore a great curved scythe of sharpened steel. The Weeper, he knew at once. The Black Brothers told tales of this one, like Rattleshirt and Harmer Dugshead and Alfin Crowkiller, he was a known raider. The Lord of Bones, the Weeper said when he saw them. He eyed John and his wolf. Who's this, then? A crow come over, said Rattleshirt, who preferred to be called the Lord of Bones, for the clattering armor he wore. He was afraid I'd take his bones as well as half hands. He shook his sack of trophies at the other wildlings. He slew Corin Arfand, said Longspear Rick. Him and that wolf is. And did for O'Rell too, said Rattleshirt. The lad's a wag, or close enough, put in Ragwill, the big spear wife. His wolf took a piece of Arfand's leg. The weeper's red, roomy eyes gave John another look. Aye, well, he has a wolfish cast to him, now as I look close. Bring him to Mance. Might be, he'll keep him. He wheeled his horse around and galloped off, his riders hard behind him. The wind was blowing wet and heavy as they crossed the valley of the milk water and rode single file through the river camp. Ghost kept close to John, but the scent of him went before them like a herald, and soon there were wilding dogs all around them, growling and barking. Lenor screamed at them to be quiet, but they paid him no heed. They don't care much for that beast of yours, Longspear Rick said to John. They're dogs, and he's a wolf, said John. They know he's not their kind. No more than I am yours. But he had his duty to be mindful of, the task Corin Halfhand had laid upon him as they shared that final fire, to play the part of Turncloak, and find whatever it was that the wildlings had been seeking in the bleak, cold wilderness of the Frostfangs. Some power, Corin had named it, to the old bear, but he had died before learning what it was, or whether Mansraider had found it with his digging. 
There were cook fires all along the river, amongst wains and carts and sleds. Many of the wildlings had thrown up tents of hide and skin and felted wool. Others sheltered behind rocks in crude lean-tos, or slept beneath their wagons. At one fire, John saw a man hardening the points of long wooden spears and tossing them in a pile. Elsewhere, two bearded youths in boiled leather were sparring with staffs, leaping at each other over the flames, grunting each time one landed a blow. A dozen women sat nearby in a circle, fletching arrows. Arrows for my brothers, John thought. Arrows for my father's folk, for the people of Winterfell and Deepwood Mott, and the last hearth. Arrows for the north. But not all he saw was warlike. He saw women dancing as well, and heard a baby crying, and a little boy ran in front of his garron, all bundled up in fur and breathless from play. Sheep and goats wandered freely, while oxen plodded along the river bank in search of grass. The smell of roast mutton drifted up from one cook fire, and at another he saw a boar turning on a wooden spit. In an open space surrounded by tall green soldier pines, Rattleshirt dismounted. "'We'll make camp here,' he told Lennel and Ragwell and the others. "'Feed the horses, then the dogs, then yourself. Egret, Longspear, bring the crow so Mance can have his look. We'll gut him after.' They walked the rest of the way, past more cook-fires and more tents, with Ghost following at their heels. John had never seen so many wildlings. He wondered if anyone ever had. The camp goes on forever, he reflected. But it's more a hundred camps than one, and each one more vulnerable than the last. Stretched out over long leagues, the wildlings had no defences to speak of, no pits, no sharpened stakes, only small groups of outriders patrolling their perimeters. Each group, or clan, or village, had simply stopped where they wanted, as soon as they saw others stopping or found a likely spot. The free folk. If his brothers were to catch them in such disarray, many of them would pay for that freedom with their life's blood. They had numbers, but the Night's Watch had discipline, and in battle, discipline beats numbers nine times of every ten, his father had once told him. There was no doubting which tent was the king's. It was thrice the size of the next largest he'd seen, and he could hear music drifting from within. Like many of the lesser tents, it was made of sewn hides with fur still on, but man's raider's hides were the shaggy white pelts of snow bears. The peaked roof was crowned with a huge set of antlers from one of the giant elks that had once roamed freely throughout the Seven Kingdoms in the times of the First Men. Here, at least, they found defenders, two guards at the flap of the tent, leaning on tall spears with round leather shields strapped to their arms. When they caught sight of Ghost, one of them lowered his spear point and said, "'That beast stays here.' "'Ghost, stay,' John commanded. The direwolf sat. "'Longspear, watch the beast!' Rattleshirt yanked open the tent, and gestured John and Egret inside. The tent was hot and smoky. Baskets of burning peat stood in all four corners, filling the air with a dim, reddish light. More skins carpeted the ground. 
John felt utterly alone as he stood there in his blacks, awaiting the pleasure of the turncloak who called himself King Beyond the Wall. When his eyes had adjusted to the smoky red gloom, he saw six people, none of whom paid him any mind. A dark young man and a pretty blonde woman were sharing a horn of mead. A pregnant woman stood over a brazier cooking a brace of hens, while a grey-haired man in a tattered cloak of black and red sat cross-legged on a pillow, playing a lute and singing. Oh, the Dornish man's wife was as fair as the sun, and her kisses were warmer than spring. But the Dornish man's blade was made of black steel, and its kiss was a terrible thing. John knew the song, though it was strange to hear it here, in a shaggy hide tent beyond the wall, ten thousand leagues from the red mountains and warm winds of dawn. Rattleshirt took off his yellowed helm as he waited for the song to end. Beneath his bone and leather armor he was a small man, and the face under the giant's skull was ordinary, with a knobby chin, thin mustache, and sallow, pinched cheeks. His eyes were close-set, one eyebrow creeping all the way across his forehead, dark hair thinning back from a sharp widow's peak. The Dornish man's wife would sing as she bathed in a voice that was sweet as a peach, but the Dornish man's blade had a song of its own and a bite sharp and cold as a leech. Beside the brazier, a short but immensely broad man sat on the stool, eating a hen off a skewer. Hot grease was running down his chin and into his snow-white beard, but he smiled happily all the same. Thick gold bands, graven with runes, bound his massive arms, and he wore a heavy shirt of black ringmail that could only have come from a dead ranger. A few feet away, a taller, leaner man, in a leather shirt sewn with bronze scales, stood frowning over a map, a two-handed greatsword slung across his back in a leather sheath. He was straight as a spear, all long, wiry muscle, clean-shaven, bald, with a strong, straight nose and deep-set grey eyes. He might even have been comely if he'd had ears, but he had lost both along the way. Whether to frostbite or some enemy's knife, John could not tell. Their lack made the man's head seem narrow and pointed. Both the white-bearded man and the bald one were warriors. That was plain to John at a glance. These two are more dangerous than Rattleshirt by far. He wondered which was Mance Raider. As he lay on the ground, with the darkness around, and the taste of his blood on his tongue, his brothers knelt by him and prayed him a prayer, and he smiled, and he laughed, and he sung, Brothers, oh brothers, my days here are done, the Dornish man's taken my life, but what does it matter, for all men must die, and I've tasted the Dornish man's wife. As the last strains of the Dornish man's wife faded, the bald, earless man glanced up from his map and scowled ferociously at Rattleshirt and Egret, with John between them. What's this? he said. A crow? The black bastard what gutted Aurel, said Rattleshirt, and a bloody wag as well. You were to kill them all. This one's come over, explained Egret. He slew Corin Halfhand with his own hand.
This boy? The earless one was angered by the news. The half-hand should have been mine. Do you have a name, Crow? John Snow, your grace. He wondered whether he was expected to bend the knee as well. Your grace! <laughs> the earless man looked at the big white-bearded one. You see? <laughs> he takes me for a king! <laughs> the bearded man laughed so hard he sprayed bits of chicken everywhere. He rubbed the grease from his mouth with the back of a huge hand. A blind boy must be. Whoever heard of a king without ears? <laughs> Why, his crown would fall straight down to his neck. <laughs> he grinned at John, wiping his fingers clean on his breeches. Close your beak, crow. Spin yourself around. Might be you'd find who you're looking for. John turned. The singer rose to his feet. I'm Mance Raider, he said, as he put aside the loot, and you are Ned Stark's bastard, the snow of Winterfell. Stunned, John stood speechless for a moment, before he recovered enough to say, How, how could you know? That's a tale for later, said Mance Raider. How did you like the song, lad? Well enough. I'd heard it before. But what does it matter, for all men must die? The king beyond the wall said lightly. And I've tasted the Dornish man's wife. Tell me, does my lord of bones speak truly? Did you slay my old friend the half-hand? I did. Though it was his doing more than mine. Ah, the Shadow Tower will never again seem as fearsome, the king said with sadness in his voice. Corrin was my enemy, but also my brother once. So, shall I thank you for killing him, Jon Snow, or curse you? Hmm? <laughs> he gave Jon a mocking smile. The king beyond the wall looked nothing like a king, nor even much a wilding. He was a middling height, slender, sharp-faced, with shrewd brown eyes and long brown hair that had gone mostly to grey. There was no crown on his head, no gold rings on his arms, no jewels at his throat, not even a gleam of silver. He wore wool and leather, and his only garment of note was his ragged black wool cloak, its long tears patched with faded red silk. You ought to thank me for killing your enemy, John said finally, and curse me for killing your friend. Har! boomed the white-bearded man. Well answered. Agreed. Mance Raider beckoned John closer. If you would join us, you'd best know us. The man you took for me is Stir, Magnar of Thin. Magnar means Lord in the old tongue. The earless man stared at John coldly as Mance turned to the white-bearded one. Our ferocious chicken-eater here is my loyal Tormund. The woman... Tormund rose to his feet. Old, ye gave stir his style. Give me mine. Mance Raider laughed. Cast your wish. Jon Snow, before you stands Tormund Giant Spain, tall talker, horn blower, and breaker of ice. And here also Tormund Thunderfist, husband to bears, the Mead King of Ready Hall, 
speaker to gods and father of hosts. <laughs> that sounds more like me, said Tormund. Well met, Jon Snow, I am fond of wargs, as it happens, though not of Starks. The good woman at the brazier, Mansrader went on, is Dala. The pregnant woman smiled shyly. Treat her like you would any queen. She is carrying my child. He turned to the last two. This beauty is her sister Val. Young Jarl beside her is her latest pet. I'm no man's pet, said Jarl, dark and fierce. And Val's no man, white bearded Tormund snorted. You ought to have noticed that by now, lad. So there you have us, Jon Snow, said Mans Raider. The king be on the wall and his court, such as it is. And now some words from you, I think. Where did you come from? Winterfell, he said, by way of Castle Black. And what brings you up the milk water so far from the fires of home? He did not wait for John to answer, but looked at once to Rattleshirt. How many were they? Five. Three's dead, and the boy's here. T'other went up a mountainside where no horse could follow. Raider's eyes met John's again. Was it only the five of you? Or are more of your brothers skulking about? We were four and the half-hand. Corrin was worth twenty common men. The king beyond the wall smiled at that. Some thought so, still. A boy from Castle Black with rangers from the Shadowed Tower. How did that come to be? John had his lie already. The Lord Commander sent me to the half-hand for seasoning, so he took me on his ranging. Stir the Magnar frowned at that. Ranging, you call it? Why would crows come ranging up the Skirlin Pass? The villagers were deserted, John said truthfully. It was as if all the free folk had vanished. Vanished, eh? said Mansrader, and not just the free folk. Who told you where we were, Jon Snow? Tormund snorted. It were Craster, or I'm a blushing maid. I told you, Mans, that creature needs to be shorter by a head. The king gave the older man an irritated look. Tormund, some day, try thinking before you speak. I know it was Craster. I asked John to see if he would tell it true. Ah, Tormund spat. Well, I stepped in that. <laughs> he grinned at John. See, lad, that's why he's king and I'm not. I can out-drink, out-fight, and out-sing him, and my member's thrice the size of his. But man's has gone in. He was raised a crow, you know, and the crow's a tricksy bird. I would speak with the lad alone, my lord of bones, Mans Raider said to Rattleshirt. Leave us, all of you. What, me as well? said Tormund. No, you especially, said Mans. I ain't in no all where I'm not welcome, Tormund got to his feet. Me and the ends are leaving. He snatched another chicken off the brazier, shoved it into a pocket sewn into the lining of his cloak, said, Ha! and left, licking his fingers. The others followed him out, all but the woman Dala. Sit if you like, Raider said when they were gone. 
Are you hungry? Carmen left us two birds at least. I would be pleased to eat, Your Grace, and thank you. Your Grace, the king smiled. That's not a style one often hears from the lips of free folk. I'm manse to most. The manse to some. Will you take a horn of mead? Gladly, said John. The king poured himself as Dalla cut the well-crisp hens apart and brought them each a half. John peeled off his gloves and ate with his fingers, sucking every morsel of meat off the bones. Tormund spoke truly, said Mansrader, as he ripped apart a loaf of bread. The black crow is a tricksy bird, that's so. But I was a crow when you were no bigger than the babe in Dalla's belly, John Snow. So take care not to play tricksy with me. As you say, your, uh, manse. The king laughed. <laughs> your manse. <laughs> Why not? I promised you a tale before of how I knew you. Have you puzzled it out yet? John shook his head. Did Rattleshirt send word ahead? By wing? <laughs> we have no trained ravens, no. I knew your face. I've seen it before. Twice. It made no sense at first, but as John turned it over in his mind, dawn broke. When you were a brother of the watch? Very good, yes. That was the first time. You were just a boy, and I was all in black, one of a dozen riding escort to old Lord Commander Corgill when he came down to see your father at Winterfell. I was walking the wall around the yard when I came on you and your brother Rob. It had snowed the night before, and the two of you had built a great mountain above the gate and were waiting for someone likely to pass underneath. <laughs> I remember, said John with a startled laugh, a young black brother on the wall walk. Yes. You swore not to tell. And kept my vow, that one at least. We dumped the snow on fat Tom. He was father's slowest guardsman. Tom had chased them around the yard afterward until all three were red as autumn apples. But you said you saw me twice. When was the other time? When King Robert came to Winterfell to make your father hand, the king beyond the wall said lightly. John's eyes widened in disbelief. That can't be so. It was. When your father learned the king was coming, he sent word to his brother Benjamin on the wall, so he might come down for the feast. There is more commerce between the black brothers and the free folk than you know, and soon enough word came to my ears as well. It was too choice a chance to resist. Your uncle did not know me by sight, so I had no fear from that quarter and I did not think your father was like to remember a young crow he'd met briefly years before. I wanted to see this Robert with me own eyes, king to king, and get the measure of your Uncle Benjamin as well. He was first ranger by then, and the bane of all my people. So I saddled my fleetest horse and rode. But, John objected, the wall. And the wall can stop an army, but not a man alone. I took a lute and a bag of silver, scaled the ice near Long Barrow, walked a few leagues south of the new gift, and bought a horse.
All in all, I made much better time than Robert, who was travelling with a ponderous great wheelhouse to keep his queen in comfort. A day south of Winterfell, I came up on him and fell in with his company. Free riders and hedge knights are always attaching themselves to royal processions, in hopes of finding service with the king, and my loot gained me easy acceptance. He laughed. I know every body song that's ever been made north or south of the wall. So, there you are. The night your father feasted Robert, I sat in the back of his hall on a bench with the other free riders, listening to Orland of Old Town play the high harp and sing of dead kings beneath the sea. I betook of your lord father's meat and mead, and had a look at Kingslayer and Imp, and made passing note of Lord Eddard's children and the wolf pups that ran at their heels. Bail the bard, said John, remembering the tale that Egret had told him in the Frostfangs, the night he'd almost killed her. Ah, I would that I were. I will not deny that Bale's exploit inspired mine own, but I did not steal either of your sisters that I recall. Bale wrote his own songs and lived them. I only sing the songs that better men have made. Eh, uh, more mead. Uh, no, said John. If you had been discovered, taken, your father would have had my head off. The king gave a shrug. Though once I had eaten at his board, I was protected by guest right. The laws of hospitality are as old as the first men, and sacred as a heart tree. He gestured at the board between them, the broken bread and chicken bones. Here you are the guest, and safe from harm at my hands, this night at least. So tell me truly, John Snow, are you a craven who turned your cloak from fear, or is there another reason that brings you to my tent? Guessed right or no, Jon Snow knew he walked on rotten ice here. One false step, and he might plunge through into water cold enough to stop his heart. Weigh every word before you speak it, he told himself. He took a long draught of mead to buy time for his answer. When he set the horn aside, he said, Tell me why you turned your cloak. I'll tell you why I turned mine. Mansraider smiled, as John had hoped he would. The king was plainly a man who liked the sound of his own voice. You will have heard stories of my desertion, I have no doubt. Some say it was for a crown, some say for a woman, others that you had the wilding blood. The wilding blood is the blood of the first men, the same blood that flows in the veins of the Starks. As to a crown, <laughs> do you see one? I see a woman. He glanced at Dala. Mans took her by the hand and pulled her close. My lady is blameless. I met her on my return from your father's castle. The half-hand was carved of old oak, but I am made of flesh, and I have a great fondness for the charms of women, which makes me no different from three-quarters of the watch. There are men still wearing black who have had ten times as many women as this poor king. You must guess again, Jon Snow. John considered for a moment. 
The half-hand said you had a passion for wilding music. I did. I do. That's closer to the mark, yes, but not a hit. Mansred arose, unfastened the clasp that held his cloak, and swept it over the bench. It was for this. A cloak? The black wool cloak of a sworn brother of the Night's Watch, said the king beyond the wall. One day, on arranging, we brought down a fine big elk. We were skinning it when the smell of blood drew a shadow cat out of its lair. I drove it off, but not before it shredded my cloak to ribbons. D'ye see? Here. Here. And here. <laughs> he chuckled. It shredded my arm and back as well, and I bled worse than the elk. My brothers feared I might die before they got me back to Maester Mullen at the Shadow Tower, so they carried me to a wilding village where we knew an old wise woman did some healing. She was dead, as it happened, but her daughter saw to me, cleaned my wounds, sewed me up, and fed me porridge and potions until I was strong enough to ride again. And she sewed up the rents in my cloak as well, with some scarlet silk for Mashai that her grandmother had pulled from the wreck of a cog washed up on the frozen shore. It was the greatest treasure she had, and her gift to me. He swept the cloak back over his shoulders. But at the Shadow Tower I was given a new wool cloak from stores, black and black, and trimmed with black, to go with my black breeches and black boots, my black doublet and black mail. The new cloak had no frays, nor rips, nor tears, and most of all, no red. The men of the Night's Watch dressed in black, Sir Dennis Malister reminded me sternly, as if I had forgotten. My old cloak was fit for burning now, he said. I left the next morning for a place where a kiss was not a crime, and a man could wear any cloak he chose. He closed the clasp and sat back down again. And you, John Snow? John took another swallow of mead. There is only one tale that he might believe. You say you were at Winterfell, the night my father feasted King Robert? I did see it, for I was. Then you saw us all, Prince Joffrey and Prince Tommen, Princess Marcella, my brothers Rob and Bran and Rickon, my sisters Arya and Sansa. You saw them walk the center aisle with every eye upon them, and take their seats at the table just below the dais where the king and queen were seated. I remember. And did you see where I was seated, Mans? He leaned forward. Did you see where they put the bastard? Mans Raider looked at John's face for a long moment. I think we had best find you a new cloak, the king said holding out his hand. Daenerys Across the still blue water came the slow, steady beat of drums and the slow swish of oars from the galleys. The great cog groaned in their wake, the heavy lines stretched taut between. Valerian sails hung limp, drooping forlorn from the masts. 
Yet even so, as she stood upon the forecastle, watching her dragons chase each other across a cloudless blue sky, Daenerys Targaryen was as happy as she could ever remember being. A Dothraki called the sea the poison water, distrusting any liquid that their horses could not drink. On the day the three ships had lifted anchored Carth, you would have thought they were sailing to hell instead of Pentos. Her brave young blood riders had stared off at the dwindling coastline with huge white eyes, each of the three determined to show no fear before the other two, while her handmaids, Iri and Jiqui, clutched the rail desperately and retched over the side at every little swell. The rest of Danny's tiny calisar remained below decks, preferring the company of their nervous horses to the terrifying landless world about the ships. When a sudden squall had enveloped them six days into the voyage, she heard them through the hatches, the horses kicking and screaming, the riders praying in thin, quavery voices each time Valerian heaved or swayed. No squall could frighten Danny, though. Daenerys Stormborn, she was called, for she had come howling into the world on distant Dragonstone as the greatest storm in the memory of Westeros howled outside, a storm so fierce that it ripped gargoyles from the castle walls and smashed her father's fleet to kindling. The narrow sea was often stormy, and Danny had crossed it half a hundred times as a girl, running from one free city to the next, half a step ahead of the usurper's hard knives. She loved the sea. She liked the sharp, salty smell of the air, and the vastness of horizons bounded only by a vault of azure sky above. It made her feel small, but free as well. She liked the dolphins that sometimes swam along beside Valerian, slicing through the waves like silvery spears, and the flying fish they glimpsed now and again. She even liked the sailors, with all their songs and stories. Once on a voyage to Bravus, as she watched the crew wrestle down a great green sail in a rising gale, she had even thought how fine it would be to be a sailor. But when she told her brother, Viserys had twisted her hair until she cried, "'You are blood of the dragon!' he had screamed at her. "'A dragon, not some smelly fish!' He was a fool about that, and so much else, Danny thought. If he had been wiser and more patient, it would be him sailing west to take the throne that was his by rights. Viserys had been stupid and vicious, she had come to realize, yet— Sometimes she missed him all the same. Not the cruel, weak man he had become by the end, but the brother who had sometimes let her creep into his bed, the boy who told her tales of the seven kingdoms and talked of how much better their lives would be once he claimed his crown. The captain appeared at her elbow. Would that this Valerian could soar as her namesake did, your grace he said in bastard Valerian, heavily flavoured with accents of Pentos. Then we should not need to row, nor tow, nor pray for wind. Just so, Captain, she answered with a smile, pleased to have won the man over. Captain Galio was an old Pentoshi, like his master, Illyrio Mopatus, and he had been nervous as a maiden about carrying three dragons on his ship. 
half a hundred buckets of seawater still hung from the gunnels in case of fires. At first Grelio had wanted the dragons caged, and Danny had consented to put his fears at ease. But their misery was so palpable that she soon changed her mind and insisted they be freed. Even Captain Grelio was glad of that now. There had been one small fire easily extinguished. Against that, Balerian suddenly seemed to have far fewer rats than she'd had before when she sailed under the name Sedulian. And her crew, once as fearful as they were curious, had begun to take a queer, fierce pride in their dragons. Every man of them, from captain to cook's boy, loved to watch the three fly, though none so much as Danny. They are my children, she told herself, and if the Magi spoke truly, they are the only children I am ever like to have. The Syrian scales were the color of fresh cream, his horns, wing bones, and spinal crest a dark gold that flashed bright as metal in the sun. Regal was made of the green of summer and the bronze of fall. They soared above the ships in wide circles, higher and higher, each trying to climb above the other. Dragons always preferred to attack from above, Danny had learned. Should either get between the other and the sun, he would fold his wings and dive, screaming, and they would tumble from the sky, locked together in a tangled scaly ball, jaws snapping and tails lashing. The first time they had done it, she feared that they meant to kill each other, but it was only sport. No sooner would they splash into the sea than they would break apart and rise again, shrieking and hissing, the salt water steaming off them as their wings clawed at the air. Drogon was aloft as well, though not in sight. He would be miles ahead, or miles behind, hunting. He was always hungry, her Drogon, hungry and growing fast. Another year, or perhaps two, and he may be large enough to ride. Then I shall have no need of ships to cross the great salt sea. But that time was not yet come. Regal and Viserion were the size of small dogs. Drogon only a little larger, and any dog would have outweighed them. They were all wings and neck and tail, lighter than they looked, and so Daenerys Targaryen must rely on wood and wind and canvas to bear her home. The wood and the canvas had served her well enough so far, but the fickle wind had turned traitor. For six days and six nights they had been becalmed, and now a seventh day had come, and still no breath of air to fill their sails. Fortunately, two of the ships that Magister Illyrio had sent after her were trading galleys, with two hundred oars apiece, and crews of strong-armed oarsmen to row them. But the great cog Balerian was a song of a different key, a ponderous, broad-beam sow of a ship, with immense holes and huge sails, but helpless in a calm. Vagar and Moraxis had let out lines to tow her, but it made for painfully slow going. All three ships were crowded and heavily laden. "'I cannot see Drogon,' said Sir Jorah Mormont, as he joined her on the forecastle. "'Is he lost again?' "'We are the ones who are lost, sir. Drogon 
has no taste for this wet creeping no more than I do. Bolder than the other two, her black dragon had been the first to try his wings above the water, the first to flutter from ship to ship, the first to lose himself in a passing cloud, and the first to kill. The flying fish no sooner broke the surface of the water than they were enveloped in a lance of flame, snatched up and swallowed. How big will he grow? Danny asked curiously. Do you know? In the Seven Kingdoms there are tales of dragons who grew so huge that they could pluck giant krakens from the sea. Danny laughed. That would be a wondrous sight to see. It is only a tale, Khaleesi, said her exile knight. They talk of wise old dragons living a thousand years as well. Well, how long does a dragon live? She looked up as Vasirin swooped low over the ship, his wings beating slowly and stirring the limp sails. Sir Jorah shrugged. A dragon's natural span of days is many times as long as a man's, or so the songs would have us believe, but the dragons the Seven Kingdoms knew best were those of House Trigarian. They were bred for war, and in war they died. It is no easy thing to slay a dragon, but it can be done. The squire, Whitebeard, standing by the figurehead with one lean hand curled about his tall, hardwood staff, turned toward them and said, Beleriand, the black dread, was two hundred years old when he died during the reign of uh, Jairus, the uh, conciliator. He was so large he could swallow an oryx whole. A dragon never stops growing, your dress, so long as he has food and freedom. His name was Arstan, but Strong Belwas had named him Whitebeard for his pale whiskers, and most everyone called him that now. He was taller than Sir Jorah, but not so muscular. His eyes were a pale blue, his long beard as white as snow and as fine as silk. Freedom? asked Danny, curious. What do you mean? In King's Landing, your ancestors raised an immense domed castle for their dragons. The Dragon Pit, it is called. It still stands atop the Hill of Rainies, though all in ruins now. That was where the royal dragons dwelt in days of yore, and a cavernous dwelling it was with iron doors so wide that thirty knights could ride through them abreast. Yet even so, it was noted that none of the pit dragons ever reached the size of their ancestors. The masters say it was because of the walls around them and the great dome above their heads. If walls could keep us small, peasants would all be tiny and kings as large as giants, said Sir Jorah. I've seen huge men born in hovels and dwarfs who dwelt in castles. Men are men, Whitebeard replied. Dragons are um, dragons. Sir Jorah snorted his disdain. How profound! The exile knight had no love for the old man. He'd made that plain from the first. What do you know of dragons anyway? 
little enough, that's true. Yet I served for a time in King's Landing in the days when King Ares sat the Iron Throne and walked beneath the dragon skulls that looked down from the walls of his throne room. Viserys talked to those skulls, said Danny. The usurper took them down and hid them away. He could not bear them looking down on him upon his stolen throne. She beckoned White Beard closer. Did you ever meet my royal father? King Aerys II had died before his daughter was born. I had that great honor, Your Grace. Did you find him good and gentle? White Beard did his best to hide his feelings, but they were there, plain on his face. His grace was uh, often uh, pleasant. Often, Danny smiled, but not always. He could be very harsh to those he thought his enemies. A wise man never makes an enemy of a king, Danny said. Did you know my brother Rhaegar as well? It was said that no man ever knew Prince uh, Rhaegar, truly. I had the privilege of seeing him in Tawny, though, and, and often heard him play his harp with its uh, silver strings. Sir Jorah snorted. Along with a thousand others at some harvest feast. Next you'll claim you squired for him. I make no such claim, sir. Miles uh, Mouton was Prince Rhaegar's squire, and Richard uh, Longmouth after him. When they won their spurs, he knighted them himself, and they remained his close companions. Young Lord uh, Cunningham was dear to the prince as well, but his oldest friend was uh, Arthur Dane. The sword of the morning, said Danny, delighted. Viserys used to talk about his wondrous white blade. He said Sir Arthur was the only knight in the realm who was our brother's peer. Whitebeard bowed his head. It is not my place to question the words of Prince uh, Viserys. King, Danny corrected. He was a king, though he never reigned. Viserys the third of his name. But what do you mean? His answer had not been one she'd expected. Sir Jorah named Rhaegar the last dragon once. He had to have been a peerless warrior to be called that, surely. Your Grace, said Whitebeard, the Prince of uh, Dragonstone was a most puissant warrior, but... Uh, Go on, she urged. You may speak freely to me. As you command. The old man leaned upon his hardwood staff, his brow furrowed. A warrior who is out of peer. Those are fine words, Your Grace, but words win no battles. Swords win battles, Sir Jorah said bluntly, and Prince Rhaegar knew how to use one. He did, sir, but uh, I have seen a hundred tournaments and more wars than I would wish, and however strong or fast or skilled a knight may be, there are others who can uh, match him. A man will win one tourney and uh, fall quickly in the next. A slick spot in the grass may mean defeat, or what you ate for supper the night before. 
A change in the wind may bring the gift of victory. He glanced at Sir Jorah. Or a lady's favor knotted round an arm. Mormont's face darkened. Be careful what you say, old man. Austin had seen Sir Jorah fight at Lannisport, Danny knew. In the tourney, Mormont had won with a lady's favor knotted round his arm. He had won the lady, too. Liness of House Hightower, his second wife, high-born and beautiful, but she had ruined him and abandoned him, and the memory of her was bitter to him now. Be gentle, my knight. She put a hand on Jorah's arm. Austin has no wish to give offence, I'm certain. Unless you say, Khaleesi. Sir Jorah's voice was grudging. Danny turned back to the squire. I know little of Rhaegar, only the tales Viserys told, and he was a little boy when our brother died. What was he truly like? The old man considered for a moment. Um, able, that above all, determined, deliberate, dutiful, single-minded. There is a tale told of him, but doubtless Sir Jorah knows it as well. I would hear it from you. As you wish, said Whitebeard. As a young boy, the Prince of uh, Dragonstone was bookish to a fault. He was reading so early that men said Queen Rayella must have swallowed some books and a candle whilst he was in her womb. <laughs> Rhaegar took no interest in the play of other children. The masters were awed by his wits. But his father's knights would jest sourly that Baelor the Blessed had been born again, until one day Prince Rhaegar found something in his scrolls that changed him. No one knows what it might have been, only that the boy suddenly appeared early one morning in the yard as the knights were donning their steel. He walked up to Sir Willem Derry, the master at arms, and said, I will require sword and armor. It seems I must be a warrior. And he was, said Danny, delighted. He was, indeed. Whitebeard bowed. My pardon, Your Grace. We speak of warriors, and I see the strong Belvis has arisen. I must attend him. Danny glanced aft. The eunuch was climbing through the hold amidships, nimble for all his size. Belwas was squat but broad, a good fifteen stone of fat and muscle, his great brown gut crisscrossed by faded white scars. He wore baggy pants, a yellow silk belly band, and an absurdly tiny leather vest dotted with iron studs. Strong Belwas is hungry, he roared at everyone and no one in particular. Strong Belwas will eat now. Turning, he spied Austin on the forecastle. White beard, you will bring food for Strong Belwas. You may go, Danny told the squire. He bowed again and moved off to tend the needs of the man he served. Sir Jorah watched with a frown on his blunt, honest face. Mormont was big and burly strong of jaw and thick of shoulder. 
not a handsome man by any means, but as true a friend as Danny had ever known. You would be wise to take that old man's words well sorted, he told her when Whitebeard was out of earshot. A queen must listen to all, she reminded him. The high-born and the low, the strong and the weak, the noble and the venal. One voice may speak you false, but in many there is always truth to be found. She had read that in a book. Hear my voice, then, your grace, the exile said. This Arston Whitebeard is playing you false. He is too old to be a squire, and too well-spoken to be serving that oaf of a eunuch. That does seem queer, Danny had to admit. Strong Belwas was an ex-slave, bred and trained in the fighting pits of Marine. Magister Illyrio had sent him to guard her, or so Belwas claimed, and it was true that she needed guarding. The usurper on his iron throne had offered land and lordship to any man who killed her. One attempt had been made already, with a cup of poisoned wine. The closer she came to Westeros, the more likely another attack became. Back in Carth, the warlock, Piat Pri, had sent a sorrowful man after her, to avenge the undying she'd burned in their house of dust. Warlocks never forgot a wrong, it was said, and the sorrowful men never failed to kill. Most of the Dothraki would be against her as well. Karl Drogo's coes led Kalasars of their own now, and none of them would hesitate to attack her own little band on sight, to slay and slave her people, and drag Danny back to Vase Dothrak to take her proper place among the withered crones of the Dosh Colleen. She hoped that Zaro Zoandaxis was not an enemy, but the Carthian merchant had coveted her dragons, and there was Quaith of the Shadow, that strange woman in the red lacquer mask, with all her cryptic counsel. Was she an enemy too, or only a dangerous friend? Danny could not say. Sir Jorah saved me from the poisoner, and Austin Whitebeard from the manticore. Perhaps Strong Belwas will save me from the next. He was huge enough, with arms like small trees, and a great curved arrack so sharp he might have shaved with it, in the unlikely event of hair sprouting on those smooth brown cheeks. Yet he was childlike as well. As a protector, he leaves much to be desired. Thankfully, I have Sir Jorah, and my blood-riders, and my dragons, never forget. In time, the dragons would be her most formidable guardians, just as they had been for Aegon the Conqueror and his sisters three hundred years ago. Just now, though, they brought her more danger than protection. In all the world there were but three living dragons, and those were hers. They were a wonder, and a terror, and beyond price. She was pondering her next words when she felt a cool breath on the back of her neck, and a loose strand of her silver-gold hair stirred against her brow. Above the canvas creaked and moved, and suddenly a great cry went up from all over Balerion. Wind! the sailors shouted. The wind returns! The wind! Danny looked up to where the great cog sails rippled and belled as the lines thrummed and tightened and sang the sweet song they had missed for six long days. Captain Grillo rushed aft, shouting commands. 
The Bentoshier were scrambling up the masts, those that were not cheering. Even strong Belwas let out a great bellow and did a little dance. The guards are good, Danny said. You see, Jorah, we are on our way once more. Yes, he said. But to what, my queen? All day the wind blew, steady from the east at first, and then in wild gusts. The sun set in a blaze of red. I'm still half a world from Westeros, Danny reminded herself. But every hour brings me closer. She tried to imagine what it would feel like when she first caught sight of the land she was born to rule. It will be as fair a shore as I have ever seen. I know it. How could it be otherwise? But later that night, as Balerion plunged onward through the dark, and Danny sat cross-legged on her bunk in the captain's cabin, feeding her dragons, Even upon the sea, Broleo had said so graciously, Queens take precedence over captains. A sharp knock came upon the door. Erie had been sleeping at the foot of her bunk. It was too narrow for three, and tonight was Jiqui's turn to share the soft feather bed with her Khaleesi. But the handmaid roused at the knock and went to the door. Danny pulled up the coverlet and tucked it under her arms. She was naked and had not expected a caller at this hour. Come, she said, when she saw Sir Jorah standing without, beneath a swaying lantern. The exile knight ducked his head as he entered. Your Grace, I'm sorry to disturb your sleep. I was not sleeping, sir. Come and watch. She took a chunk of salt pork out of the bowl in her lap and held it up for her dragons to see. All three of them eyed it hungrily. Rhaegal spread green wings and stirred the air, and Viserion's neck swayed back and forth like a long pale snake's as he followed the movement of her hand. Drogon, Danny said softly, Dacaris, and she tossed the pork in the air. Drogon moved quicker than a striking cobra. Flame roared from his mouth, orange and scarlet and black, searing the meat before it began to fall. As his sharp black teeth snapped shut around it, Rhaegar's head darted close, as if to steal the prize from his brother's jaws. But Drogon swallowed and screamed, and the smaller green dragon could only hiss in frustration. Stop that, Rhaegar, Danny said in annoyance, giving his head a swat. You had the last one. I'll have no greedy dragons. She smiled at Sir Jorah. I won't need to char their meat over a brazier any longer. So I see. Dracarys? All three dragons turned their heads at the sound of that word, and Viserion let loose with a blast of pale gold flame that made Sir Jorah take a hasty step backward. Danny giggled. Be careful with that word, sir or they'll like to singe your beard off. It means dragonfire in High Valyrian. I wanted to choose a command that no one was like to utter by chance. Mormont nodded. Your Grace, he said, I wonder if I might have a few private words. Of course, Erie, leave us for a bit. She put a hand on Jiqui's bare shoulder and shook the other handmaid awake. You as well, sweetling. Sir Jorah needs to talk to me. Yes, Khaleesi. Jiqui tumbled from the bunk, naked and yawning. Her thick black hair tumbled about her head. She dressed quickly, 
and left with Iri closing the door behind them. Danny gave the dragons the rest of the salt pork to squabble over and patted the bed beside her. Sit, good sir, and tell me what is troubling you. Three things, Sir Jorah sat. Strong Belwis, this Austin Whitebeard, and Illyrio Mopatus who sent them. Again, Danny pulled the coverlet higher and tugged one end over her shoulder. And why is that? The warlocks in Kars told you that you would be betrayed three times, the exile knight reminded her as Viserion and Rhaegal began to snap and claw at each other. Once for blood, and once for gold, and once for love. Danny was not like to forget. Miramaz Dur was the first. Which means two traitors yet remain. And now these two appear. I find that troubling, yes? Never forget, Robert offered a lordship to the man who slays you. Danny leaned forward and yanked Viserion's tail to pull him off his green brother. Her blanket fell away from her chest as she moved. She grabbed it hastily and covered herself again. The usurper is dead, she said. But his son rules in his place. Sir Jorah lifted his gaze, and his dark eyes met her own. A dutiful son pays his father's debts, even blood debts. This boy Joffrey might want me dead, if he recalls that I'm alive. What has that to do with Belwas and Arston Whitebeard? The old man does not even wear a sword. You've seen that. I, and I've seen how deftly he handles that staff of his. Recall how he killed that manticore in Karth? It might as easily have been your throat he crushed. Might have been, but was not, she pointed out. It was a stinging manticore meant to slay me. He saved my life. Khaleesi, has it occurred to you that Whitebeard and Belwas might have been in league with the assassin? It might all have been a ploy to win your trust. <laughs> a sudden laughter made Drogon hiss and sent Viserion flapping to his perch above the porthole. The ploy worked well. The exile knight did not return her smile. These are Illyrio's ships, Illyrio's captains, Illyrio's sailors, and strong Belwas and Arstan are his men as well, not yours. Magister Illyrio has protected me in the past. Strong Belwas says that he wept when he heard my brother was dead. Yes, said Mormont, but did he weep for Viserys or for the plans he had made with him? His plans need not change. Magister Illyrio is a friend of House Targaryen and wealthy. He was not born wealthy. In the world as I have seen it, no man grows rich by kindness. The warlock said the second treason would be for gold. What does Illyrio Mopatus love more than gold? His skin. Across the cabin, Drogon stirred restlessly, steam rising from his snout. Miramaz Dur betrayed me. I burned her for it. Miramaz Dur was in your power. In Pentos, you shall be in Illyrio's power. It's not the same. I know the Magister as well as you. He is a devious man, and clever. I need clever men about me, if I am to win the Iron Throne. Sir Jorah snorted. Ha! <laughs> That wine-seller who tried to poison you was a clever man as well. Clever men hatch ambitious schemes. 
Danny drew her legs up beneath the blanket. You will protect me. You and my blood riders. Four men? Khaleesi, you believe you know Illyria Mopatis. Very well. Yet you insist on surrounding yourself with men you do not know, like this puffed-up eunuch and the world's oldest squire. Take a lesson from Piat Pri and Zarozoan Dexus. He means well, Danny reminded herself. He does all he does for love. It seems to me that a queen who trusts no one is as foolish as a queen who trusts everyone. Every man I take into my service is a risk, I understand that. But how am I to win the Seven Kingdoms without such risks? Am I to conquer Westeros with one exile knight and three Dothraki bloodriders? His jaw set stubbornly. Your path is dangerous, I will not deny that. But if you blindly trust in every liar and schemer who crosses it, you will end as your brothers did. His obstinacy made her angry. He treats me like some child. Strong Belwas could not scheme his way to breakfast, and what lies has Aston Whitebeard told me? He is not what he pretends to be. He speaks to you more boldly than any squire would dare. He spoke frankly at my command. He knew my brother. A great many men knew your brother. Your grace, in Westeros, the Lord Commander of the King's Guard sits on the small council and serves the king with his wits as well as his steel. If I am the first of your Queen's Guard, I pray you, hear me out. I have a plan to put to you. What plan? Tell me. Illyrio Mopatus wants you back in Pentos, under his roof. Very well. Go to him. But in your own time, and not alone. Let us see how loyal and obedient these new subjects of yours truly are. Command Grolio to change course for Slaver's Bay. Danny was not certain she liked the sound of that at all. Everything she'd ever heard of the flesh marts in the great slave cities of Yunkai, Marine, and Astapor was dire and frightening. What is there for me in Slaver's Bay? An army, said Sir Jorah. If strong Belwas is so much your liking, you can buy hundreds more like him out of the fighting pits of Marine. But it is Astapor I'd set my sails for. In Astapor you can buy unsullied. The slaves in the spiked bronze hats? Danny had seen unsolid guards in the free cities, posted at the gates of magisters, archons, and dynasts. Why should I want unsolid? They don't even ride horses, and most of them are fat. The unsolid, you may have seen in Pentos and Myrrh, were household guards. That's soft service, and eunuchs tend to plumpness in any case. Food is the only vice allowed them. To judge all unsullied by a few old household slaves is like judging all squires by Aston Whitebeard, your grace. Do you know the tale of the three thousand of Kohor? No. The coverlet slipped off Danny's shoulder, and she tugged it back into place. It was four hundred years ago, or more, when the Dothraki first rode out of the east, sacking and burning every town and city in their path. 
The Carl who led them was named Temo. His calisaur was not so big as Droger's, but it was big enough. Fifty thousand at the least, half of them braided warriors with bells ringing in their hair. The Kohoric knew he was coming. They strengthened their walls, doubled the size of their own guard, and hired two free companies besides, the Bright Banners and the Second Sons. And almost as an afterthought, they sent a man to Astapor to buy three thousand unsullied. It was a long march back to Kohor, however, and as they approached they saw the smoke and dust, and heard the distant din of battle. By the time the unsullied reached the city, the sun had set. Crows and wolves were feasting beneath the walls on what remained of the Kohoric heavy horse. The bright banners and second sons had fled, as sellswords are wont to do in the face of hopeless odds. With dark falling, the Dothraki had retired to their own camps to drink and dance and feast, but none doubted that they would return on the morrow to smash the city gates, storm the walls, and rape, loot, and slave as they pleased. But when dawn broke, and Temo and his blood riders led their calisar out of the camp, they found three thousand unsolid drawn up before the gates, with a black goat standard flying over their heads. So small a force could easily have been flanked. But you know, Dothraki, these were men on foot, and men on foot are fit only to be ridden down. The Dothraki charged. The unsolid locked their shields, lowered their spears, and stood firm. Against twenty thousand screamers with bells in their hair, they stood firm. Eighteen times the Dothraki charged, and broke themselves on those shields and spears like waves on a rocky shore. Thrice Temo sent his archers wheeling past, and arrows fell like rain upon the three thousand, but the unsolid melee lifted their shields above their heads until the squall had passed. In the end, only six hundred of them remained, but more than twelve thousand Dothraki lay dead upon that field, including Carl Temo, his blood-riders, his Kos, and all his sons. On the morning of the fourth day, the new Carl led the survivors past the city gates in a stately procession. One by one each man cut off his braid and threw it down before the feet of the three thousand. Since that day, the city guard of Kohor has been made up solely of unsolid, every one of whom carries a tall spear from which hangs a braid of human hair. That is what you will find in Astapor, your grace. Put ashore there, and continue on to Pentos overland. It will take longer, yes, but when you break bread with Magister Illyrio, you will have a thousand swords behind you, not just four. There is wisdom in this, yes, Danny thought. But how am I to buy a thousand slave soldiers? All I have of value is the crown the Tormeline Brotherhood gave me. Dragons will be as great a wonder in Astapor as they were in Kars. It may be that the slavers will shower you with gifts 
is the Carthine did. If not, these ships carry more than your Dothraki and their horses. They took on trade goods at Carth. I've been through the holes and seen for myself bolts of silk and bales of tiger skin, amber and jade carvings, saffron, myrrh. Slaves are cheap, your grace. Tiger skins are costly. Those are Illyrio's tiger skins, she objected, and Illyrio is a friend to a house Trigarian. All the more reason not to steal his goods. What use are wealthy friends if they will not put their wealth at your disposal, my queen? If Magister Illyrio would deny you, he is only Zarozoandaxus with four chins, and if he is sincere in his devotion to your cause, he will not begrudge you three shiploads of trade goods. What better use for his tiger skins than to buy you the beginnings of an army? That's true. Danny felt a rising excitement. There will be dangers on such a long march. There are dangers at sea as well. Corsairs and pirates hunt the southern route, and north of Valeria the smoking sea is demon-haunted. The next storm could sink or scatter us, a kraken could pull us under, or we might find ourselves becalmed again and die of thirst as we wait for the wind to rise. A march will have different dangers, my queen, but none greater. What if Captain Grillo refuses to change course, though? And Arstan, strong Belwas, what will they do? Sir Jorah stood. Perhaps it's time... You found that out? Yes, she decided. I'll do it. Danny threw back the coverlets and hopped from the bunk. I'll see the captain at once. Command him to set course for Astapor. She bent over her chest, threw open the lid, and seized the first garment to hand, a pair of loose, sand-silk trousers. Hand me my medallion belt, she commanded Jorah, as she pulled the sand silk up over her hips. And my vest, she started to say, turning. Sir Jorah slid his arms around her. Oh, was all Danny had time to say, as he pulled her close and pressed his lips down on hers. He smelled of sweat and salt and leather, and the iron studs on his jerkin dug into her naked breasts as he crushed her hard against him. One hand held her by the shoulder, while the other slid down her spine to the small of her back, and her mouth opened for his tongue, though she never told it to. His beard is scratchy, she thought, but his mouth is sweet. The Dothraki wore no beards, only long moustaches, and only Karl Drogo had ever kissed her before. He should not be doing this. I am his queen, not his woman. It was a long kiss, though how long Danny could not have said. When it ended, Sir Jorah let go of her, and she took a quick step backward. You... you should not have... I should not have waited so long, he finished for her. I should have kissed you in Karth, in Ray's Taloru. I should have kissed you in the Red Waste every night and every day. You were made to be kissed often and well. His eyes were on her breasts. Danny covered them with her hands before her nipples could betray her. I... that was 
not fitting. I am your queen. My queen, he said, and the bravest, sweetest, and most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Daenerys, your grace. Oh, your grace, he conceded. The dragon has three heads, remember. You have wondered at that ever since you heard it from the warlocks in the House of Dust. Well, here's your meaning. Valerian, Maraxis, and Vagar, written by Aegon, Rhaenys, and Visenya. The three-headed dragon of House Dragarian. Three dragons and three riders. Yes, said Danny, but my brothers are dead. Rhaenys and Visenya were Aegon's wives, as well as his sisters. You have no brothers, but you can take husbands. And I tell you truly, Daenerys, there is no man in all the world who will ever be half so true to you as me. Bran The ridge slanted sharply from the earth, a long fold of stone and soil shaped like a claw. Trees clung to its lower slopes, pines and hawthorn and ash. But higher up the ground was bare, the ridgeline stark against the cloudy sky. He could feel the high stone calling him. Up he went, loping easily at first, then faster and higher, his strong legs eating up the incline. Birds burst from the branches overhead as he raced by, clawing and flapping their way into the sky. He could hear the wind sighing up amongst the leaves, the squirrels chittering to one another, even the sound a pinecone made as it tumbled to the forest floor. The smells were a song around him, a song that filled the good green world. Gravel flew from beneath his paws as he gained the last few feet to stand upon the crest. The sun hung above the tall pines, huge and red, and below him the trees and hills went on and on as far as he could see or smell. A kite was circling far above, dark against the pink sky. Prince, the man's sound came into his head suddenly, yet he could feel the rightness of it. Prince of the green, prince of the wolf's wood. He was strong and swift and fierce, and all that lived in the good green world went in fear of him. Far below, at the base of the woods, something moved against the trees, a flash of grey, quick glimpsed and gone again, but it was enough to make his ears prick up. Down there, beside a swift green brook, another form slipped by, running. Wolves, he knew. His little cousins, chasing down some prey. Now the prince could see more of them, shadows on fleet grey paws. A pack. He had a pack as well once. Five they had been, and a sixth who stood aside. Somewhere down inside him were the sounds the men had given them to tell one from the other, but it was not by their sounds he knew them. He remembered their scents, his brothers and his sisters. They all had smelled alike, had smelled of pack, but each was different too. His angry brother, with the hot green eyes, was near, the prince felt, though he had not seen him for many hunts. Yet with every sun that set he grew more distant, 
and he had been the last. The others were far scattered, like leaves blown by the wild wind. Sometimes he could sense them, though, as if they were still with him, only hidden from his sight by a boulder or a stand of trees. He could not smell them, nor hear their howls by night, yet he felt their presence at his back. All but the sister they had lost. His tail drooped when he remembered her. Four now, not five, four, and one more, the white who has no voice. These woods belong to them, the snowy slopes and stony hills, the great green pines and the golden-leaf oaks, the rushing streams and blue lakes fringed with fingers of white frost. But his sister had left the wilds to walk in the halls of Manrock, where other hunters ruled, and once within those halls it was hard to find the path back out. The wolf prince remembered. The wind shifted suddenly. Deer and fear and blood. The scent of prey woke the hunger in him. The prince sniffed the air again, turning, and then he was off, bounding along the ridgetop with jaws half-parted. The far side of the ridge was steeper than the one he'd come up, but he flew shorefoot over stones and roots and rotting leaves, down the slope and through the trees, long strides eating up the ground. The scent pulled him onward ever faster. The deer was down and dying when he reached her, ringed by eight of his small grey cousins. The heads of the pack had begun to feed, the male first and then his female, taking turns tearing flesh from the red underbelly of their prey. The others waited patiently, all but the tail, who paced in a wary circle a few strides from the rest, his own tail tucked low. He would eat last of all, whatever his brothers left him. The prince was downwind, so they did not sense him until he leapt upon a fallen log six strides from where they fed. The tail saw him first, gave a piteous whine, and slunk away. His pack-brothers turned at the sound and bared their teeth, snarling, all but the head male and female. The direwolf answered the snarls with a low warning growl and showed them his own teeth. He was bigger than his cousins, twice the size of the scrawny tail, half again as large as the two pack-heads. He leapt down into their midst, and three of them broke, melting away into the brush. Another came at him, teeth snapping. He met the attack head-on, caught the wolf's leg in his jaws when they met, and flung him aside, yelping and limping. And then there was only the head wolf to face. The great grey male, with his bloody muzzle, fresh from his prey's soft belly. There was white on his muzzle as well, to mark him as an old wolf. But when his mouth opened, red slaver ran from his teeth. He has no fear, the prince thought. No more than me. It would be a good fight. They went for each other. Long they fought, rolling together over roots and stones and fallen leaves and the scattered entrails of the prey, tearing at each other with tooth and claw, breaking apart, circling each round the other and bolting in to fight again. The prince was larger and much the stronger, but his cousin had a pack. The female prowled around them closely, 
snuffing and snarling, and would interpose herself whenever her mate broke off, blooded. From time to time the other wolves would dart in as well, to snap at a leg or an ear when the prince was turned the other way. One angered him so much that he whirled in a black fury and tore out the attacker's throat. After that, the others kept their distance. And as the last red light was filtering through green boughs and golden, the old wolf lay down weary in the dirt and rolled over to expose his throat and belly. It was submission. The prince sniffed at him and licked the blood from fur and torn flesh. When the old wolf gave a soft whimper, the dire wolf turned away. He was very hungry now, and the prey was his. Hodor! The sudden sound made him stop and snarl. The wolves regarded him with green and yellow eyes, bright with the last light of day. None of them had heard it. It was a queer wind that blew only in his ears. He buried his jaws into the deer's belly and tore off a mouthful of flesh. Hodor! Hodor! No, he thought. No, I won't. It was a boy's thought, not a dire wolf's. The woods were darkening all about him, until only the shadows of the trees remained and the glow of his cousin's eyes. And through those, and behind those eyes, he saw a big man's grinning face and a stone vault whose walls were sputted with nitre. The rich warm taste of blood faded on his tongue. No, don't, don't, uh, I want to eat, I want to, I want... Hodor, 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 Hodor chanted as he shook him softly by the shoulders, back and forth and back and forth. He was trying to be gentle, he always tried, but Hodor was seven feet tall and stronger than he knew, and his huge hands rattled Bran's teeth together. No, he shouted angrily, Hodor, leave off, I'm here, I'm here. Hodor stopped looking abashed. Hodor! The woods and wolves were gone. Bran was back again, down in the damp vault of some ancient watchtower that must have been abandoned thousands of years before. It wasn't much of a tower now. Even the tumbled stones were so overgrown with moss and ivy that you could hardly see them until you were right on top of them. Tumble-down tower! Bran had named the place. It was Mira who found the way down into the vault, however. You were gone too long. Jojen Reed was thirteen, only four years older than Bran. Jojen wasn't much bigger either, no more than two inches or maybe three, but he had a solemn way of talking that made him seem older and wiser than he really was. At Winterfell, old Nan had dubbed him Little Grandfather. Bran frowned at him. I wanted to eat. Mira will be back soon with supper. I'm sick of frogs. Mira was a frog-eater from the neck, so Bran couldn't really blame her for catching so many frogs, he supposed, but even so. I wanted to eat the deer. For a moment he remembered the taste of it, the blood, and the raw, rich meat, and his mouth watered. I won the fight for it. I won. Did you mark the trees? Bran flushed. 
Jojen was always telling him to do things when he opened his third eye and put on summer skin, to claw the bark of a tree to catch a rabbit and bring it back in his jaws uneaten, to push some rocks in a line. Stupid things. I forgot, he said. You always forget. It was true. He meant to do the things that Jojen asked, but once he was a wolf, they never seemed important. There were always things to see and things to smell, a whole green world to hunt, and he could run. There was nothing better than running, unless it was running after prey. I was a prince, Jojen, he told the older boy. I was the prince of the woods. You are a prince, Jojen reminded him softly. You remember, don't you? Tell me who you are. You know. Jojen was his friend and his teacher, but sometimes Bran just wanted to hit him. I want you to say the words. Tell me who you are. Bran, he said sullenly. Bran the Broken. Brandon Stark, a crippled boy. The Prince of Winterfell. Of Winterfell burned and tumbled, its people scattered and slain. The glass gardens were smashed, and hot water gushed from the cracked walls to steam beneath the sun. How can you be the prince of some place you might never see again? And who is Summer? Jojen prompted. My direwolf, he smiled. Prince of the Green. Bran the boy and Summer the wolf. You are two, then. Two, he sighed, and one. He hated Jojen when he got stupid like this. At Winterfell, he wanted me to dream my wolf dreams, and now that I know how, he's always calling me back. Remember that, Bran. Remember yourself, or the wolf will consume you. When you join, it's not enough to run and hunt and howl in summer's skin. It is for me, Bran thought. He likes summer's skin better than his own. What good is it to be a skin changer if you can't wear the skin you like? Will you remember? And next time, mark the tree. Any tree, it doesn't matter, so long as you do it. I will. I'll remember. I could go back and do it now, if you like. I won't forget this time. But I'll eat my deer first, and fight with those little wolves some more. Jojen shook his head. No, best stay and eat. With your own mouth. A war cannot live on what his beast consumes. How would you know? Bran thought resentfully. You've never been a warg. You don't know what it's like. Hodor jerked suddenly to his feet, almost hitting his head on the barrel-vaulted ceiling. Hodor! He shouted, rushing to the door. Mira pushed it open just before he reached it and stepped through into their refuge. Hodor! Hodor! the huge stable boy said, grinning. Mira Reed was sixteen, a woman grown, but she stood no higher than her brother. All the Cranog men were small, she told Bran once, when he asked why she wasn't taller. Brown-haired, green-eyed, and flat as a boy, she walked with a supple grace that Bran could only watch and envy. Mira wore a long, sharp dagger but her favorite way to fight was with a slender, three-pronged frog spear in one hand and a woven net in the other. "'Who's hungry?' 
she asked, holding up her catch, two small silvery trout and six fat green frogs. I am, said Bran, but not for frogs. Back at Winterfell, before all the bad things had happened, the warders used to say that eating frogs would turn your teeth green and make moss grow under your arms. He wondered if the warders were dead. He hadn't seen their corpses at Winterfell, but there had been a lot of corpses, and they hadn't looked inside the buildings. We'll just have to feed you, then. Will you help me clean the catch, Bran? He nodded. It was hard to sulk with Mira. She was much more cheerful than her brother, and always seemed to know how to make him smile. Nothing ever scared her or made her angry. Well, except Jojen sometimes. Jojen Reed could scare most anyone. He dressed all in green. His eyes were murky as moss, and he had green dreams. What Jojen dreamed came true. Except he dreamed me dead, and I'm not. Only he was, in a way. Jojen sent Hodor out for wood and built them a small fire, while Bran and Mira were cleaning the fish and frogs. They used Mira's helm for a cooking pot, chopping up the catch into little cubes and tossing in some water and some wild onions Hodor had found to make a froggy stew. It wasn't as good as deer, but it wasn't bad either, Bran decided as he ate. Thank you, Mira, he said. My lady, you are most welcome, your grace. Come the morrow, Jojen announced. We had best move on. Bran could see Mira tense. Have you had a green dream? No, he admitted. Why leave, then? his sister demanded. Tumbledown Tower is a good place for us. No villages near, the woods are full of game, there's fish and frogs in the streams and lakes, and who is ever going to find us here? This is not the place we are meant to be. It is safe, though. It seems safe, I know, said Jojen, but for how long? There was a battle at Winterfell. We saw the dead. Battles mean wars. If some army should take us unawares... It might be Rob's army, said Bran. Rob will come back from the south soon. I know he will. He'll come back with all his banners and chase the iron men away. Your maester said naught of Rob when he lay dying, Jojen reminded him. Iron men on the stony shore, he said, and east the bastard of Bolton. Moat Kaelin and Deepwood Mott fallen, the heir to Serwin dead, and the Castellan of Turin Square. War everywhere, he said, each man against his neighbor. We have plowed this field before, his sister said. You want to make for the wall and your three-eyed crow. That's well and good, but the wall is a very long way, and Bran has no legs but Hodor. If we were mounted, if we were eagles, we might fly, said Jojen sharply but we have no wings, no more than we have horses. There are horses to be had, said Mira. Even in the deep of the wolfswood there are foresters, crofters, hunters. Some will have horses. And if they do, should we steal them? Are we thieves? 
The last thing we need is men hunting us. We could buy them, she said. Trade for them. Look at us, Mirror. A crippled boy with a direwolf, a simple-minded giant, and two Cranog men a thousand leagues from the neck. We will be known. And word will spread. So long as Bran remains dead, he is safe. Alive, he becomes prey for those who want him dead for good and true. Jojen went to the fire to prod the embers with a stick. Somewhere to the north, the three-eyed crow awaits us. Bran has need of a teacher wiser than me. How, Jojen? his sister asked. How? A foot, he answered. A step at a time. The road from Greywater to Winterfell went on forever, and we were mounted then. You want us to travel a longer road on foot without even knowing where it ends? Beyond the wall, you say, I haven't been there no more than you. But I know that beyond the wall's a big place, Jojen. Are there many three-eyed crows or only one? How do we find him? Perhaps he will find us. Before Mira could find a reply to that, they heard the sound, the distant howl of a wolf drifting through the night. Summer? asked Jojen, listening. No, Bren knew the voice of his dire wolf. Are you certain? said the little grandfather. Certain. Summer had wandered far afield today and would not be back till dawn. Maybe Jojen dreams green, but he can't tell a wolf from a dire wolf. He wondered why they all listened to Jojen so much. He was not a prince like Bran, nor big and strong like Hodor, nor as good a hunter as Mira. yet somehow it was always Jojen telling them what to do. We should steal horses like Mira once, Bran said, and ride to the Umbers up at last hearth. He thought a moment, or we could steal a boat and sail down the White Knife to White Harbour Town. That fight Lord Manderley rules there, he was friendly at the harvest feast. He wanted to build ships, maybe he built some, and we could sail to River Run and bring Rob home with all his army. Then it wouldn't matter who knew I was alive. Rob wouldn't let anyone hurt us. Hodor! burped Hodor. Hodor! Hodor! He was the only one who liked Bran's plan, though. Mira just smiled at him, and Jojen frowned. They never listened to what he wanted, even though Bran was a Stark and a prince besides, and the reeds of the neck were Stark bannermen. Hodor! said Hodor, swaying. Hodor! 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 Sometimes he liked to do this, just saying his name different ways over and over and over. Other times he would say, so quiet, you forgot he was there. There was never any knowing with Hodor. Hodor! 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 He shouted. He's not going to stop, Bran realized. Hodor, he said, why don't you go outside and train with your sword? The stable boy had forgotten about his sword, but now he remembered. Hogor! He burped. 
he went for his blade. They had three tomb swords taken from the crypts of Winterfell, where Bran and his brother Rickon had hidden from Theon Greyjoy's iron men. Bran claimed his uncle Brandon's sword, Mira, the one she found upon the knees of his grandfather, Lord Rickard. Hodor's blade was much older, a huge, heavy piece of iron, dull from centuries of neglect and well sputted with rust. He could swing it for hours at a time. There was a rotted tree near the tumble stones that he had hacked half to pieces. Even when he went outside, they could hear him through the walls, bellowing, Hold your! as he cut and slashed at his tree. Thankfully, the wolf's wood was huge, and there was not like to be anyone else around here. Jojen, what did you mean about a teacher? Bren asked. You're my teacher. I know I never marked the tree, but I will the next time. My third eye is open like you want it. So wide open that I fear you may fall through it and live all the rest of your days as a wolf of the woods. I won't, I promise. The boy promises. Will the wolf remember? You run with Summer. You aren't with him. Kill with him. But you bend to his will more than him to yours. I just forget, Bran complained. I'm only nine. I'll be better when I'm older. Even Florian the Fool and Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight weren't great knights when they were nine. That is true, said Jojen, and a wise thing to say if the days were still growing longer. But they aren't. You are a summer child, I know. Tell me the words of Al Stark. Winter is coming. Just saying it made Bran feel cold. Jojen gave a solemn nod. I dreamed of a winged wolf bound to earth by chains of stone and came to Winterfell to free him. The chains are off you now, yet still you do not fly. Then you teach me. Bran still feared the three-eyed crow who haunted his dream sometimes, pecking endlessly at the skin between his eyes and telling him to fly. You're a green seer. No, said Jojen, only a boy who dreams. The green seers were more than that. They were wargs as well as you are, and the greatest of them could wear the skins of any beast that flies or swims or crawls, and could look through the eyes of the weirwoods as well, and see the truth that lies beneath the world. The gods give many gifts, Bran. My sister is a hunter. It is given to her to run swiftly, and stand so still she seems to vanish. She has sharp ears, keen eyes, a steady hand with net and spear. She can breathe mud and fly through trees. I could not do these things no more than you could. To me the gods gave the green dreams, and to you, you could be more than me, Bran. You are the winged wolf, and there is no saying how far and high you might fly if you had someone to teach you. How can I help you master a gift I do not understand? We remember the first men in the neck, and the children of the forest who were their friends, but so much is forgotten, 
and so much we never knew. Mira took Bran by the hand. If we stay here, troubling no one, you'll be safe until the war ends. You will not learn, though, except what my brother can teach you, and you've heard what he says. If we leave this place to seek refuge at last hearth or beyond the wall, we risk being taken. You're only a boy, I know, but you are our prince as well, our lord's son, and our king's true heir. We have sworn you our faith by earth and water, bronze and iron, ice and fire. The risk is yours, Bran, as is the gift. The choice should be yours too, I think. We are your servants to command. She grinned. At least in this. You mean, Bran said, you'll do what I say? Truly? Truly, my prince, the girl replied, so consider well. Bran tried to think it through, the way his father might have. The great John's uncles, Hotha Horsebane and Moore's Crow Food, were fierce men. But he thought they would be loyal, and the Carstarks them too. Carhold was a strong castle, father always said. We would be safe with the Umbers or the Carstarks, or they could go south to fat Lord Manderley. At Winterfell he'd laughed a lot, and never seemed to look at Bran with so much pity as the other lords. Castle Serwyn was closer than White Harbour, but Maester Lewin had said that Clay Serwyn was dead. The Umbers and the Carstocks and the Manderleys may all be dead as well, he realized, as he would be if he was caught by the Iron Men or the Bastard of Bolton. If they stayed here, hidden down beneath Tumbledown Tower, no one would find them. He would stay alive and crippled. Bran realized he was crying. Stupid baby, he thought to himself. No matter where he went, to Carhold, or White Harbor, or Greywater Watch, he'd be a cripple when he got there. He bored his hands into fists. I want to fly, he told them. Please, take me to the crow. Davis. When he came up on deck, the long point of drift mark was dwindling behind them while Dragonstone rose from the sea ahead. A pale grey wisp of smoke blew from the top of the mountain to mark where the island lay. Dragonmont is restless this morning, Davis thought, or else Melisande is burning someone else. Melisande had been much in his thoughts. A Shayala's dance made her way across Blackwater Bay and through the gullet, tacking against perverse contrary winds. The great fire that burned atop the sharp point watchtower at the end of Massey's hook reminded him of the ruby she wore at her throat, and when the world turned red at dawn and sunset, the drifting clouds turned the same color as the silks and satins of her rustling gowns. She would be waiting on Dragonstone as well, waiting in all her beauty and all her power, with her god and her shadows and his king. The Red Priestess had always seemed loyal to Stannis, until now. She has broken him as a man breaks horse, 
She would ride him to power if she could, and for that she gave my sons to the fire. I will cut the living heart from her breast and see how it burns. He touched the hilt of the fine long lysine dirk that the captain had given him. The captain had been very kind to him. His name was Corain Sathmantes, a Lysene like Salador San, whose ship this was. He had the same pale blue eyes you often saw on lice, set in a bony, weather-worn face, but he had spent many years trading in the Seven Kingdoms. When he learned that the man he had plucked from the sea was a celebrated onion knight, he gave him the use of his own cabin and his own clothes, and a pair of new boots that almost fit. He insisted that Davos share his provisions as well, though that turned out badly. His stomach could not tolerate the snails and lampreys and other rich food Captain Corain so relished, and after his first meal at the captain's table, he spent the rest of the day with one end or the other dangling over the rail. Dragonstone loomed larger with every stroke of the oars. Davis could see the shape of the mountain now, and on its side the great black citadel with its gargoyles and dragon towers. The bronze figurehead at the bow of Sheala's dance set up wings of salt spray as it cut the waves. He leaned his weight against the rail, grateful for its support. His ordeal had weakened him. If he stood too long, his leg shook, and sometimes he fell prey to uncontrollable fits of coughing and brought up gobs of bloody phlegm. "'There's nothing,' he told himself. "'Surely the gods did not bring me safe through fire and sea, only to kill me with a flux?' As he listened to the pounding of the oarmaster's drum, the thrum of the sail, and the rhythmic swish and creak of the oars, he thought back to his younger days, when these same sounds woke dread in his heart on many a misty morn. They heralded the approach of old Sir Tristaman's sea-watch, and the sea-watch was death to smugglers when Aerys Targaryen sat the Iron Throne. But that was another lifetime, he thought. That was before the Onion Ship, before Storm's End, before Stannis shortened my fingers. That was before the War, or the Red Comet, before I was a Seaworth, or a Knight. I was a different man in those days, before Lord Stannis raised me high. Captain Corain had told him of the end of Stannis's hopes. On the night, the river burned. The Lannises had taken him from the flank, and his fickle bannermen had abandoned him by the hundreds in the hour of his greatest need. King Orenly's shade was seen as well, the captain said, slaying right and left as he led the Lion Lord's van. It said his green armor took a ghostly glow from the wildfire, and his antlers ran with golden flames. Orenly's shade! Davis wondered if his sons would return as shades as well. He had seen too many queer things on the sea to say that ghosts did not exist. Did none keep faith? he asked. Some few, the captain said. The queen's kin, them in chief. We took off many who wore the fox and flowers, though many more were left ashore with all manner of badges. Lord Florent is the king's hand on Dragonstone now. The mountain grew taller, crowned all in pale smoke. 
The sails sang, the drum beat, the oars pulled smoothly, and before very long the mouth of the harbour opened before them. So empty, Dabbas thought, remembering how it had been before, with the ships crowding every quay and rocking at anchor off the breakwater. He could see Salador San's flagship Valerian moored at the quay, where Fury and her sisters had once tied up. The ships on either side of her had striped lysine hulls as well. In vain he looked for any sign of Lady Mariah or Wraith. They pulled down the sail as they entered the harbour to dock on oars alone. The captain came to Davis as they were tying up. My prince will wish to see you at once. A fit of coughing seized Davis as he tried to answer. He clutched the rail for support and spat over the side. The king, <laughs> he wheezed. I must go to the king. For where the king is, I will find Melisande. No one goes to the king, Corain Sathmentes replied firmly. A Salador son will tell you. Him first. Davos was too weak to defy him. He could only nod. Salador San was not aboard his Valerian. They found him at another quay, a quarter-mile distant, down in the hold of a big-bellied pentoshi cog named Bountiful Harvest, counting cargo with two eunuchs. One held a lantern, the other a wax tablet, and stylus. Thirty-seven, thirty-eight, thirty-nine, the old rogue was saying when Davis and the captain came down the hatch. Today he wore a wine-colored tunic and high boots of bleached-white leather inlaid with silver scrollwork. Pulling the stopper from a jar, he sniffed, sneezed, and said, Er, uh, a coarse kind, and of the second quality, my nose declares. The bill of lading is saying forty-three jars, eh? Where have the others gotten to, I am wondering? These Pentoshi, do they think I am not counting, eh? When he saw Davis, he stopped suddenly. Is it pepper stinging my eyes or tears? Is that the knight of the onions who stands before me? No, how can it be? My dear friend Davis died on the burning river, all agree. Why has he come to haunt me? Are I no ghost, Seller? What else? My onion knight was never so thin or so pale as you. Salador San threaded his way between the jars of spice and bolts of cloth that filled the hole of the merchant, wrapped Davis in a fierce embrace, then kissed him once on each cheek and a third time on his forehead. You are still warm, sir, and I feel your heart thumpity thumping. Can it be true, huh? The sea that swallowed you has spit you up again? Davis was reminded of Patchface, Princess Shireen's lackwit fool. He had gone into the sea as well, and when he came out, he was mad. Am I mad as well? <laughs> he coughed into a gloved hand and said, I swam beneath a chain and washed ashore on a spear of the Merlin King. I would have died there if Shehala's dance had not come upon me. Salador San threw an arm around the captain's shoulder. This was well done, Corain. You will be having a fine reward, I am thinking. 
Mais Omar, be a good eunuch, eh, and take my friend, Davos, to the honor's cabin. Fetch him some hot wine with cloves. I am misliking the sound of that cough, eh? Oh, squeeze some lime in it as well. And bring white cheese and a bowl of those cracked green olives we counted earlier. Davos, I will join you soon, once I have bespoken a good captain. You will be forgiving me, eh, I know. You do not eat all the olives, or I must be cross with you. Davis led the elder of the two eunuchs, escort him to a large and lavishly furnished cabin at the stern of the ship. The carpets were deep, the windows stained glass, and any of the great leather chairs would have seated three of Davis quite comfortably. The cheese and olives arrived shortly, and a cup of steaming hot red wine. He held it between his hands and sipped it gratefully. The warmth felt soothing as it spread through his chest. Salador San appeared not long after. You must be forgiving me for the wine, my friend. These uh, Pentashi would drink their own water if it were purple. It will help my chest, said Davis. A wine is better than a compress, my mother used to say. You shall be needing compresses as well, I am thinking. Sitting on a spear all this long time, eh? Oh, my! How are you finding that excellent chair? He has uh, fat cheeks, eh? Does he not? Who? asked Davis between sips of hot wine. Illyrio Mopatis, a whale with whiskers. <laughs> I am telling you truly, <laughs> these chairs were built to his measure, though he is seldom bestirring himself from Pentas to sit in them. A fat man always sits comfortably, eh? I'm thinking. For, for he carries his pillow with him wherever he goes, eh? <laughs> How is it you come by a Pentashi ship? asked Davis. Have you gone pirate again, my lord? He set his empty cup aside. Vile calumny. Who has suffered more from pirates than Salador San? I ask only what is due to me. Much gold is owed, oh, yes, but I am not without reason, eh? So, in place of coin, I have taken a handsome parchment, very crisp. It bears the name and seal of Lord Alistair Florent, the hand of the king. I am made Lord of Blackwater Bay, and no vessel may be crossing my lordly waters without my lordly leave, no? And when these outlaws are trying to steal past me in the night to avoid my lawful duties and customs, why, they are no better than smugglers. Eh? So I am well within my rights to seize them. <laughs> the old pirate laughed. I cut off no man's fingers, though. What good are bits of fingers? The ships I am taking, the cargoes, a few ransoms, nothing unreasonable. He gave Davis a sharp look. You are unwell, my friend, eh? That cough. And so thin. I am seeing your bones through your skin. And yet I am not seeing your little bag of finger bones. Old habit made Davis reach for the leather pouch that was no longer there. I lost her in the river. My luck. Oh, 
whispered. The river was terrible, Salador San said solemnly. Even from the bay I was seeing and shuddering. Davis coughed, spat, and coughed again. I, I saw Black Brother burning, <laughs> and Fury as well, he finally managed hoarsely. Did none of our ships escape the fire? Part of him still hoped. Lord Stefan, Ragged Jenner, Swift Sword, Laughing Lord, and some others were upstream of the pyromancer's pissing, yes. They did not burn, but with the chain raised, neither could they be flying. Some few were surrendering, eh? Most rode far up the black water, away from the battling, and then were sunk by their crews, so they would not be falling into Lannister hands, eh? Ragged Jenner and Laughing Lord are still playing pirate on the river, I have heard, but who can say if it is so, eh? Lady Mariah? Davis asked. Wraith? Salador San put a hand on Davis's forearm and gave a squeeze. No, of them, no. I am sorry, my friend. They were good men, your Dale and Allard, but this comfort I can give you. Your young Devon was among those we took off at the end. The brave boy never once left the king's side, or so they say. For a moment he felt almost dizzy. His relief was so palpable. He had been afraid to ask about Devon. The mother is merciful. I must go to him, Salar. I must see him. Yes, said Salador San, and you will be wanting to sail to Cape Wrath, I know, to see your wife and your two little ones. Eh? You must be having a new ship, I am thinking. His Grace will give me a ship said Davis. The Lysini shook his head. Of ships his grace has none, but Saladosan has many. Eh? The king's ships burned up on the river, but not mine. You shall have one, old friend. You will sail for me, yes. You will dance into Bravas and Myrrh and Valentis in the black of night, all unseen, and dance out again with silks and spices, we will be having fat purses, yes? You are kind, Salar, but my duty is to my king, not your purse. The war will go on. Stannis is still the rightful heir by all the laws of the Seven Kingdoms. All the laws are not helping when all the ships burn up, I am thinking. And your king will. You will be finding him changed, I am fearing. Since the battle, he sees no one but broods in his stone drum. Queen Celeste keeps court for him, with her uncle, the Lord Alistair, who is naming himself the Hand. The king's seal she has given to this uh, uncle to fix to the letters he writes, even to my pretty parchment. But it is a little kingdom they are ruling, poor and rocky, yes? There is no gold, not even a little bit, to pay faithful Salador San what is owed him, and only those knights that we took off at the end, and no ships, but my little brave few, eh? A sudden racking cough bent Davis over. Salador San moved to help him, but he waved him off, and after a moment he recovered. No one, 
He wheezed. What do you mean? He sees no one. His voice sounded wet and thick even in his own ears, and for a moment the cabin swam dizzily around him. No one but her, said Salador Sam, and Davis did not have to ask who he meant. My friend, you tire yourself. It is a bed you are needing, not Salador-san, a bed and many blankets with a hot compress for your chest and more wine and cloves. Davis shook his head. I will be fine. <laughs> Tell me, Seller, I must know. No one but Melisandre. The Lysene gave him a long, doubtful look and continued reluctantly. The guards keep all others away, even his queen and his little daughter. Servants bring meals that no one eats. He leaned forward and lowered his voice. Queer talking, I have heard, of hungry fires within the mountain, and how Stannis and the Red Woman go down together to watch the flames, eh? There are shafts, they say, and secret stairs down into the mountain's heart into up places where only she may walk unburned. It is enough and more to give an old man such terrors that sometimes he can scarcely find the strength to eat. Melisandre, Davis shivered. The red woman did this to him, he said. She sent the fire to consume us to punish Tannis for setting her aside, to teach him that he could not hope to win without her sorceries. The Lysene chose a plump olive from the bowl between them. You are not the first to be saying this, my friend. But if I am you, I am not saying it so loudly, eh? Dragonstone crawls with these queen's men. Oh, yes, and they have sharp ears and sharper knives. He popped the olive into his mouth. I have a knife myself. Captain Corrine made me a gift of it. He pulled out the dirk and laid it on the table between them. A knife to cut out Melisande's heart, if she has one. Salador sa 